For those of you wondering if director J.J. Abrams would stay on to helm episodes 8 and 9 of the new Star Wars trilogy, we may have an answer for you. According to Deadline, the answer is a resounding no. The site is reporting that Disney and Lucasfilm are currently in negotiations with Looper's Ryan Johnson to take over the franchise and write and direct the next two installments that are set to hit theaters in 2017 and in 2019. I'm standing in Ryan Johnson's kitchen in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, and through those doors is his Star Wars collection. Now, he admits it's not just a hobby, it's an obsession. So much so that he even had to build an addition on his house to hold it all. So, what does his wife think of all of this? When I first saw it, I said, well, you've outdid my grandmother's salt and pepper shaker collection. But I've embraced it. Welcome to the Star Wars Vintage Rebellion podcast. I'm Stuart Skinner and you are listening to episode 34, Brian's Angels. Joining me as always is our R5-D4 focus collector and loose completist is Richard Hutchinson. Good evening, Rich. Evening, guys. From the Welsh Valleys, our Thai fighter pilot focus collector, it's Grant Criddle. Good evening, sir. Good evening, lads. Next, we have our slave layer focus collector. It's Peter Davis. Good evening, Peter Weedy. Hello, little fella. How you doing? I'm not bad, Petal. And finally, our Luke X-Wing pilot focus collector It is Jez. Good evening, Jezebel. Good evening, Stu. My Greedo focus collecting friend with a massive garage full of stuff. Thought I'd introduce you this time, mate, because you always introduce us and, and you know, people might not be aware of your massive cavern. Hi. I'm speechless. Grant. Yo. <laughs> not vintage, but it's yes. a bit of a play on the vintage. What do you think of the 40th anniversary toys that they've decided to go with? I don't know. I don't really. I haven't really seen it. It's a copy of the original 12, isn't it? They're six-inch figures. Oh, they're six are, inches, are they? Which the majority of them are re-releases, but they're on like a vintage card. So they've got like the Han Solo has got the original Han Solo image on much bigger cards. Are they much bigger, Rich? Yeah, they they're are. Huge. Uh-huh. Yep. Not for me, but I'm sure people will love it. Yeah, not for me either. I was quite underwhelmed with them, to be honest with you. But oh, I'm really? Sh- was, that a, was that a gotcha question? Does everyone hate them? No, 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 no. I, I, what I've read, everyone's really split on them. I should think Rich and Pete will pick them up. Nope. Uh, <laughs> no chance. No. The, the six-inch. I don't collect six-inch figures. Sorry, sorry, Rich. didn't realise that. I don't think they add anything to the uh, the world of collecting. They just repacks, a couple of new ones. They're six inches. They're not going to meet up with anyone's collections because they're all over the place, packaging-wise. And the logo's wrong. It's in, it's in the, on the right-hand side. Not they've the had middle, to move so. it to do the hanger tab. I was listening to that today. I don't care. The, for them to go on the rack, they've had to alter the top of them slightly. Why don't they use one of those glue, uh, clear ones that they use for everything else, you know, that sits in the middle of just... It, the whole thing is a mess. It I really don't is. Know, I'm, I don't I'm, know, Pete. Don't attack me. I haven't designed these. I'm Stu. You. Why are you putting them in the middle, <laughs> Stu? 
Grant, what are you trying you? to say? The, I think Tops are reissuing the sugar-free stuff they made in 1978. I think I saw a link to that as well. Really? Yeah, the sugar-free chewing gum with cards. I think there's that some kind of good. reissue for that. Yeah, everyone's at it with the old Helix coming out. Is that on track? Yeah. Wonderful. It does seem like there is a bit of a, bit of a throwback to the vintage era. Let's go on to our acquisition. So, Grant, have you been purchasing anything? Actually, I've just had a thought, Stu, yep. that the Star Wars Trilogy Special Edition has now been available longer than the original Star Wars. January 1997, the Special yeah. Edition's come out, so it's over 20 years. Hasn't the original Star Wars been out for 40 years? It's not available. Well, it's, but it has been available. It's available to anyone who's got it. Exactly. Yeah, you, no, you're being pedant- you, you pedantic and, ignore, and ignoring the facts. <laughs> you say pedantic, I say accurate. As Grant's point failed. Okay. I know where you're coming from, Grant, and I think and they're being very, very... Yeah, I know that. No, ...for no reason. Exactly. Just fake and news. Cheers, have you fallen out with Grant? Because normally, everything Grant says, you're like, yeah, oh, that's real, Grant. <laughs> and tonight, every time he talks, you're like picking a fight. Is this is a love tip? <laughs> because I agree with Grant that I think there's going to be a Blu-ray release of the original trilogy. Wasn't that Richard just and said that? I don't know what's the matter with Jez tonight. It was me. But, um, Grant, do you know that treadmill that you that you organised for Florida? Oh, you, know that, you know that treadmill that you went out of your way to get? Sort of what now. What a nightmare. What a nightmare. I think the problem here is, well, I've just seen it, right? Richard's just suggested something. Every good idea, I think Jez thinks that Grant says it. So in his head, he's just in this room, on this podcast. I reckon when he listens back, it's just him and Grant. Sorry, Grant, did you say something? Yeah. Let's move on to our acquisitions then, and let's go to Grant. I have managed to pick up a... Pepperidge Farm 1983 cookies display header with the shelf intact. Do you guys want a few little facts and description about this little thing? Yes. Yes, I've seen that the day it would look yeah. it crack. Yeah. It's a really nice piece, actually. It's something I've been after for a while. It's the header piece. So you guys know what a header is? Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's like yep. the main sort of board. It's actually part of a much bigger display, but starting to learn now that the super large displays, I can't actually fit them in my room or anything, so I should stop buying them. So I just bought the header instead. I think um, Todd Chamberlain's actually got a full, he has, full display he has, one, that, actually at the moment on eBay, isn't he? Yeah, that, that's, you know, I, I got the header from Todd, and I was tempted to buy the whole thing again, but I was like, no, this is insane. Every time I buy it, the whole thing, it just takes up too much room. Uh, so this is just a header. It comes with like a shelf that comes across the... Uh, across the front of it, which is a, a really nice piece as well. It's going to make it a bit difficult to sort of display or make a frame for because of the, the sort of like the depth caused by the shelf. It's a 1983 Return of the Jedi era uh, store display, yet it uses the Vanishing Point Star Wars logo, which for me is probably my favorite of the Star Wars logos because it, you know it's the same one that's used on the 1977 Hildebrand, the Young and the Chantrell posters. It's also used on sort of like the Helix stationery, Wurgenhoff Enterprises, jewellery, if you collect the American US jewellery stuff. Um, I like this logo more than any other logo, and it's massive on this on this header, so so that's a really, uh, really pops-like. So it's, it, it kind of reminds me of sort of like the Nucleus of, did I say Nucleus? I mean Nucleus of, of Star Wars. So it has this little shelf thing that attaches to it. Uh, and that's to advertise the four tumblers that come on like a special offer. The the header display itself has got sort of like got this Zodiac star display on it, which has a lot of these sort of Return of the Jedi characters. And uh, yeah, it's a really nice piece. It's something that I've been after for quite some time, so I'm super happy with that. And I've also managed to pick up something in the wild. For £5, I managed to get a loose TIE fighter pilot with the Ghost COO, if you guys know what that is. 
Yeah, is that one where the CEO can't be seen through the side leg? Yeah, I think that it's not. It's sort of it's on the front of the leg on mm-hmm. on both the left and the right leg. You can see an imprint of where it usually says, you know, uh, made in Hong Kong. Yeah, you can see that on the front of the legs. But I don't understand how that's possible. Has is any of you guys ever read anything about how that's possible? No, because you know, because the legs have got the feet. You know, it's not like you could put them in the wrong way because you know, surely they wouldn't fit, would they? So how how come the stamp is on the on the front of the legs? I don't understand that. But uh, I never, I don't even know if I've got another one. Managed to find one for five pounds. Amazing. What's that off eBay? No, that was a, a, a Cardiff Film and Comic Con. Uh, I was chatting to a guy who was on a stall and he had a few beta figures. And I asked him if he had any more any more Star Wars stuff. And he had, he said, yeah, I've got this ice cream tub. And he pulled up his ice cream tub and it was full of beta figures. And one of them was a a tie pilot and I had a look at it and I asked him, you know, how much do you want for this, mate? And he was like, uh, depends on the paint damage. And he looked at there's a bit of paint damage on the hand, so he said, ah, oh, it's going to be a fiver for it. Result, mate. Yeah, I was quite happy with that, actually. It's been ages since I bought anything in like a live transaction. It's always been off forums or Facebook or eBay or auction sites. I can't remember the last time. I'm actually going to go and pick up a uh, boxed R2-D2 now, the uh, six-inch one. Uh, that I've contacted someone online, and they were like, "Yeah, come over and you know, uh, see if you see if you want it. You can you can buy it." And I was like, "This is unusual. This is like old school collect." I'm going to introduce Stuart's uh, purchase of the month, and your your pepperidge display is actually leading at the moment. So let's see if Rich can knock it off with Thank a um, mini rig. Rich. Well, up until about an hour ago, just like just in a quiz, I had absolutely nothing. But I was browsing eBay whilst I was waiting for you, and. I looked for some of the Deuce 12-inch accessories that I still need, and I found and bought a Leah comb. So that's been my only purchase. I'm saving the celebration big style. I've ploughed all my money into swag, and that's it. I'm happy with that. You can't count that because you don't actually own it. I mean, it could be lost in the post. We're going to be at Ian's house right now. Oh, it's not even in the country. Well, well they, would, they wouldn't ship. They wouldn't ship a tiny little plastic comb across the Atlantic. What was it? it would, like packaging problems. Twenty-eight dollars he wanted for the shipping to ship a comb. Well, let's go to someone who doesn't need a comb. Jez, have you been buying anything? Hello, hello. Oh, I was hoping you'd come to me after, Pete, because I've got eBay open on my phone because I just thought, yeah, I've got about a minute left before he comes to me. I'll just buy something, anything, just buy something. Um, No, mate, I haven't bought anything. Well, if you buy something in the next minute, feel free to interrupt. Yeah. Okay, okay. All right, then. I'll I'll, I'll do that. Hang on. Good luck. Um, Pete, have you been buying anything for your grimy grape? Well... I'm kind of in the rich territory of I've technically bought something, but I'm picking it up at Celebration. Um, so I haven't actually got it in my hand, so I don't think it counts. It's the three little po- little Empire Strikes Back Burger King posters. They're really, really cool designs. I don't know if you've ever seen them or not. They're beautiful little things, and uh, I should pick it up at Celebration. But so, so technically, no, nothing. Not really. Is that the, um, is that, let me think there, is that like Luke and Yoda on Dagobah? Is that one? Yeah, yeah, and then there's the uh, Cloud City one, well, Bounty Hunters Cloud City. I mean, they're really, really beautiful, like, yeah. technically kind of paints, I guess. But yeah, really, until, I mean, it could be completely random, the person I'm picking them up from might run away. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully that is something I should be able to show when I get them. But uh, yeah, like those I mean, don't I would... think it's going to compete with yours, Grant, unfortunately. They're still nice, though. I wouldn't mind those myself. Am I the only person who heard Pete say the three My Little Ponies? <laughs> what? Yes, Rich, I'm buying My Little Pony. I am, I am half convinced you said that and changed your answer to a Burger King poster when you realised what you said. He is collecting Barbies, uh, I know that for a fact. Oh, yeah, he sends Barbies galore. Doing really, like, <laughs> disgusting things. 
That's not disgusting. They're perfectly adult things, Stuart. <laughs> We've got a, a display, which is beautiful, and a TIE fighter pilot, and a couple of items which the people don't actually have. <laughs> hang on, oh. Stu. Hang on, Stu. You could get in here and win. Come on. What have well, you bought? We know. Well, to be honest with you, okay, I purchased something about four or five weeks ago, which is Atians, but I'm not going to be bringing that up until I own it and have got it in my hand. So, mm. I'll tell you what I did, I did pick up, which I got a great job lot for 99p about 10 vintage badges a couple of patches uh, about 40 old bookmarks and a load of loose figures off ebay 99p which was a result because the badges were worth it on their own i have picked up a bradley time watch um the r2 and 3po on the black face with the white star wars logo Ooh, gonna need a bit more description on that mate <laughs> it's got a black vinyl band Narrowed it down <laughs> um i picked up by chance, the R2-D2 candle made by Wilton, which I quite liked in hand, so I bought the Chewbacca one as well, so I just need the Vader on that. And actually, I did pick up a the Emperor Sigma figurine. Now, I know I need two or three figurines, but I can't remember which ones, because they're boxed up, but I knew I needed the Emperor. So I've picked that up as well. And actually today, although I haven't got this in hand, Ricky Cleverly was selling a 3PO and R2 cake topper in this packet. So I asked him for that, and... As a thank you for doing the podcast, he has is sending it to me for free. So, big shout out, Ricky. I know he's always supported the podcast, so lovely little touch. And uh, look forward to buying him a beer at Echo Live. But that's all I've got. So, Grant, your pepperidge display is the piece of the month. Yeah, suck on my cookies, or choke on my cookies. <laughs> I bet you just will. Often heard, often heard phrase. Now, whoa, whoa, I, I, hang on, hang on. I bet Jez would. I often do give Grant cookies, Wookie cookies. It's true. Grant, you can't That's deny that. Yes, it is true. Yeah, it is true. Well, now, Jez was meant to be doing the opening question this month, but uh, with two hours before the podcast, he decided to go, Rich, oh, I haven't got around to doing it. So I believe Rich has got the question this month. Well, yeah, you're right there, Stu. I had like 20 minutes to prepare for this. Um, but it could be a disaster. It could be fantastic. Here goes. So, me thinking was... As it's International Women's Day today, I do something around the women in Star Wars. And when you think of women in Star Wars, you think of two things. You obviously think of Princess Leia, and you think of the running stormtrooper complaining about the chafing between his legs. So what I've done is I've went through... It's, I have it here. I've got the Meccano Atri Logo Collector's Handbook by Stephen Forcourt and Jan LaRue. And I've had a look at Princess Leia throughout it. Now, if you have a copy of the book, inside the book... For example, I'm on page 66 here. It has a nice photograph of the square Meccano Atat driver. And at the bottom of each page, it has a rarity scale rated between 1 and 5. So what I've got here is I've got some questions on different Princess Leia figures. Now, you will get two points for telling me how rare you think each figure is rated by Stefan. And I'm also going to chuck out some bonus points throughout it. Okay, so I know I've got to keep it simple for you. Does everybody understand what I'm going to do here? There's no way at all that anybody will be able to Google the answers for this. Okay, so we're going to start, and we're going to start with 1978. Okay? Now, I've written four names down on my piece of paper here, and Jez, I'm going to give you the first question, okay? So, according to Stefan's book, in the rarity scale, Meccano 12 back GDE Princess Leia. Okay, so I'm looking for a number between 1 and 5. How rare is that carded figure? I would say that's particularly rare, Richard. Okay, right, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to turn to the first picture in the book, which is Luke, okay? So Luke Skywalker on the 12A Meccano card back 
is rated as four Death Stars out of five. Okay, so that's just give you an example of something that you can relate to. So, Princess Leia, one, two, three, four, or five, Jez? Yeah, I'm going to stay with four. That's incorrect. Pete, for a point. I'm going to use the power of my dice to give me an answer. So I'm going to throw my dice. Bet you throw a six. <laughs> no, I've got a two. Yeah. Ooh, that is correct. Pete gets one point. Oh, yes, the power <laughs> of the dice will work. Bonus point. Okay, so this is for anybody to answer. Which of the other first 12 characters are also graded as a two, meaning that they are exactly the same difficulty or rarity scale as Princess Leia? Nope. Somebody Three, else. Chewbacca. Oh. No, Chewbacca. Jez gets a point for the bonus. Oh. Chewbacca well, and Princess Leia are the same. And they are both the joint easiest. So if you want to put a run of 12 years to, to, together, Princess Leia and Chewbacca are the easiest two to find. Moving there's on. There's something which is... Uh, Richard, can I just um, in, interrupt a second? There's something which I, I just can't get out of my head. Um, you said that this was about ladies, and then you said that, oh, yeah, when stormtroopers have got something chafing between their legs. Yeah. I think that in itself proves that I'm absolutely not a lady, that I've got something chafing between my legs, and um, I, we just need to move on from that. Women okay. can chafe. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah, I can't believe you said women can't chafe on Women's Day, Jez. Jesus. <laughs> oh, Jez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, wait, wait for it. Yeah, yeah, that's right, Gordon. Actually, you're right. <laughs> that's so disrespectful, man. I got nothing. Moving on. Right, we're now moving on to the Meccano Square 20 bucks. Okay, so that's the Meccano Square 20 bucks. Princess Leia. Stu, on a rarity scale of between one and five. Now, before you freak out, turn to the, the book now, and I'm going to choose R5-D4. R5-D4 is rated as four out of five Death Stars for rarity. So what would you say Princess Leia was in relation to that? Um, I'm going to say four. Nope, throwing it out the grant. Um, I would have to say square card 20 back Meccano Princess Leia. Yep. I would say either one or two. Nope, so throwing it out the chess. Three. Now, these are much easier, so I've got some bonus points for you here. <laughs> Which are the three easiest square... Is this still my question? Um, thrown it out. Jawa, Ben, Death Squad Commander. Okay, three points for Stu, because you were the quickest. Oh, okay, moving on. The Meccano Empire Strikes Back Square Leah Hoth. Okay, so who am I up to in questions here? Is it Grant's turn? Yeah. I want to go with Lando Calrissian. Okay, so Lando is worth three Death Stars out of five. Okay, so Leah Hoth. Oh, obviously a four. No. Jez? Oh, this book is lies. Two. 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 <laughs> yep, Jez gets a point for two. Now, throwing it out there, there are four other Corno Empire Strikes Back characters that are also rated as a two. What are they? Lando. Pete Gibb. So I'll give you that example, so I'm going to knock a point off you for not listening. Bosk. <laughs> Bosk. Bosk is Han in... Bespin. Han Hoth. Nope. Nope. IBJTA. Nope. FX7. Bespin. Okay, one for Stu with FX7. Nope. Ugnaught. Nope. 2-1-B. Nope. Attack Driver. Nope. Rebel Commander. Um, can't name, can't name nope. all the figures, though. You could have said <laughs> Rebel Soldier, Yoda, or the Black Bespin God. Yoda. Le Retour du Jedi Leia. On a 45 Say that again. Say again. Is he speaking French again? Go on, Pete. You have a go. Then I'll fill it in when you get it wrong. Weak way. 
was three out of five Death Stars. So I'm looking for Leia on a 45 back Jedi card. Oh, hang on, let me let me roll. Which Leia, the original? Yes. Hang on, I'm rolling. Press button again. Oh, I've got a two. Nope, incorrect, Stu. I, I would say hang five. Hang on a second, I thought it was... Five is correct, yeah. Oh, now, oh the power of the dice fails. That bonus points, there are five... No, they're not. There are six other <laughs> incredibly hard to get 45 bucks. Luke X-Wing. Luke X-Wing is one for Grant. Yes. You just um, stole it. Princess Leia. You've had Princess Leia. I'm, I'm tempted to take that one back I off. I wish. <laughs> I would take it back off him. He doesn't deserve anything. Cloud car yeah. pilot. Nope. Tuscan Raider. Hammerhead. Tuscan Raider is one, yep. So, yes. Grant's got his point back. Hammerhead. Nope. Uh, minus a point off, Jez, sir, please. Why? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, time up. The other ones I was looking for were Darth Vader, Lando, Hosk, and Ugnaught. Okay, back to Jez then. 45 bucks, Return the Jedi. I'm looking for Leah Hoth. Good one, three. Nope, Pete? Uh, four. Stu? Two. Get your dice out, Pete. Nope. Oh, get them every day on eBay. One star. Nope. Okay, it's nobody got any points for that one. It's actually a five. Incredibly <laughs> difficult to get. Uh, I think it's Stu this time. Stu, so we're looking for 65 bucks, and this time I'm looking for Leah Bush. Now I'm going to give you another 65 back to start off your comparisons with, and it's the uh, weak way with three out of five Death Stars. So Leah Bush. It's got to be similar. I'll, I'll, I'll stick with three. Unbelievable. No. Grant? Common as. One star, please. Nope. Jez? Two. Correct. Jez gets a point. Okay, now, which of the 65 backs is the hardest? One figure, Jedi card, Jedi figure, which is it? General Medine. Nope. Yoda. Nope. Are we, are we docking Jez a point every time he answers? <laughs> well, that, you can't just Stu, introduce yeah. new rules like that. Stu, I'm going to give you two guesses because you've been quiet on this one. Is it, is it a Jedi figure? I, I, that's what I said, so I'm a bit surprised when I heard things like Chewbacca, but never mind, go on. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with uh, Nine Numb. Correct, Nine Numb <laughs> is the hardest one to get. The easiest ones to get are Chief Chewbacca, Reyes, and Lando Skiff. Okay, moving on then. Try logos. Okay, try logos. So I think I'm up to Stu this time. What I'm looking for here, then, is the Leah original on the Meccano Trilogo. And I'm going to give you something to compare it with. So, Trilogo, Gamorian Guard here, who was on three out of five Death Stars. So, Leah original. Um, four. Bang on, right? Four. Well done, Stu. Now, who else from the first 12 also got a four? Grant? Tuscan Raider. Nope. Jez? Darth Vader. Darth Vader's one. Pete? Hansala. Stu? Luke. Grant? Oh, I was going to say Luke. Uh, Jawa. Jawa, correct, yeah. So Jawa, the yes. original, and Darth Vader were incredibly tough to get out the first 12. Very simple one now. Palatoy, Leah original. Who am I up to? I think it's Grant, is it? Yeah. Leah original on a Palatoy. Okay, so between one to five Death Stars. What did it score? Ah, oh, easy. Uh, four. Jez? Three. Three. Yep, one point to Jez. Who else from the first 12 got a three? Pete, one figure. Ben Kenobi. Oops, Stu. Luke. Grant. Chewbacca. Jez. Deskor Commander. Pete. Oh my god, what do we have? Uh, Stormtrooper. Stu. I'm going to go R2. Nope. Grant. Uh, 3PO. Nope. Jez. Luke. Nope. It can't Pete. be. It can't be. Oh, hang on. He's it's got to be Jawa then, isn't it? It's a Jawa. Like, yep. Jawa's got to be more than three. Jawa got a three out of five Death Stars on a, on a Palatoy. 
just to double check that, I'm going to open the page right now. And on a 70B, Jabba got three out of five. Wow. Now we're in the final straight. I'm just going to go through the points. Jez has one, two, three, four, five, six. Pete has one. Stu has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Oh. And Grant, Grant has two. Right. Okay. Leah Bespin McCarno Trilogo. I think I'm up to Pete now. So between one and five, Leah Bespin on a McCarno. Dice says four. Four is correct. <laughs> uh, oh, Dice wins. Jez, I think what do you know? Leah Bespin on a Palatoy. Ah, Leah Bespin on a Palatoy, one of my favourites. Um, I will say four. Nope. It's not my favourite anymore. Dice says one. Nope. Stu? Two. Two is correct. In, in the final straight now, one point... Sorry, no, I'm going to go with a three-point question first. Which is the easiest Trilogo McCarno to get? And I think I'm up to Grant now for uh, three points. Squ- square, square, square card uh, Jawa. Trilogo McCarno. Trilogo McCarno. Oh, how easy that is. Easiest one to get. Oh, B-Wing Pilot. Nope, Jez. Tebow. Pete. A-Wing Pilot. Clato Skiff. It's interesting to know that no one has even given us an answer for the second easiest ones yet. Back to Grant. I'll give you a bonus point if you get anything in the second category. I'll bet you Richard's going down as fit. The easiest trilogo McCarthy to acquire. Uh, Darth Vader. Nope. Back to Jez. I will say Nick 2. Nope. Pete. Dice says Weakway. Nope. (laughs) (laughs) Chew. The Gamorian Guard. (laughs) <laughs> no, really? I can't believe it. No, no, I mean, you're giving us obviously quite sensible ones, but you're not even hitting any out of the second easiest category. Uh, Stu? Then well, Grant? Back to Grant? Admiral Akbar? Nope. Jez? I will say. <laughs> no point. Uh, damn it. Um, Leah Bush? Nope. Pete? Dice says Nine Num. Nine Num is in the second category, so you're going to get oh! that one. Stu? Uh, Anakin. Anakin, yep, three points. Anakin is oh, the easiest trilogo McCarno for got to get. The ones in the second easiest category are Ben, Yoda, Ugnaught, Luke Jedi, Nine Num, Han Trenchcoat, and Warwick. Right. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Okay, so there were twelve in the hardest. Five out of five category to get. Trilogo McCarnos. Some of these may be a surprise. Okay, so I think I'm up to start off. We've got, okay, we've so got 12 of these to get. There's tw- but oh, yeah, I'm, gonna, I'm, only, I'm only going to go through twice. Okay, so you get two points for each one we you hit. We may as well go through three times each, because between Maydeen. the four of us, we'll get the right. 12. Okay, we'll go through three times. Two points for Jez with Maydeen, so Maydeen's oh. out. Okay, Pete. Uh, Boba Fett. You're, you're not Pete. Pete, you're next. Say, say it. Say it. I'm say Boba Fett. Yeah. <laughs> Boba Fett. Yes, Boba Fett is in there yes! as well. That's two points for you, Stu. Thank you. Um, I'm going to say yak. No. Oh. Grant? Remember, these are McCarno ones, not not your regular palatoys. Uh, Luke Storm? No. Jez? Jawa? No. Pete? Oh, Han Solo with little head. Nope. Stu? I'm going to say Luke Hoff. Nope. Grant? Emperor's World Guard? Yes, Emperor's World Guard is Ooh. one of them. Okay, two points for Grant. I got another one, I got another one, Rich. Go on and go for it. Whoa, 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 whoa. He's not going to get it anyway, so go on, let him have it. Cloud car pilot. No. Jez? It is. It is Can not. I have two? <laughs> Le- Leah Hoff. No. Pete? 
prune face? No. Stu? Hammerhead? No. The ones that you were looking for were Luke Farmboy, Death Star Droid, Bosk, oh. Rebel Commander, oh. 21B, Squidhead, Tebow, R2 Pop-Up, and the Rebel Soldier. Those are the most difficult Trilogo Meccanos to get. Okay, so for every round. I, don't, I know about Bosk. Yeah, I was, oh. never mind. I, I was willing it on you, Pete. So, I'm just going to check the points here. We've got Jez with 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. That's pretty good going for you, Jez. 9. Pete has 5. I got oh, I won last, I won one, last two, month's... 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11 for Stu. And Grant has 4. So, oh, well done, Grant. Stu. You are, well, there's no surprise there. Our French, um, our French guy is the winner of the French Meccano and Trilogo quiz. Rich, Rich, yeah. what has this got to do with, like, women? Because <laughs> the world just hasn't, other than the bonus questions. It, it was quite interesting through actually looking at, um, you know, how the difference between some of the, the Palatoy and some of the French Meccano's, um, how you know, common ones, fairly common ones like, you know, Lando Calrissian on a Palatoy Trilogo, compare that to the Meccano Trilogo, you know, incredibly difficult to get. Um, Bosk, Bosk is one of the easiest Trilogos to get on Palatoy, but it gets the full five Death Star rating on the, on the Meccano one. So, quite hey, interesting. Do you know what? We, we had uh, Jan and Stefan in our booth at Celebration, and I kind of regret not buying that little book now. Well, it's interesting that you bring that up because at the moment it's actually on special um, on Amazon. They've got a discount for a, a short period. It's interesting that you said Yak. Yak Face on a Palatoy got two out of five Death Stars for difficulty. And even on the Meccano, it only scored four out of five Death Stars. I just want to say, Rich, we were let down massively and you've picked this up and run it with such a short, <laughs> short, short time, you know. These people, that they could let you know a couple of days in advance, like 20 minutes. And um, well done, Rich, for really putting together a sound quiz and uh, really, really supporting someone who really let you down. Um, Stu, you've got something on your chin. Um, lads, it's 25 minutes past nine. Um, it was at 13.41 this afternoon. Or for those of you um, who don't understand it, it was at one. 41 or 19 minutes to two when i sent the message lads i've something something expletive can someone help out so 20 minutes five minutes let's say six hours and hang on a second i have i have the shell rich as we know bless his little con socks has got his feet up right just watching (laughs) trisha um, because he's got his leg in plaster he's got nothing else to do and and actually rich has thanked me for this because uh he he really appreciates it so um yeah don't mention it rich you're welcome anytime i can help you out by messing up i will uh give you six hours notice every time right and also thank you Richard. Um, i have got the day off tomorrow to just work on podcast <laughs> things i'm gonna make this question amazing Hang on a second. I think you're embellishing things there. (laughs) Okay, let's go over to Rich for this month's (laughs) Rebel Briefings. Safe shipping.
a Mexican mystery. Toy Tony gets active. Celebration gets closer. Beware AFA again. The Rebel base is on the moon on the far side. We are preparing to orbit the planet. Um, safe shipping, Rich. I'm delighted to once again welcome John Paul Ragusa to the show to discuss a new project which I'm convinced will benefit both buyers and sellers alike. Welcome to the Vintage Rebellion, John Paul. Ah, thanks for having me back. I, I, had a, I had a blast the last time, so I'm glad we can do it again. Now, last time you were on, I promised I'd find out a bit of information for you. Can you remember what it was? No, what was it? It was to find out how Stefan pronounces his surname. We had him on a couple of months ago. And I'm fairly convinced that he wasn't sure himself on how to pronounce his own name. But I'm just going to pass it on to you. This is how he says it. It's Callier. So there oh, you go. It's almost like a, with like a French inflection? Yeah, uh, Italian, I was leading to believe, but yeah, could be French. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right, John Paul. The reason why I've asked you to come on is because in early February, you posted on TIG and various Facebook groups a link to a Kickstarter campaign. So firstly, what can you tell us about this campaign? Right off the bat, it's a very simple premise. I think over the years, we've gotten into a place where a lot of the problems that we see in the community have found some sort of resolution. And the one part that no one has really found a hardcore, universally accepted solution for is shipping carded figures. Over the years, a lot of people have kind of adopted makeshift models, and they're not that dissimilar uh, Tig posted, as far as I know, one of the originals. Um, I think Jay and Sean Kempel worked on it, and they put together like a series of photographs and instructions on how to use stuff you have around your house, you know, bubble wrap or saran wrap, packing peanuts, uh, bubble wrap, to secure the bubble itself from outside elements and how to properly wrap it and put it in a box. The problem that I saw was twofold. Number one, as much as we probably all like to think we're experts on on packing and stuff like that, you know, that process is a little cumbersome and people have tended to tweak it by saying, you know, well, you don't need this much cardboard. You should have more bubble wrap. You should have saran wrap. So people have started to augment and change it as they saw fit. And then the second part of it was there's still this universal scare that when you're shipping items, blisters are coming completely off of the card back. And and usually that's just a result of, you know, well, now, gosh, is it, do we start saying almost 40 years of, uh, we do, don't we? Yeah. With the new hope line, right? So 40 years of, of, of the, uh, you know, things being attached, they're starting to come off. So as you look around and, and, you know, Rich, you can call me out on it if you think I'm wrong, but you start to see more and more horror stories and people posting up photos of heads coming through blisters, blisters completely ripped off the card backs. And because of that, uh, and I've been the victim of it at least a good six or seven times over the last couple of years, I said that this was sort of a gap in the market. And uh, what we've looked to do is try to create a custom sleeve that we will uh, be able to bring out to market that can protect these in two ways. Number one, protecting the actual bubble itself, which is probably the majority cause of issues. And then secondly, keep it so that the card back and the bubble can be relatively immobile during the shipping process so you don't worry about them being ripped apart in transit. And one thing that I want to make clear is that people tend to think that coming up with a solution like this means 
people aren't packing things right, people aren't doing the right thing. I don't want anyone looking at this and saying to themselves, you know, I know how to pack a carded figure. I don't need this. Or, you know, who's he to tell me how to do this? I've shipped 50 carded figures this year and I have had no issues. It's not that. A lot of the problems that happen, and don't get me wrong, there are definitely people who have had shipping damage due to negligence. This is just something that becomes easy, simple, adoptable, and without any real fanfare, you can not worry that you might have made a little error here. I don't have enough of this material to pack right. This is something that you can do as a no-brainer in your sleep. A guy that a, – a client of mine used to say that anytime I brought him a solution to something, he said, if my mom can do it, then I want to hear about it. And I think this is something that his mom could probably do. And if his mom can pack a carded figure and ship it off without any worries, I think that's a good product to bring to market. I collect a lot of carded items from Vectis to send all the way around the world. It takes me about 20 minutes to pack one. And even then, especially when some of them are running at the four figures, I don't really want to touch other people's carded items. I don't want to, like you said, I watch the take videos where you create the little cardboard protection to go around the bubble mm-hmm. and you, you put the pack of peanuts in. Ideally, in that kind of situation, I would just want to take somebody's carded item, whack it into some kind of protection, parcel it up and mail it off. Exactly. You know, and and that's one thing that I don't really feel has ever been attempted. I looked around and I did try to find any kind of backstory where someone had come up and tried to build the better mousetrap, as they say, right? And I couldn't. It's always been some variation on chopping up a box and doing it yourself. You know, there's something to be said for, you know, any kind of DIY project. But Vectis is a great example. They've become kind of a cornerstone of vintage Star Wars now, right? Big companies like that, Sotheby's, even a lot of mass retailers that are doing vintage, like a Brian's Toys, I think they could benefit from it from a business standpoint because, like you said, 20 minutes a shot. So imagine how many things they're packing and shipping that now will go from being a 20-minute process plus a high-risk from an insurance perspective, hopefully down to what, in theory, should be about 15 to 20 seconds. What have you made these shipping containers out of? What kind of foam is it? I'm working right now with a foam manufacturer out of California. And if I pronounce it wrong or I say the wrong thing, I'm going to get like, you know, um, crucified, right? I believe the foam that we're using right now is going to be like a polythylene foam or polyurethane. There are two different types. What we're doing is they're trying to figure out, because one of the challenges that I put in front of them was I need the foam to have a good deal of flexibility, but with obviously rigid properties because it can't be so foamy that it serves no purpose, but it can't be too rigid because there's obviously a little bit of human interaction when you're packing. And if the foam is too sturdy, like a styrofoam, right, Mm -hmm. you could end up crushing a bubble by accident. Or if it grabs the side of the bubble while you're putting it in or out, you could rip the bubble off yourself. And obviously, if that has any chance of happening, it almost becomes counterproductive to produce these. I also asked them to kind of give me an idea of what has less adhesive properties, which one might not break down in extreme heat, extreme cold, long-term storage. 
So I'm waiting to get a little bit of data on that before we kind of pick a particular type because I want to make sure that it protects the bubbles even if someone gets it in the mail and throws it in a, you know, a shipping container for a month or a year because they're moving. They don't have room for it. They could be like, uh, you know, my buddy AJ who probably just has stacks and stacks of cards sitting in a corner of his house somewhere. <laughs> you know, you know, buy a shelf, James. Um, I want to kind of look at all of these things because, you know, one of my favorite little economic terms is unintended consequences. And I want to think to myself, what damage could happen that I'm not thinking of? And I want to make sure I cure a lot of those and make sure they're not going to be issues before we kind of settle in on a final foam style. Now, I'm far from an Empire Strikes Back bubble expert, but I do know a little bit about Trilogo bubbles, and they come in all shapes and sizes. So what is your plan for catering around those types of bubbles? That's a great question, and it's one of the things that's come up a bunch of times. You have to, well, not you, I guess I'm sort of at the precipice of deciding on a particular style. There are so many different types of bubbles, and some of them are minor differences, some of them are major differences, and you know, the thing that I'm trying to decide right now, and maybe this just gives you a little insight because I really don't have an answer yet, but there's two things I could do. One is to actually make every possible style of bubble. It is probably not a good idea. It's extremely you know, labor-intensive because you have to pay for multiple toolings to have every single bubble designed. Then I thought to myself, well, maybe I can narrow it down and, you know, if you give yourself a quarter inch of variance, you could probably cut the categories down significantly. But I want these to be custom packed and I want them to be designed in a way that's giving you the ultimate amount of protection. So to say, well, you know, this will fit any bubble within a quarter inch, that quarter inch could be enough of a distance where when the figure hits the side of the bubble and if it has a quarter inch space, it can still bust through. So I'm tending to think, you know, that sounds like a good idea, but in real life, it could have some consequences. The third way of doing it is what we're, and this might be where I go, but I'm not really sure yet, is to have a two-piece solution. So what I mean by that is the majority of the foam will be one single piece, but then the bottom left-hand corner will be an open square, and then you just take the bubble-style insert put it into the foam to complete the foam, but it'll actually be the right proper cutout for the style of bubble that you want. So imagine, if you will, you have a six and a half by nine and a half piece of foam, but the bottom quarter is completely missing except for the outskirts. So you lay this piece down, you decide, well, I'm going to ship a tri-logo bubble. Then you look, you grab a tri-logo bubble foam insert. You kind of pop it like a puzzle. You put it in the bottom corner, and now you have the properly fitted square, and you put the card back into it. But we're not even close to that point yet. You know, there's a lot of, again, going with that unintended consequences. You do kind of lose the strength of the foam because now you have two pieces. So we're kind of having a debate right now whether that makes sense because you might end up running into a situation where you've actually weakened the overall structural integrity. And then, and I'm not, I mean, obviously I'm not a physicist or, or in, in, into uh, this level of science, but the transfer of energy, which is what we're trying to avoid happening, 
I'm not sure how having a piece of foam that's not one solid piece, how that's going to help. When I say transfer of energy, if a figure hits the side of the blister, it's creating energy. And then the energy that the figure produced by moving is going to hit the bubble. And the bubble will probably end up shattering or breaking because it's dispersing that energy. If the foam insert is tight around the bubble, what I'm hoping happens is that the figure hits the blister. But when it hits that blister, instead of it breaking the energy is going to transfer into the foam, which can then disperse it without really having any consequence to the bubble itself. If the foam is in multiple pieces, I'm not really sure how that will affect its ability to absorb the impact and disperse the energy correctly, because what I'd hate to have someone do is open it up and see that the foam insert, that quarter panel we'll call it, to see that it moved up or out or didn't connect correctly into the puzzle piece and it sort of became worthless. So it's one of the things we're juggling. Obviously, the easy answers could also be that we only produce, we'll call it majority style bubbles, right? We'll work on Tri-Logo. We'll have a, a New Hope ESB, Return of the Jedi, Tri-Logo, and see where it goes from there. Or let the market itself dictate. I mean, if I noticed that, I got a lot of people asking me for a specific bubble for, you know, 20 back square Meccanos then I'll produce them. I mean, and there are some that'll never happen. Like I would never make one for a Sears vacuum form figure. Cause there's like maybe 40 of them in the world <laughs> yeah. that would make no sense. And, uh, since, you know, Mark Yao probably owns three quarters of them. I don't think he really is going to pay for me to tool those out, but like any project, like we're still in its infancy, I'm going to see what the market tells me to do. And I'm going to just react appropriately to it. And I could make as many of these and as many designs as I want, but if I make something that can fit any possible scenario of carded figure, I'm probably looking at a cost of, you know, 8 to $10 per bubble style. I mean, that's unreasonable. I don't expect people to pay $10 to ship a $50 figure. So that's where, you know, we, we get into that cost factor versus what's practical. We're shooting for a target price of under $5. We want to make it affordable, simple, and the momentum that the collecting community is on right now. My personal opinion on the price points might be that I think we're in a little bit of a bubble, but I don't think the popularity is going to stop. And I don't think the transfer of carded figures from collector to collector is going to slow down anytime soon. So I want to be cognizant of that and make sure that this is something that's affordable to anybody, reasonably priced to the point where it becomes almost like an adopted standard. Do you envisage the form being easy to trim? Yeah, actually, it would be. Something you could easily move around with like an X-Acto knife. Obviously, because it's an insertable square, most of the foam that we've used so far would be easily played with an X-Acto knife. So if people wanted to custom and modify, they could do it. On the off chance, your thought is to make something produced with the smallest bubble, and then people can cut away to make whatever size they want. It kind of contradicts my philosophy because we're human, right? We make mistakes, and on the off chance you cut something too big or too small, my fear would be that people start complaining and placing the blame on the case. So just to give you a for instance, if you cut the bubble too small or the square out too small, you shove the figure in, the foam is now grabbing onto the blister, and then when someone goes and pulls it out the back, card back goes, but the bubble, which is now sort of being held by the foam, it might rip it apart. My fear would be someone does that and goes, oh, these cases are terrible. 
it just ripped the card back and the blister apart. Meanwhile, the truth might lie in the fact that when someone cut it, they cut it a little too small. And then conversely, obviously, if you cut it too big and leave too much room, it becomes worthless because, again, that transfer of energy from the figure into the blister, it might punch through and be laying next to the foam because the guy left a uh, you know a half-inch gap in between the two things. Or you just get about wives to cut it because they never make mistakes. <laughs> I got I got 18 years under my belt, so I hear you. I was looking at the back of the piece of foam, and there, there seems to be a cutout about the same size as a card back. What's the purpose of that cutout? Oh, that, um, that's fantastic. I'm glad that you noticed, and I hope other people are noticing it too, because believe it or not, that's kind of the cornerstone of the idea. So the reason that that cutout is there is done very intentionally. When you have the cardboard, we're going to go back to that homemade solution for a second. When you have that cardboard square with the foam around it and the bubble wrap, and you're making sure the bubble is safe and making sure that if the figure impacts the bubble, it doesn't crack through. The one thing you're not doing is you're not synchronizing the movement of the blister with the movement of the card back. And what I mean by that is, When it's in the mail or it's on a plane or it's being transported, obviously they're vibrating, right? I mean, that's that's common sense. But the weight of the bubble and the card back could be vibrating at a little bit different speeds or they could be shifting due to like a fall. And that's when you see the bubble remove itself from the card back. And I know I'm saying if anyone's listening and like enough that I know I'm going in between using the word bubble and blister. I haven't decided which word I like more, so I tend to flip flop between the two of them. But um, the reason that that, in, that that cutout is there is what we want to accomplish is I want the card back itself to be completely in sync with the movement of the blister. So when you lay it down like that, the card back itself has nowhere to go. So it can't make any dramatic shift more than about a sixteenth of an inch because that's what we're doing. A card back is a six by nine. So we're going to make that insert six and a sixteenth by nine and a sixteenth. And that sixteenth of an inch is just enough that it's not holding it too tight because, again, you have to have that little bit of movement so it can move in and out of the foam successfully. But if you drop the card back, while it's in the foam, they don't have a chance for the card back to go left and the bubble to go right or for the impact of it falling for the weight of the figure to actually pull the bubble off because the card back didn't fall, at the, you know, didn't have that same momentum. This will keep it static. So the best analogy I could almost give you, and it's kind of silly, if you froze a card back inside of a block of ice, the card back can't move except in exact relation to the blister, right? Because they're in a solid state, they have nowhere to go, and there's no place for one to go in a different direction or to move at a faster velocity. The immobilization of the card back and keeping any movement on it in a complete relationship with the blister, I really think that's going to save people a lot of grief from things pulling themselves apart. What size are we looking at here, dimension-wise? Because I think in the UK, anything over 150 millimeters in height gets classed as a medium-sized parcel. In a perfect world, what we're hoping to do is be smaller than a star case. So if a star case meets your needs, this will be thinner than that. So the prototype uh, right now, we're hoping to keep a height of one and a half inches. 
So it would be 3.81 centimeters in height. And then the card back itself would only be about a, about a half of an inch bigger than the card back itself because the foam is going to be a, a, a 16th of an inch surrounding it, right, larger than the card back itself. And then we have a, um, a cardboard sleeve that the foam is going to slide into, which is about going to add about another quarter of an inch. So the height should be great. And uh, like I said, if you ship in a star case right now, this is going to be a thinner version of a star case. Are you planning on putting out some guidance of how to pack these inside boxes? Yeah, absolutely. There's two stages. There's going to be how to pack the figure and then how to pack the sleeve. How to pack the figure is idiot-proof. That was my philosophy, was to make something that there's no instructions. Put figure in foam, (laughs) close foam, put in cardboard sleeve. There you go. As far as what to ship that in, we're still going to recommend packing peanuts or bubble wrapping around it. I mean, it's not an indestructible case, but no great length. So I would say confidently, if you had one of these sleeves, you could throw it in a box with some packing peanuts around it and you would be good to go or like a, a decent amount of bubble wrap. This one might be a little bit naughty, but what about a bubble that already has a crack, whether it's a small or a large crack? You know, that's not as bad of a question as you think. That's one of the things that I contemplated. Right now in my collection, I have one, two, I'm looking at them right. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in my office, so I'm actually staring around the room. But I've got at least three figures that have bubble cracks as the result of shipping damage. I would probably tell you that when you're packing them, you'd have to be a little safe and make sure that if the blister has, like if the head popped through and now the bubble's top is almost like a flower because the plastic is facing up. You know, you'd have to push those down and make sure that none of the splintering of the blister is grabbing the foam. So if, if your blister looks like the Sarlacc and it's got tentacles sticking up from the top of the bubble from the plastic, you'd have to push those down. But I would actually say it would probably be the safest way to ship those would be using the foam. There's obviously less energy transfer because now that the blister's already busted open, its integrity's been compromised, which sounds bad. But on the plus side, if the bubble shoots up in the figure, it, you know, if it's going upwards, it's not going to take its head out. You, know, you can't break it again. Um, but I would think you'd be able to confidently ship them without any issue. You've sold me on these. When do you envisage these becoming available? If we get the funding that we need, and I know by the time this gets published, it'll be past that point. But I have prototypes being made now. And if I like the design, then they're ready to go and tool them and they can probably knock them out within 30 to 60 days. Wow. Um, yeah, it's, I was surprised too. I thought it was going to be a much longer process. From there, we'd have to figure out distribution. So initially, I'm probably going to handle that myself. And if we see a rise in popularity and, and the market you know, is accepting of them, I'm probably going to look to do a UK distribution to handle the EU. You know, and then we would look at Australia to handle, we'll call it Asia Pacific. I'd handle North America. And then we're probably, you know, the model I'm looking at is probably selling them in packs of 10 just to keep it affordable from a shipping perspective. I mean, the good thing is that they're light. If they're empty, they really don't weigh that much. So my goal would be to hit that sweet spot where I can ship, and this is obviously going to be different for the different parts of the world, but just to say from the US's perspective, we ship in, I could probably get 10 of them shipped at a, you know, just a few pounds. Uh, weight, not 
currency. So it would it wouldn't be that unaffordable to ship bigger bulks of them. We'll see how that plays out. I mean, I'm hoping that we get the funding. As of right now, we're I don't want to say we're pacing terribly, but we've got 13 days to go, and we're at about 40% funded. What I'm hoping happens is we get a rush at the end, uh, which generally happens with Kickstarters. Uh, we see, and these are all or nothing projects, so it's either fully funded or you get nothing. I'm hoping that we get there, and if we do. All the money goes right into the project. I mean, the tooling of these alone is probably going to take, uh, I think the guy said 400 plus per bubble style. So let's say we knock out, you know, five of them. I mean, there's two grand in tooling costs right there. Or I might produce two, like maybe we do a single stem bubble and a tri-logo standard size bubble. Like I'll look up whatever the majority of figures are and then maybe do a production run that I can sell inexpensively to just get them out onto the market if they are accepted and they work, you know, go from there. I think if it gets there, I don't see anyone really saying, you know what, this is ridiculous. I don't need this. We've all had a horror story here and there. And when you consider the fact that it only takes one damaged item that you lose out on that would have probably paid for 10 or 20 of these cases, it makes a lot of sense. It's it's very akin to the philosophy of the gunnery itself. You only need to buy one repro weapon that you can't get your money back on and all the savings you made by risking it and buying, you know, anonymous eBay lots or something like that. You very easily can hand that money back because you didn't take the time to do your homework. So this is kind of in the same vein. You might not think you need them, but if one card gets ruined that you have to put out of pocket to reimburse the buyer, that money might have been enough to buy 15 or 20 of these cases, and you know, ultimately it would have been um, a better deal for you. I can see a situation whereby if I was buying an item from the States and the guy was going to ship it over, and this guy's not a dealer, he's a collector who has a couple of card of figures, I could contact you or whoever the distribution place is to send one of these sleeves down to this guy first before he passes it on to me. That is a very, very smart idea. One thing that we might, (laughs) might, might, might look into would be exact situation like that where we would act as a intermediary. So let's say you're more of a buyer than a seller. You might come and say to me, hey, John, I'm going to buy... 20 cases. Keep them in your house. I'll tell you where to ship them and when to ship them. And we sort of act as a logistics provider for you. So you buy stuff on eBay, you contact the guy, go, a sleeve is on its way. You call me up or you email me, say, yep, take one of my sleeves and send it out there. And we can provide that service for you, probably just for the cost of the actual shipping itself. And then if we need a box or something like that. So that's probably step 497 and we're on step three (laughs) but we want to you know doing that kind of concierge style service all goes into that value proposition and that we're looking to build up so anything that we can do that ultimately saves carded figures um, whether it be from novices which your example is fantastic you have people who come out of the woodwork that have a box of figures that they have no idea what they're worth they throw them on ebay 
they sell them and they move them on. There's no nostalgia there for them. There's no real vested interest in making sure these survive, except financially. We might look into something like that. I mean, I could almost guarantee you that we'd be able to handle it unless it got so big that uh, that I need to bring someone on. But then my son's 15. He said he's looking for a summer job. So <laughs> you know, who knows? Maybe I could throw him in the basement and make him my uh, make him my day laborer. We'll, we'll see where that goes. Now, finally, John Paul, I've seen a video of this product in action. Where can our listeners go and see that video? I did a pretty decent chat on the Imperial Gunnery Facebook site. And if you go to imperialgunneryforum.com, it's, uh, I have it posted there as well. It basically is just me talking, so I'll apologize if you have to finish listening to me and then having to listen to me again. But I kind of go through it. I do show where it happened, and I've been live on the Australian Facebook site where there was Q&A, where I talked about it a little bit more. And then I always encourage people to reach out to me. You can either email me at uh, DarthBerrazing at ImperialGunneryForum.com, or you can reach me on Facebook. Um, I'm always happy to answer questions, and um, I look for feedback too. So if anyone listening to this feels that I said something that could be improved upon, or if you feel there's a flaw that maybe I'm not noticing, absolutely reach out to me. I really do value any kind of feedback. So not to be too corny, but we really do care. Thank you very much, John Paul. And I really look forward to seeing these products in the market. I can see these being the standard. I can see fewer people talking about star cases and more people talking about... Actually, have you got a name for these yet? I don't think I've noticed one. We do. It's a little cheeky, but it's called Safe Sleeves. S-A-F-E. Right now, the acronym is the Safe Action Figure Enclosure. So we got a little, you know, we wanted to kind of play off the mini rigs where the names actually mean something. So we're going to probably go with safe. So secure action figure enclosure sleeves. Okay. So So you can ship it safe. (laughs) Thanks very much, John Paul. That was fantastic. Uh, Rich, thank you. I appreciate you having me back on. The moon with the rebel base will be in range in 30 minutes. Rich, tell us about your Mexican mystery. This is something that Grant actually spotted in one of the Liddy Leddy groups. And a Mexican collector called Antonio Dac had posted a couple of pages from a magazine. And it was fantastic. And I'm really glad that Grant actually shared this because it's one of the key bits of information that was missing in the hobby. And I'm really surprised that this hasn't went right across all of the collecting groups. Now, he posted on there, friends, I'm sharing some information which was found in USW magazine and in Primera Convención de Coleccionistas, which was released in 2003, which was an interview with Alejandro Becerra talking about Liddy Leddy products. Now, Grant. Yeah, I would just say that it was put on to me by our Swedish friend Bjorn Terin. He uh, contacted me the other day, so I didn't actually find this. I wasn't actually part of the Facebook group that it was on. So, uh, yeah, the kudos should go out to him rather than myself. But it's, uh, do, do you believe that this article is actually legit in terms of what they've, what they've discovered in it? Yeah, I do. I, I really do. The way that this was released and the fact that he's actually willing to sell both the USW magazine and the, the other magazine, which I'm not going to pronounce a second time, I've probably butchered it the first time. We'll better discuss what the article actually covers for the, our listeners who haven't actually read it or even heard anything about it. Do you remember way back in episode 21, which I think... Actually, I'm going to put you on the spot, Stu. Episode 21, who was our guest? Um, That would have been 21, 21, 21. So I'm just counting back. 21 would be 
Okay, a clue. Hoth Storm Cooper. Oh, uh, Mark Cooper, yeah. Yeah. So in episode 21, we talked about some Lily Lady um, carded figures that appeared on a Facebook post. Can you remember this? The Lily Lady MPVO contractor find. It was a photograph of a guy with, I think he had possibly a never seen before, nobody knew whether there existed Lily Lady card backs. Remember the discussion that we had and we saw the picture of the guy who the camera was pointing down from above and he had a range of leddy card backs from the Empire Strikes Back release. I don't know if you can remember it, but um, I think he had the Darth Vader, the Chewie, the Han Hoth, the Imperial Stormtrooper, Yoda, C-3PO, Auto-D2 and the Rebel Commander, I think. And, you know, everyone was saying, are oh, they fake? We don't know. The guy just came up with no way with this fantastic shot. Although we said, there's a photograph, the proof's there now. I think a lot of people looked at it and thought, hmm, I'm still not convinced. But I think it's important now to go into this magazine. And I'm just going to read out some passages from the interview, which I think is really interesting. And, and thankfully, Antonio's translated this from um, the Spanish that it was written in, in English, so that we can understand it. And what it says is, is that more than 17 years have gone since Leddy closed the stores. In between that time, the mystery surrounding the Star Wars line was growing. Collectors speculated about how many figures were produced, which cards were used, the existence of the cards. And 24 years later, prepare yourself to know the truth. So after a lot of searching, huge mystery, the existence of the El Imperial contract, Taka cards, speculation, memories, blah de blah nobody knew. And then this article from 2003 was published. This is an interview with the guy who actually worked in the Leddy factory. The first 10 figures did indeed arrive in Mexico at the end of 1981. This collection included Luke Skywalker Bespin, the Imperial Trooper, which was mostly known as a Snow Trooper, Rebel Commander, Han Solo Hoth, Leia Bespin, Darth Vader, Chewbacca, C-3PO, Auto-D2 and Yoda. Two figures of this line were never issued again for the Mexican market, which were the Imperial Trooper and the Han Solo Hoth. All ten figures were totally produced in our country. The moulds had been imported from the Asian Kenner factory. The art used on the generic cards in these figures were packed partially with the International Empire poster, and I believe we talked about that before. I don't know if it was in episode 21 or whether it was on another episode, but we talked about the artwork of these cardbacks being something that was unusual coming from an international poster with the only figure-to-figure difference being the sticker which said the name of each said figure. This line lasted only a few months, thus being the reason why this line turned into a kind of myth amongst collectors. But the Imperial line did not last long and soon made way to the El Retorno de Jedi line. So there you go, guys. What more evidence is needed to say that the Imperial line was produced in Mexico and did run, even if it was only for two or three months? I think for me, that's case closed. It's really interesting. Uh, maybe we should link the article so people can see the images of the figures that are actually shown there. I think it's the Imperial Commander, Death Squad Commander, and the TIE Pilot on the Lily Letty Empire cards. But the condition of the cards is immaculate. That's what really surprised me. I mean, they're factory fresh, aren't they? Yeah. Are those, um, I think the TIE Fighter Pilot and the other cards that you mentioned, those were mock-up samples, weren't they, for figures that weren't released? Yeah, I believe so. Am I right in thinking that the, because you've got the photograph of the gentleman there that they're interviewing, and he seems to have a wall of them behind him. Yeah, Grant, so I think the, the photograph that you're talking about is a guy called Frank Uribe, or Uribe, a collector from Guadalajara. 
um, who <laughs> he seems to be a kind of Mexican version of you know our Gary Smith or you know some of the huge collectors who but he's focusing on Larry Carbacks and it's fantastic to know that there are guys all around the world that people aren't aware of who don't do Facebook and aren't in forums who've got these insane collections and I'd love to see more photographs of that and I'm just really surprised that not all of the groups are talking about this article because I think if this perhaps had been posted on the SWCA or if it had been posted on some of the bigger groups it would be getting a lot of traction right now. Yeah, I'm quite surprised that um, there's a more... Because, you know, when the Empire cardbacks came out that was on Rebel Scum, that, that got quite a lot of traction, didn't it? People were interested in that. I mean, I'd never seen them to that point, but this is like an, a, an enormous collection of them. That's why I questioned it, because it was such a such a huge collection. It I thought it could only be fake. I can understand what you're saying, but to me it makes perfect sense. Mexican guy, black hole collection. If it wasn't for the Star Wars Home UK, we wouldn't see a lot of Gary Smith's collection, and he's got an insane collection. Though if somebody hasn't joined the forum... And perhaps there are Mexican Star Wars forums, and back I'm pretty sure there'll be Mexican Star Wars forums that this guy has probably posted loads of images on that, you know, may be private, and we've never seen those images before. It, it makes perfect sense to me. I, I'm sold on the fact that this is genuine. But it, but it also changes. I mean, if you look at the old uh, Rebel Scum forum, uh, where you've got, like, the rarest figure on a card back, well, if these exist, these these would definitely change the, the rarity guiders on, on some of the action figures. I mean... It, Looking at the TIE pilot, I'm, you know, I didn't even know that existed. So that yeah. was definitely the rarest one. Yeah. And that, that guy that we talked about on episode 21, he was missing two of the rumoured figures, which I think were Luke and Leah Bespin. And this guy had them, so they could possibly be the only ones in existence. And from memory, I think there were only a couple of card backs that had been found, and it was deduced from the backs of the card backs what the other figures were. I think I've got that right. So, so did he rescue them from the closing, the the factory closing down or something? Don't have any information on that. But what I was led to believe was um, that this guy was, you know, just a Mexican collector uh, who was going round a lot of the the Mexican toy shops and just buying up all of the stock that he could find. That's no, it's just crazy that it seems to have gone under the radar. Or does everyone else know it? And I'm the last one to find out. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably been discussed in the archive cast four times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're gonna look like complete douches now, aren't we? Get loads of feedback saying yeah, everyone knows this. It's, it's famous. What's this guy planning to do with them? Is he just gonna keep them, or is this now all surfacing just to build up some interest potentially to float them? The way it looks is this was a 2003 photograph. Okay, so it's a long time ago now, and this Antonio Dark has just posted a magazine article on a Star Wars Lily Letty Facebook group, saying, guys, has anybody seen this article before? And he's looking to sell, or he has copies of the magazine. Just to show you how old this magazine is, on the front of it, it's got the um, Slave One chasing the Jedi fighter from Attack of the Clones. So it's, it's back in that era. This is a photograph from 14, 15 years ago that has only just surfaced now. It looks like a, a Mexican version of Star Wars Insider to me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It, mm-hmm. it looks legit. But maybe everyone's got this in their collection and it's just us two that haven't got a clue about it. Death Star approaching. Estimated time to firing range, 15 minutes. Toy Tony gets active, Rich. Gym memberships, I'm imagining. Not quite. This was a post from Ed Grant on Stars Forum UK. And he talked about Toy Tony selling his unused mint on card stock. And he provided a link to his 
eBay shop, which for those who aren't aware, um, eBay seller Mars King is one of the Titoni accounts that we're aware of on eBay. And it seems that he's got quite active in the last few months. He seems to be selling a lot of Luke Bespins and Imperial Stormtroopers. Now, why do you think those two figures are sending alarm bells ringing? Two of the common figures that he was faking? That's correct. Two of the common figures that's alleged he he was faking. Now, it's interesting to note that the Luke Bespin is exactly the same PPB variant as the ones that have been found on the Toy Tony Luke Bespin mocks. We're not so certain of the Imperial Stormtrooper because we haven't got any great photos on them, but the Luke Bespin is very, very clear. I mean, to me, I'm I'm a, I'm a little bit out of touch with loose prices lately because the prices have been going crazy in different places. But £45 still seems a bit on the high side for me. And I think he was selling the Imperial Stormtroopers at actual auction. He wasn't specifying a buy-it-now price. And I think these were those were hitting around about the £20 mark. He's also selling a lot of weapons. I mean, a ridiculous amount of weapons. Look, Farm Boy Sabres. He had about 12 of those for sale the last couple of weeks. All of them priced at £35. Every single one, £35. So you must have a lot of Luke Farm Boy Sabres. Also, Luke Bespin, lightsabers, green and yellow. Lots of them selling for £19. So it suggests, and it, it led to the story, that when the Palatoy factory was closing down, Toy Tony certainly went up there and basically filled his truck up with what he could get. What is it hypothesising that Toy Tony may have, and what is it that we're looking to get? I think he's probably just feeling comfortable now that to everything that's happened, no one's touched him, no one's been able to do anything, and he's just like, right, I'll start selling again. I don't care. Whatever. Do you think it's t- it's time for him now to offload his stock and say, you know, I've had enough. What, is he pushing 70 now? He's about the same age as you, Jeff. Well, he's been... Tr- <laughs> he's been drip feeding stuff anyway, hasn't he? People have been... I know people who have been buying carded figures, legit carded figures from him. Uh, but in the same breath, I also know people who won't ever buy anything from him ever again, regardless of if it's something they really, really want in their collection, just on general principle. It's a catch-42, isn't it? You refuse to buy from this seller, and then all of the legit stuff he does have goes into a black hole, and we it loses. It's not in the community. So is it better to be in the community's hands rather than catch-22? Sorry, Rich, yeah. <laughs> um, better <laughs> to be thinking, in the... He's just taking a bit out of my age. <laughs> 42, you wish. Um, <laughs> yeah, is it better for the items to be in the proper hands or not to give this bloke any money it's it's a difficult one isn't it i'm sure there's going to be a high market for the card backs he's got unused card backs it's interesting that you brought that up i just want to go back to something i just said it's um there's no doubt whatsoever that what he's selling right now is legit everything that's on there you know is is, is absolutely top quality i think he's probably went to the palatoy factory and just bought a job lot um, and fill the truck up and just give them a set amount. So it wouldn't surprise me if he's actually got these for, you know, pence rather than pounds. Going on the card backs then, why aren't we seeing the card backs trickling out now? Probably too soon. That's probably purely it. I think we're never going to see them. Certainly not in Toy Tony's lifetime because if they did start trickling them out, that to me is a sign that he's holding up saying guilty. I wonder whether he'll sell them as a job lot behind closed doors to someone else. I think that's exactly what he's going to do. I know it sounds really awful and cynical, but I th- I really th- only think that the kind of people like us give a, a damn about this. I think the majority of these collectors that come into the, the collecting world in the last three or four years won't give a monkeys. They just buy them. 
I really do think that. I don't think they care that much. Did you see the guy on Facebook who actually said that the Tony scandal didn't exist? And he said that Jason Smith and Jason Joyner were the same person. And, <laughs> and <laughs> it's, it's absolutely comical, this guy. And he, he's, he was wanting to buy everybody's toy Tonys up and saying, you know, don't get ripped off by these guys selling high-ended figures for knockdown prices. <laughs> it just shows how deluded some people actually are. But they, but they will, but people you know, won't care. So lots of people will just buy them. I mean, I think if he puts the cards on eBay tomorrow and someone can say, yeah, they're genuine, but it's, it, this is the guy who did it, they they just buy them. I really do think that. I think people just don't care about things like that, that uh, anymore. I think they just go, well, I want that, I'll have it. If he has got the card backs, if he has any left, they're not going to go cheap because if you look at his carded figures that he's selling, they are going for quite high. Um, I think it was a tri-logo Han Hoff for somewhere around about £280. Now, I don't know exactly yeah. how much a trilogue Hanhoff goes for, but that seems high to me. If he came out and said, I've got 100 card backs left, there's no doubt whatsoever that people will be falling over themselves to buy them. They will buy yeah. them. Yeah, I really think I, that. Yeah. But I still yeah. think somebody will then go to the police and, and go look to prosecute. So, personally, I think if and when the card backs do appear, I do agree with Pete, people will be falling over themselves to buy them. But I don't think we're going to see them as for as long as Toy Tony's still here. I don't know if any of you have noticed this, but um, there was a post put on Stars Forum UK today to say that um, Jim Stevenson is is really unwell. Um, So there was a kind of, you know, although I didn't know the guy, it's sad to hear some of these older collectors who did a lot for the hobby in the 90s, um, running toy fairs and attending all these cons up and down the country. So Jim, from all of us at the Vintage Rebellion, may the force be with you. Death Star will be arranged in five minutes. Okay, celebration gets closer. What is it now? Four weeks? You lucky buggers. Uh, Rich? Yeah, so celebration does get closer. Sadly, we don't have any news on the collecting track information, and I'd love to see what panels are going to be at celebration, and I was really hoping to do a little chat on that, but unfortunately that information's not out. I fully expect that as soon as we release this podcast, within 10 minutes, there'll be some major announcement on it, which is, seems to be how our look goes. But we'll still have lots of celebration yeah. news to bring you. So, first of all, I've spent 15 minutes or so catching up with Ian Sanderson from GW Acrylic USA, who has a stand at Celebration. So, to tell you about your stall and what you're going to find there, let's cut to an interview with Ian now. I'm delighted to be joined by GW Acrylic US representative and owner of Ian's Display Accessories to discuss his celebration plans. It's a good day to you, Ian. Good morning, Richard, or good afternoon in your world. Yeah, it's afternoon here now. Actually, I don't know if I told you this, but did Chris, I want to say, force it to tell you that in Celebration London we announced to probably 100 people there that we booted you out of our country because you invented (laughs) the word mock? (laughs) <laughs> it's, are you sure it's not Chris Georgidis? Or Georgidis? No, it could have been Chris G, but I think it was Chris Fawcett. He hates that word. I When I was over in North Carolina, I was about six, seven miles away from him. And so I, I got to see lots of his collection. And I think probably on about the fourth or four, fifth visit, he was telling me about the word mock and how he hated it. And I was like, oh, might have been something to do with me. So he still let me come back. Yeah, uh, well, it's cool then. So, 34 days to celebration then, Ian. Is that all it is? <laughs> That's all it is, I know. I was, I was scared when I saw that myself today. I remember when it was 50 and thinking it was, uh, thinking, oh dear, so 34 days. I've got a lot of work to do. I've just literally submitted the uh, the artwork off the celebration brochure today. So, I'm, I'm slowly getting there. 
Oh, cool. So what can you tell us about 1515? What does that mean for our listeners? 1515. It's your booth number. <laughs> you see that you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Um, what can I tell you about it? Well, it's going to be big. It's uh, 20 by 20 by 10. It cost me a lot of money, so everybody has to come and buy something. It's going to be full of a lot of acrylic. I have saying just then i've just seen in uh, a big pallet or a big container full of shiny boxes so we've got all the new ones we've got the speeder bike the land speeder the x-wing and the snow speeder i've got the the loose 12 inch figure cases and then we've got all the all the old favorites as well so i am going to have lots and lots on display Oh, great, because last month when we talked to Jamie, he wasn't sure whether you would have all of the stock there available. So everything we talked about, the loose 12-inch display cases, glass leet, corded cases. Might not have glass light. We we may have an issue on those ones. Uh, somebody might have got a uh, a measurement wrong. Oh, and the, the die-cast boxed? Diecast will be there, yeah. I uh, I even bought my own Millennium Falcon to uh, to put in them. So I'll have the diecast there, and then I'm also hoping to get a little goodie box from Christian in between beforehand of our new new products that even I can't tell you about because I don't really know what they are yet. So so I'm hoping to have some samples of those available. Now think about the celebration London. Will you have any displays available, such as what you had in London, so we can see what the figures will actually look like in their cases? Yeah, that's the plan. I mean, London was a, London was a bit of a different one because that was that was Christians, and that was the way he wanted to run it. And I think we we had this conversation on one of the previous podcasts. Originally, I think his plan was just to you know display the items and get people interested in the product, whereas when I I, I wanted to go there and sell. So we, we kind of made a bit of a compromise. So it was a lot of, you know, items on display. This time around, I'm I'm going to try and bring a bit more in there. I'm going to have some stands. I'm going to have some of the ship stands. A few more bits that are, are to do with what I sell as well as the acrylic. But I'm just, I've literally, uh, I've got, I think, four display cases sorted out. I've got to take a trip to Ikea and buy a couple of detolfs. So we're going to have a lot of, you know, a lot on display one of the best things about my job is getting to see everybody's display. So I think one of the one of the things I plan to do is is make a bit of a, a collage of some of the displays that I've been sent in. You know, give people some ideas on uh, on what what works for them. Yeah, it's a great idea. That will you have any signs or clearly stating figures are not for sale? <laughs> oh dear, I think I I think I could have sold Christian's blue snaggletooth about oh fifty or sixty times. So, yes, that was a grievous error we made in London. So I won't be making that one again. <laughs> no figures for sale. Hey, just focusing on the GW acrylic for a second. So as you're aware, box cases are bulky items. So could I go to your stall, place an order for you to either keep them for me until the end of the day or the end of the, the whole celebration or arrange for you to deliver them? Yes and yes. I mean, that's what we did uh, in London because, you know, obviously... You know, I'll be walking around uh, around celebration with a box of ten uh, Cardiff figure cases. So, absolutely no problem with people collecting at the end of the day, and yeah, happy to sort out um, shipping. I mean, obviously, 
if we get people from the UK, I'll direct them through buying the stock in, uh, in the UK and we'll get Jamie to sort that out. Um, and obviously, same for anybody in Europe. And then America, rest of the world, I'm happy to arrange shipping on, on things like that. And I'm sure if a few of my, my closest and dearest friends speak to me very nicely, then I might be able to ship some other bits that they, uh, they purchase as well. Oh, that's that's very kind of you, uh, Ian, because I think you do seem to be the uh, the go-to postman pot guy for quite a few people over here. <laughs> yeah, you can ask Grant about the two great big standees that uh, that ended up going back uh, at the turn of the year. <laughs> so, and I think I think the other day I shipped a uh, shipped an uh, imperial shuttle back to someone else as well. So, uh, <laughs> postman Pat, I like it. Right, looking at your um, display stands and, and your accessories, because yep. I mean, even I've known you for um, for too long now, and <laughs> some of your, I, I was fully aware of all of the stands that you sold, but I wasn't aware of you know some of the the baggies and other things that you've got available. So, looking at your stands and display accessories, will you have the full range available for that as well for people to look at? Yeah, I mean. <sighs> At this moment in time, things just move so fast. I need about 10 me's just to do all the various different jobs. But I'm, I, I have to admit, I've not been very good at getting everything out to everybody. So this is another reason for me to do this celebration. It's to show everything that I do. I'll get plenty of pictures of the stall and put them up on the various Facebook groups that I have as well. So yeah, you should see you should see the full range. And then obviously there's, you know, there's things that come along each time. I mean... For example, with the stands, I've just sorted out display stands now for the hand blaster, you know, the vintage hand blaster. Mm-hmm. So I'll have those available. I've got one for the biker scout blaster. And I'm hoping to have a range of the die cast stands as well for the loose figures. So um, loose figures, loose ships. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's evolving. And, and realistically, my aim is to bring things to you guys that people ask me for, you know. I mean, I, I keep getting asked for a ProBot stand. I keep getting asked for a stand for the hand carboner, uh, a stand for the Dinoga, you know. And every single one of them, I'd love to just, you know, whoop, there we go. But they will come. But, you know, it all takes time. So you said they wish there were 10 of you, but does one Neil equal five of you at least? <laughs> well, he's about half my size, so <laughs> so maybe twenty Neil. No, Neil, Neil, Neil will be bringing his beautiful dulcet Norfolk tones to the Americans. I, I think they'll be very impressed with that. He uh, he told me the other day he's been working out, so I might take him down to Miami Beach and show him off down there. <laughs> but yes, my uh, my partner in crime is uh, is getting a free holiday with <laughs> or a free working holiday. So he'll be out there, and then um, I also believe I'm bringing in Mr. Osborne as well. So we've we've got diverse. I've got I'm catering for everybody here. So Todd Osborne will be uh, be hanging around as well. Excellent, because in celebration, your JW stand was also a meeting point for other guests. I think if I remember right, Matthias had um, signing sessions going on. Do you have any plans for going beyond? Yeah, I need to speak to Matthias and see if he wants to do that again. I was speaking to Javier, see if he wants his book there. I suppose I should speak to Stefan as well. I mean, I, I have no problems with that. I, you know, I mean, from my point of view, my aim is obviously to sell lots of GW acrylic, but I'm, I'm there at celebration to have a good time and to to meet up with people. You know, I miss the furthest froms and uh, and things like that. So. This is my opportunity to see people that I haven't seen for a while 
and and also to meet lots of new people you know i mean our facebook world is what it is now and you, you know you feel a lot closer to people because because of facebook but you know some of these people i've never met so that you know Anybody is more than welcome to come by and stop by, say hello, have a chat. I know Neil starts rolling his eyes when I'm talking to the, you know, the umpteenth person who, uh, who recognises me or, or, or wants to come and say hello. So bring him on. I was going to ask questions actually about people coming up to you. So you're, you're happy and you're available for anybody who's got a questions, perhaps about be, uh, bespoke storage requests, advice on how to display products or any other kind of general query. I'm on Facebook 24-7 and the number of PMs and everything that I get on a daily basis and it's not all just about buying things. I'm part of this community. I want to be part of this community. GW Acrylic is part of this community. I mean, Christian wouldn't have been able to get things to where he got them without the support of everybody. So, and, you know, I think Jamie and myself have just taken that forward. So, absolutely no problems at all no questions too daft i've asked millions of daft questions in my life before and i'd like to think i'm quite an open and uh, welcoming person so come and say hello gw acrylic generally in the us then is it you know how, how do you think you've actually made it there now or you've still got inroads to make in certain states or does the brand need further pushing I don't think anything ever makes it. I mean, even Apple, you know, or or Microsoft or or whatever still want to get more sales, don't they? So I don't think you can ever say you've made it. I mean, the response I've had from the American public and in, in general has been just amazing. Um, you know, I mean, they, they, they don't sometimes understand what I, what I'm saying, you know, I mean, I tell them I'm knackered and they just look at me weird, but in general, I, I, I think it's been fantastic. We've we've come at a good point. We've come at a point where carded figures, especially, are, are just going ridiculously in price. And it, why would you put one in a star case? You know, why would you pay two hundred dollars for a, a card and put it in a two dollar star case? So you know, we've been lucky in that that respect. But in terms of in terms of have I cracked it? Of course not. In terms of am I happy with where we are? A hundred percent. And for all of us Brits who are coming over to see you, is there anything from Britain that you want us to sneak and have a suitcases for you? <laughs> tea bags, tea bags. They don't do tea over here. Well, they do, but they make it with, oh, they make it cold and, ugh. So tea bags, LucasAid I miss. You, you don't realise, but LucasAid's a bugger for you guys to bring over because uh, you can't get it in your hand luggage unless you buy it afterwards and, I don't recommend putting LucasAid in your, your suitcases either. So perhaps LucasAid will give a miss. Chocolate as well. I, you know, I love America. I love Americans, but their chocolate's bloody awful. <laughs> I'm just really looking forward to I'm looking forward to seeing all you guys. I mean, I haven't seen you now since London. I'm looking forward to meeting everyone. And, you know, I mean, I can't stress enough just how good the social side of this hobby is. You know, what you guys do on the, the podcast is fantastic. The get-togethers, I mean, I, I like you say, I miss furthest from the passion. Those coming to Celebration are going to have a fantastic time. Might be the odd beer or two, hopefully a bit of vintage for your collection. And they say, come and see me and buy a uh, buy a nice box for your, uh, for your new purchase. 
<laughs> okay, pleasure as always, Tony, Ian, and we look forward to meeting you in 34 days. 34 days. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go, guys. Great interview with Ian, one of the top guys in the hobby. Now, other things that happened at Celebration that we're aware of, and one of them we've talked about a couple of times now, is just running Stormtrooper. So, Jez, running Stormtrooper, the last time we had you on, last time we had you on as if you were a guest, <laughs> the last time we talked about it... <laughs> The last time we talked about it, you were falling over yourself, talking about an email that you received from Reed Pop to say that he'd been accepted to have a booth. Is everything going well for that, Jez? I would say the glass is half full. It's not brimming. It, I've got a few issues. Yet, yeah, just to rapidly bring people up, I'm running dressed as a stormtrooper for the Make-A-Wish Foundation. That's what it's all about, and that's what I'm doing. Yeah, I'm going to have a booth at Celebration, but one of the primary things which I was going to do was going to be running half a marathon each day, all four days, uh, on a treadmill in the booth. Uh, But at the moment, I just cannot get hold of a treadmill. I must have emailed about 12 different uh, gyms, fitness equipment, people, uh, explaining all about the charity, explaining everything, and explaining that you know they they get some good karma coming their way, some some good uh, positive sort of media and, and shout outs on various different social media platforms and whatnot, and uh, no one's interested. I'm really really surprised. I thought that there would be a little bit more of a sort of um, a charity feeling about the place, but uh, Reed Popper up for it. The OCC. C is up for it. However, I cannot get hold of a treadmill, so I'm opening it out there. And some people have been brilliant on uh, some of the forums and some of the Facebook groups trying to get a treadmill for us to borrow um, on my behalf. But at the moment, as of today, no, not got anything at all. So I'm starting to worry a little bit. What would you suggest? One, run up an escalator. Right. Mm. Now, there's got to be escalators. There has to be an escalator there, so you just run on an escalator and you do your 12 and a half miles on there. Two, we just send you on errands back to the hotel, so you run to the hotel yeah. and back and you do your 12 and a half miles doing that. Or three, we're all wearing stormtrooper helmets, we break into a gym, right? And they're <laughs> never going to catch you because everybody's going to be dressed up. And then we take a treadmill to the convention centre and then we'll deliver it back again with a thank you note when we're finished. Can I just say, yeah. no one's going to catch you because there's loads of stormtroopers, but I reckon they might do because it'd be quite easy to spot the one with a treadmill under his arm. Yeah, or the one <laughs> oh, with a ruin, gammon moon you. boot. <laughs> well, you could hide it under me wheelchair. Um, although Rich's ideas are kind of bonkers, I think there is a, a thing in the whole running part of it. Can't you run around the convention just yeah. all the time? Seriously, yeah, uh, it kind of takes away what something. he wants, though, isn't it? Because he wants it in one's place. The whole point is, I'm going to be at the booth, and um, I didn't want to affect anyone else's celebration. I didn't want anyone else to have to worry about anything. So, so if I'm running around, there's going to be no one at the booth to explain. Sort of, ah, exactly. what is this? Richard will be there in his wheelchair. He's just going to look like a running around lunatic, isn't he? And everyone's going to be going, "What's he up to?" <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So um, it would be, it'd be but, ideal. But maybe. Maybe Grant could run alongside him with a big sign saying running Stormtrooper. <laughs> yeah, but there's still time. There's still time. We'll, we'll be, I, I'm, I'm loving the energy. I'm loving the ideas. And if anyone out there has got any uh, great ideas or suggestions, please head on over to Twitter um, 
or Instagram and find me Stormtrooper Run, or alternatively, preferably go to Make a Star Wars Wish on Facebook and send me a message because come on, let's get a treadmill at Orlando and allow the running Stormtrooper to get running. Because um yeah, I need need your help. Need your support. There's no need for this though, Jess, because by the time this podcast goes out, you will have got one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's cut all this. Yeah, definitely. Or, or he's got roller skates on. <laughs> Jez, how's your fundraising going then? Because obviously this is, you know, quite important and, you know, something that's been picked up on by a lot of the Facebook groups, especially the Jabba's Palace Court Dungeon, whatever they're called. Um, there's Jabba's a lot, Court, yeah. Jabba's Court, yep, there's a lot going on. So how's your fundraising yeah. going so far? Do you know what? It's brilliant. Um, I've never seen anything like it with regards to what the Jabba's Court guys are doing. We mentioned about the cards um, last month. They're now doing some T-shirts where they're, they're selling some great designs of two Star Wars t-shirts. And I think the um, closing date for orders is something like the 19th of March. So we should be out just in time for that. So, um, no, again, they're brilliant. And they've been doing some of their auctions saying, oh, let's, um, any, any profits from this? And, and there's been some guys who've just been saying, right, all of this is going. So Jabba's, Jabba's Court in general have just been phenomenal, really, really uh, kind, very, very generous. And, uh, yeah, just blown away from that point of view. Um, also shout out to a chap called Shane Williams, top man, never met him, never heard of him, never conversed with him on uh, Facebook or anything. However, he was listening to last month's uh, podcast and has just sponsored me at my www.justgiving.com forward slash rogue one saying, I heard you on the podcast. Best of luck. So yeah, great. That's awesome. Uh, I'm, so I'm really, really chuffed with it, with the way things are going. I'm at about 9% at the moment of my target. I'm just under a £1,000. Um, I've had a few promises of, you know, some money coming in. Um, so I, I'm, you know, quite optimistic that things are going uh, on, on track, so to speak. But I think um, come the time I do the London Marathon and hopefully set the Guinness World Record fastest marathon uh, in Star Wars character, I'll uh, I'll be able to bring in a lot more sponsorship for Make a Wish, um, which obviously is a charity which really really needs it. Um, what was great to see is on Star Wars Forum UK, I put a story on there, a Make a Wish story, Oliver's story, um, Oliver, young lad who really really poorly, and he's uh, um, got a scar on his tummy, but he had a day out with uh, Obi Wan Kenobi and Darth Maul. And he's been told to tell everyone that Darth Maul gave him that scar. And he had a really, really good day with Make-A-Wish as a Jedi. And uh, his mum actually com- uh, contacted me the other day after seeing everything online, saying that she was really supportive and really, really thankful and uh, really appreciative of everything that's going on within the Star Wars community. So that was great to hear from her. Um, so now, as I said, glass half full. I've got a few issues with regards to the treadmill. But with regards to the support which I'm getting from the community, uh, all around, um, I'm optimistic that we'll nail this together. Awesome, Jez. I just got a question about this world record, right? Because this world record has never been attempted, never been done before. If you take four mm. days to run this marathon, you've still broken the world <laughs> yeah. record, haven't you? Well, Guinness are uh, quite difficult to deal with. And I think also it's after having spoken to some UK garrison people, it's also Disney have an influence on this as well. So when UK garrison, I think, um, and I stand by to be corrected, um, go off it and do some trooping, I don't think they can specify 
characters. I think they have to say, and there will be some Star Wars characters there because I, I think that's um, some limitations which they've been given. So when I applied, um, Guinness initially said to me, yep, you can go for fastest marathon in a stormtrooper costume. Uh, and these are uh, the easy limitations. Then they came back a few weeks later and said, no, it's going to have to be a Star Wars character. So I think Disney started to get involved there. Um, they have said to me, as you've said, um, you're setting this record, um, but we are going to give you a time limit of four hours, 45 uh, to which I replied saying, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be able to do that because last year um, the conditions were perfect. Everything went really, really well. Uh, the temperature was right and everything w- w- was just so. And I managed to do it in five hours, pretty much dead, five hours, 26 seconds. So to take another 15 minutes off that is is a massive ask. They've now come back saying, yeah, we've actually looked at the intricacies of your costume and we will give you a qualifying time of five hours dead. So they, they've said it. So even though I've you know paid the administration fee and everything like that to try and set this record, if I don't beat five hours, I don't qualify for it. Uh, that, that's not the bother. The big thing, the big thing is the 40th anniversary 40 miler on may the 4th to try and raise as much money as we can for make a wish because after all all you need to do is go onto their website and you can see exactly the reason why they need the money and moving on to celebration from the vintage rebellion then so guys we don't have a fan table this year we decided not to apply for one we decided just to enjoy the event so we applied for the podcast stage and by the time that this episode is released we should know some more information and we hope that we have been selected for the podcast stage if we do get selected for the podcast stage we hope to see as many of our listeners as possible we'd love to meet up with you in orlando and we'll be around in various other places as well and pete you're our main swag organizer so what will our listeners have to collect from the vintage rebellion guys if they track us down well yes you're gonna have to find us all um we're all gonna have a badge on us this is four badges with various designs on be released soon and there's also a poster as well so i won't have that many but i think we have to come up with something guys to make sure that people get them off us which we'll have to release at some stage i don't think we just give them out willy-nilly can you describe the poster at all or is it too soon to be putting that out um it is a poster that harks back to a vintage poster back in the day a collecting poster that's all i'm going to say Awesome. So that's a poster and four badges that the guys from the Vintage Rebellion will have that'll be available for collection. And I believe, Jez, that you've got some kind of running Stormtrooper swag, and I think, Grant, you might have some giveaways as well from Helix. Uh, yeah, we should we should have a special Helix giveaway, which will be quite exciting, um, licensed by Helix, and some of the uh, Beyond the Toys Facebook page badges that have been developed as well. So hopefully we'll attach those to the uh, the whatever Helix come up with, and uh, we should have about 300 of those to give away. Rebel base, one minute and closing. Beware AFA again, Rich. A late add to the show notes. So what's this about? Just browsing Facebook today, and I had all my notes for Rebel Briefings, but I spotted a story on the 12-back early vintage collectors Facebook group, and I thought, oh, guys, we've got to talk about this. We've got to cover it, however briefly. So it was a post from Sean Lemcool, and his post said... Just thought you would all like to see what EFA does when they don't have an example of a variant in their system. 
So, guys, I'm pretty sure that none of you would have had time to see this because I've only told you about it now. What do you think that EFA does when they don't have an example of a variant? Just to give you a bit of concept of this, it is a baggy. Reject it. <laughs> send it back. They send it back, yep. Yeah, what else? Did they open the baggy? No, they didn't, but that would have been a catastrophe if they had it on. Nope, they sent <laughs> keep, keep still charge. They kept the money, yeah. So they, uh... they sent it back to Sean with no consultation at all, no email, no, dear Sean, we've got some doubts about this, can you give more information? Nothing like that whatsoever. They sent it back and they kept the full grading fee, which was $75. Ah, what? It was, to me, it is disgraceful. What they $75? Yep. What their letter said was, this is an undocumented figure stroke buggy combination and the tape shows signs of lifting. Sean looked at the tape best part of 40 year old tape of course there's going to be some signs of lifting on the tape he was initially concerned about it so he posted it on the facebook baggy tastic group and said here guys has anybody seen this baggy before does it look legit is everything okay i don't want to waste my money and sending it in for grading etc and the guys on the baggy tastic book looked at it and went yep we've seen that before it's the palatoy land of the jawas playset jawa baggy Okay, so it's a known baggy. We've seen them before. It looks fine. There should be no problem sending it in. And he was just just as gobsmacked as, as all of the other 20, 30, 40 guys who posted on that same post. Absolutely disgraceful. I don't really want to go into a whole AFA debate about it, but from reading Sean's reason for getting this graded, I'm really considering getting mine graded now, although I would not use AFA. Why do you think he's wanted this graded? Because of the scandal, I suppose, just wants that verification. Yes, Drew, that's a good point, that. Because of the scandal, obviously, everybody's a bit worried and having the EFA name next to it. And yes, we all know EFA have made mistakes, but just having that little bit of um, assurance next to it will give it some kind of authenticity with some people. But there's another reason for it. And obviously, you know, I, I'm not I'm not a graded guy. I don't care about numbers. Why would I consider getting my bags graded? Display purposes. So a bug at a display. That's one of the main reasons why I'm going to do it. But the other reason is because of what EFA have said, is that the tape is starting to lift. Now, I've got four, possibly five or five day four baggies. And if the tape is going to start to lift and start to split and crack and eventually come away from the baggies, then it's going to be very, very difficult for me at any point in the future, say five, ten years down the line, to say that, no, these are definitely the ones that come with that. So... That's why Sean wanted to get it graded, so he could actually get it slapped into a case before the tape split fully and say, no, it's been sealed, you know, it's been authenticated at the time. So it's really bizarre when you think about it because EFA graded the Palatoy Vinyl Cape Jabba 12-pack, and yet they've refused this for being an undocumented figure-baggy combination. They're automatically contradicting themselves there. And just to show the quality of some of the guys up at EFA, there was another guy who posted on there a picture of a power droid that had been graded, and he was disappointed with the grading label. Does anybody know what was missing from the grading label? What would you not expect to find in a power droid? A weapon. A weapon, yep. There was a weapon in with the power droid, and when he got it back, graded from EFA, it was just noted as a regular power droid with no mention whatsoever of the weapon in the bubble. Surely this is just yet another nail in the coffin for EFA. So obviously our baggy expert Frank Muse and other guys for the baggy tastic group had come on the thread 
you know, and they were saying, look, this is absolutely bonkers. This is a, this is a legit figure. And since then, EFE have contacted Sean and said, look, send it back to us. Send any information that you've got on it and we will relook at it again. But again, it's, this is just, you know, these are experts who are keeping money from guys who are sending items in. And they've been called outright scammers in this thread. Now, I personally, I don't think they are scammers. You know, it's a big business. And I think to say that is, is quite harsh. I don't think they're scammers, but they're certainly not the experts that, you know, some people view them as being. Just out of interest, I checked to see what UKG, um, how they handle these kind of, you know, undocumented figures and baggies and, you know, what they do. UKG charge a £5 admin fee and they make the owner pay shipping on return. Which, to me, is sensible. If they're going to take time to look at the baggy and go, actually, you know, there's something not, not right about this. I'm not happy with it. Fair enough charging a nominal fee, but to keep the $75 grading fee is outrageous. Absolutely outrageous. And there's no justification for that whatsoever. If something has been knocked back for grading and you've got further evidence, then EFA should automatically accept that item to be sent back with the extra evidence and look at it again. Yeah and not charge or perhaps charge a small nominal fee if they do have to grade it. It's interesting to read yeah. though in that thread that some guys had actually received like the wrong grading label, sent it back to EFA, and then they've rejected it when it's been sent back and kept the money. There, there are all sorts of stories like that for EFA, absolutely ludicrous some of the stuff they get through. Um, apparently they've had some kind of coupon promotion where you get 20% off if you send an item into them in January. And there was one guy that sent £2,500 worth of stuff in the EFA. But because there was a delay on the shipping, it arrived on the 2nd or 3rd of February and they wouldn't honour the 20%. <laughs> it's... Surely surely, surely the, the, the power here is with the people sending the stuff in because if they don't use EFA, then they'll go out of business. So, you know, shouldn't people kind of, you know, club together and actually put down a list of things that can happen like this? I, I, I don't see why people are sort of standing for it and going, oh, that's outrageous. I know Ross Bar is pushing CAS, I think they're called, the CES, and they're going to have a presence at um, Celebration. And I dare say EFA have got a presence at Celebration as well. They have asked for feedback on their service. But from what I've been reading, I don't think they're going to take any notice. EFA are not there for the, for us. They're not there for the customer. They're there for themselves. They're purely a profit-making industry. And the writing really is on the wall for EFA because they're just not listening.
give a huge warm welcome to our guest this month. Joining me and Rich from America is Brian Angel. Good evening, Brian. Good evening. It's not evening here and it's not evening there, so I don't know why I've said that. <laughs> you know what? I just I just go with the flow, baby. <laughs> Good. <laughs> Facebook admins. How? What groups and how many are you admin on? I'm only the admin of one group, um, and that's the Empire Strikes Back vintage collecting group uh sometimes they call it the timeline groups because there's the 12 back the empire the return the power of the force and the dark times so yeah just one you told me you've been collecting since the very beginning and have never stopped so just to give us a bit of a backstory could you tell us about your your childhood with regards to star wars when you first saw the film what star wars meant to you as a child and any significant memories of the toys wow um we only have an hour that was a very you guys are very good at coming up with great questions my entire childhood was star wars i I grew up star wars is just an understatement for me everybody in my neighborhood thought of me as the star wars guy uh everybody i know in my family and friends and circle all they all still think of me as the star wars guy i'll probably die and they will have you know stars in the background on the picture of uh at my funeral that's you know so my dad i I was four years old and in preschool when um star wars came out and my dad used to pick me up from preschool uh it seemed like every day for a year and took me to the theater to see star wars we we would go regularly i mean we saw it in the theaters 50 plus times easy it was funny because I knew the point in the movie when we were going to get there, and it was when the Millennium Falcon was entering the Death Star, and there's you know those white lights all around the frame of the screen, and uh, it just seemed like based on the schedule of when the preschool got out, that's when we would walk into the theater, and so I would make my dad stay for the next showing. And uh, we would stay until that frame when uh, the Millennium Falcon enters the Death Star, and then I would let him go home. So um, he was big into it. Uh, We both have addictive personalities. That's just an angel trait. And so we got addicted to Star Wars. We we saw it that first year, and then when it came back in theaters for a couple weeks, we went back. And uh, so that that was a year of mayhem, and it was awesome. Did you just say 50 times? At least. At least. So by the time I was, you know, five or something, I, I already, you know, knew every line and was I was already the Star Wars guy. It was just and, and you know, that's your first five years development time. It shapes you. It definitely shaped me. It's part of who I am. Brian, do you remember where you got your first figures from? And if it was a toy store that you remember, have you actively tried to track down any card box with the price stickers on? Great question. Uh, my dad brought home uh, four or five twelve backs, and I remember si- I, I remember vividly sitting in his bedroom and him showing us these toys. And my I mean my eyes almost popped out of my head. And uh, he told us that they were his toys, and maybe he would let us play with them. And uh, so he he teased us pretty well with them. Um, I I still have my entire childhood collection. I have that uh, R2-D2 and C-3PO that he handed me that day, the Luke that he handed me, and uh, the Vader and Leia. So I think those were the first ones that were put in our hands those that that day. And, uh, and I still have them, and somewhere in my garage, 
is the card backs, I believe, wrapped up in a box. Amazing. You just said that um, that you've got all your childhood toys. It was only this week that you posted a great photo on Facebook where with you holding a Star Wars Give a Show projector and underneath that photo you posted a photo of yourself maybe five, six years old holding yeah. the same item. So was this an item that got lost or broken or something? Yeah, great question. There are very few toys that did not make it out with me still to this day. Things like the Give a Show projector, I mean, we used and battered that thing into oblivion. So there was just, you know, that's just something where there was nothing left, pieces everywhere. One of my favorite toys that didn't make it out is the Death Star. I played with the Death Star. That was like the first big toy I I had. I played with the Death Star just relentlessly until every piece was just shattered into oblivion. I mean, I put my Bert and Ernie beds in there for Luke and Leia to sleep in. The Death Star didn't make it out. But there's very few things that that didn't make it out, but they were just battered to oblivion. Brian, at some point, though, Star Wars toys became uncool. And what I've found from talking to collectors who are, and I'm going to be respectful here, just a little bit older than us, they tended to say that once Jedi came about, the interest in the toys waned a little bit. Um, So at at what point for you did Star Wars not become as cool? Here's the thing. I'm not cool, but at some point I've come around to be cool because geeks have inherited the earth. I'm also a very stubborn person and very kind of, I I think I'm really nice in my adulthood, but in my childhood, I really didn't care what people thought. And maybe I still don't. So even when it wasn't cool, I was still chasing down Star Wars toys. I mean, it was always cool for me. When I say I have my childhood toys, like my 96 set um, or 95, whatever many there are, 96, I think, those last 17, you know, almost all of them are, are mine from the stores. So I wasn't, when it wasn't cool, I was still it was still cool for me. So you never had a break. You never went away from collecting. It was a constant, even through those dark periods. There was no toys available for a time. Before the internet, while there was no toys being produced, you know, I would still pick something up from KB Toys every once in a while in the mall. That doesn't mean I wasn't collecting, because basically anything you see anywhere that has Star Wars on it, you might be able to pick up a folder, a magazine, a you know a- anything, a T-shirt, whatnot. And so, um, yeah, there was periods that were less active, but I've heard people talk about, you know, it, it wasn't cool, and they were into girls and giving their toys away, or you know, they just were uh, not as hot on Star Wars anymore and um, didn't care as much and then got back into it. Something sparked their interest back up and they got back. I just never had that fall off. So was I always a sophisticated collector? Heck no. Um, was I always chasing after the most expensive items and, you know, thinking about putting together proper runs and um, thinking about, you know, thing, things like that. I, I was still passionate and, and, doing something Star Wars related. Obviously always always being in it, all of a sudden we had the internet exploded. And did you find the forums early? Was you on Rebel Scum or the earlier? So I'll tell you that I had my own little experience with the internet. I owned a domain name, StarWarsCollector.com. 
in the late 90s. I was putting together a list. I'm not going to call it an archive. I just wasn't that sophisticated. I was putting a list together of you know every Star Wars toy that ever came out, which is impossible. But I thought I, at that time, had a good handle on it because I had collected them all. And so it wasn't just the vintage toys. I, I was creating a list of you know, all the new stuff that was coming out for Phantom Menace and, you know, all the modern stuff that had just recently come out in the last four years. And so StarWarsCollector.com was in with the affiliate program of eToys. eToys was, you know, an early toy retailer. I was trying to create something. I became very successful in another business venture, but I, I created a graphical interface i created you know a usable database back before anybody really was hip with the internet and then uh like i said it became very successful in um the wireless business and i just it went by the wayside but um i was doing that i will say about you know the archive and rebel scum and basically anything on the internet that has ever had to do with star wars i've been there i've probably had a membership i never took to forums that was a format that i just never interacted with so i guess i just used those websites as resources more than anything and you know would stare at pictures or grab information if i needed an answer to something verify something if i was looking at something on ebay but i guess that's probably one of my greatest regrets in the hobby is not actually interacting in the forums and just getting over my dislike of the format and, um, you know, jumping in with both feet and engaging with fellow collectors. Brian, I'm pretty sure we're going to come back to this, but I noticed that you'd put a photograph of the uh, California Vintage Star Wars Collectors Group where you've been to an event recently. Can I just ask you about Celebration 1? Because in the UK, I don't think too many of us had even heard of Celebration back then. As you weren't part of the forums and things... How did you find out about Celebration 1, and what was your interaction with the community like back then? Okay, so, you know, that's a really great question, and it's funny because I think that the Internet and Star Wars, for me, are also related. Some people have asked me, you know, now everybody knows how to use computers and the Internet and smartphones and all these things, but as technology was um, developing, people would always ask me, how do you know so much about the internet and how computers work. And I say, I would say to them, just pick a hobby that you have and Google everything and anything. Or, well, I, I'm sure I didn't say Google. I probably just said search at the time because Google didn't exist. You know, we started with things like CompuServe and Prodigy and things like that. And then it developed f- from there. But I, I would tell people, just search, you know, about something you love, some hobby you love, and just try to do anything and everything. Try to do music and videos and anything and everything related to one particular topic, and you'll learn a lot about the internet. You'll learn how to use it. And so every single solitary day, I was searching about Star Wars. You know, StarWars.com became a mainstay. They weren't They weren't at first. Actually, the fan sites, um, I think particularly Force.net, was much better than StarWars.com. Um, at the beginning. And then StarWars.com, uh, I think they just said, well, we better uh, take back our um, name here on the internet. And they became very active. And so I think Celebration 1 was part of that. So if you were a guy like me who was on StarWars.com like every day, you would find out about it. Have you been to all of the celebrations? No, I wish. Was you in London last year? I was. 
I thought you were, yeah. Are you taking yeah. the mick? We interviewed him for the podcast, man. E, honestly, amateurs. <laughs> wait, wait, say that again. I, I interviewed you for the podcast, honestly. Yeah. You know, Stu, Stu's meant to be our boss, and... <laughs> You know, he's a, he's the kind of boss that you just wheel. You know, the old guy who you just wheel out to sign forms and then wheel them back again. Do you know those kind of weekends though? Everything just goes over your head. You meet so many people. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. People, and you're trying to decipher where you've seen them and who you've spoken to. And sometimes everything just kind of amalgamates yeah. into one memory, doesn't it? It's That's a... my whole life. That's my whole life. Before <laughs> we before we move off of Celebration One, I want to tell you guys a cool thing. I guess. And now I guess I need to tell a story to tell a story. So do you guys remember when um, the trailer for The Phantom Menace came out and um, it was part of Meet Meet Joe Black? Everybody was theater hopping, you know, showings of Meet Joe Black so they could see this trailer over and over again. Do you guys remember that? Great trailer. Yeah. In my local theater, Jake Lloyd, who played young Anakin, was doing the same thing that we were doing. He was theater hopping from theater to theater to see the Phantom Menace trailer, and we saw him there. My um, ticket for Meet Joe Black has a Jake Lloyd signature on it from when he was a child. And so uh, the ironic thing about Celebration 1 is so we had already met him, and I go and I sit down on the plane to go to Denver, Colorado for um, Celebration 1, and guess who's sitting in the aisle right in front of me? Jake Lloyd and his dad again. So – we had a couple run-ins with him, including on the plane there. And uh, if I'm not mistaken, the same plane ride back. Great story. So you've also been, I know Rich just um, referred to it a minute ago, the California Collectors Club. I've got a funny feeling it was actually today, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, well, depending on your definition of today, it's 7 a.m. <laughs> um, so it was, it was technically yesterday. Uh, I guess I've had a few hours nap, so sure, it was yesterday. And what, what kind of things do you get up to at those kind of meets? Uh, you know, that's the first time for me uh, going to that particular meetup. But uh, it was barbecue, drinks, toys laid out on a table. We had a tent that uh, Phidias provided. Phidias was just an incredible um, host. Like I said, he barbecued, he provided drinks and snacks, and everybody laid their stuff out on the table. Um, and, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of buying, selling, trading going on, but there was a whole lot of talking and you know, camaraderie and laughing and um, just fun. It was it was a good time. Just talking Star Wars, isn't it? That's what it's all about, yeah. and being together. I want to obviously click on to your collection before we uh, we run too long on the general chit chat. But you were saying that you never got into the format of forums. Facebook came along, and you're everywhere on Facebook. I see posts from Brian Angel most days. You're heavily involved. What was it about Facebook that, that captured your imagination and got you involved so much in the community? Really great question. You're asking questions that make me peel back one story to tell another. So I wasn't really into Facebook. Matter of fact, I didn't even have an account for years. And then um, when I sold my wireless company, I hooked up with the guy who I had bought it from, and we formed a marketing company. And he was a web development expert. I had a lot of general marketing knowledge and connections in the community. So my best friend, who's big in the 501st, who had been on Facebook for a long time, said to me, you know, you can't really own a web development company and now be on Facebook. And you better become an expert in it. So then from there, I wound up being the CEO of a social media company, so on and so on. So I had a lot of experience with social media through selling websites and doing general marketing for 
people and practitioners and companies and whatnot. And so, you know, I was on Facebook by um, default. What am I going to look up on Facebook? What am I going to look up if I'm anywhere online? It's going to be Star Wars. And uh, I found, you know, like-minded people. And, um, you know, it was a format that I was extremely comfortable with. And I think because the smartphone stays with you 24-7 and because of insomnia and, you know, just uh, general, I guess, lots of energy within my personality and ADD and the ability to multitask. Facebook is just something that uh, it clicks for me. It's very easy for me. And uh, it's easy for me to be on a phone call, have Facebook in my other hand, be looking at the computer screen, doing two, three things at once. So um, why I'm so active is because I'm, it doesn't, it's not an intrusion into my normal daily life too much. Now, Brian, you posted a video and photos of your collection this week on Facebook. Um, <laughs> I heard you were, you had a big collection, an impressive collection, but I was astounded, to be honest. Um, totally stunning and a real collection to aspire to. And more than anything, so beautifully displayed. Sometimes you see these collections are cluttered and whatnot, but everything feels so clean about it. So beautifully, beautiful, beautiful. But I just want to talk about some certain pieces. Now, you've got an image of like a unit with, on the top, engineering pilots and first shots is that what's on that shelf with all the cibs yeah so that is um just a really cool desk with um just some display shelves up top it actually used to be in my office in my headquarters of my wireless company and uh, i brought it home because i thought it was a cool desk and you know toys obviously look great on it i think so yeah i have uh two runs going and and this is part of my experience of elevating my game based on facebook because pre-production things were not even on my radar before facebook you know i probably walked by first shots for 100 and 200 dollars in the sales hall at celebration one and thought they were just ugly junk not knowing the history behind them but um steve who's one of the admins of the 12 back page took me under his wing and taught me a lot and uh so i really gained this emotional connection to, wow, these are the toys that help make my toys a possibility. I love the ones that most closely resemble the toys that we all played with. So the engineering pilots obviously are, are the toys. They are, you know, production toys that were tested. But um, the first shots are, you know, the next closest thing to what we all had in our hands. And so those two were attainable out there. And, um, you know, I could afford them so i put together a run so far of 11 of the first 12 engineering pilots and um four of the first 12 first shots so i'd love to achieve all 12 in both of those runs um it's been a lot of fun just the journey of getting to know people and getting special pieces from special people knowing the history and stuff behind it but yeah that's what that's what that is which of the engineering pilots are you missing I'm just missing Han Solo. Oh, come on. Someone, do you know where um, they are? Well, I know, I know that Ross Barr has uh, a Han Solo engineering pilot, but I would never ask a Han Solo focus collector to give something up. So, no, I don't know where another one is. I, I think Ross, if Ross listens to this, I think he should um, be a bit compassionate and say, look, he needs just that Han Solo to complete the run. Yeah, come on, Ross. Pull your finger out. No, yeah. no. He he offered to send it over here for a year on loan, and 
you know, I know he was kidding, but uh, I know he was half serious. And so, no, no, I, like I said, I ha- having the R5D4 focus, I completely understand that he wouldn't want to send that away from the bar home and I wouldn't ask him to. And I know there has to be another legit one out there with great provenance. And uh, it, it will somehow through the magic of the Star Wars universe, it will come my way. How, how long have you been doing these runs? Maybe two-ish years on the engineering pilots and probably just over a year on the first shots. Look, looking at the photo here, you've got, um, I take it, it's Chewbacca, Leia, Death Squad Commander and Stormtrooper you've got for both runs? The, those are the first shots, those four. Yeah, I have them for both runs. Yeah. yeah. In hand with the figures, is there much difference between a engineering pilot and a first shot when you're looking at them? Oh, just tremendous differences yes again the engineering pilots by and large are production figures that were just tested on so the only thing that makes them special is that they were that final approval step to say these are safe and they'll hold up to the test of time and they can be released and this this production run is good to go i i you know i don't think too many that i have um i know the darth vader that i have there was what seemed like some flaws in the mold and the torso and I think the face. And uh, so maybe that one is different from the production run that is out there. But uh, mainly the engineering pilots are, they're just production figures that were tested on and that's it. Um, But the first shots, there's drastic differences. For example, the the Chewbacca um, is unpainted. It's not welded. There's no holes in the feet. There's no date or, country of origin markings um you know the coloring is a little different than the plastic on the um production figure and um you know i think that because i have three different backs for the torso i think they were testing the colors because they're three different colors that's a good example the chewbacca especially is a good example of um, how different a first shot can be and the leia has a hand-cut vinyl cape. You know, the painting is not finished. The eyes are, I call them ghost eyes, and uh, they just they don't have anything besides that blank stare in them. There's lots of differences on the Leia. And then also the Death Squad Commander is super, super clean hand paint job. But if you stand it next to the production figure, the face looks different. You know, it just it's hand-painted. It just looks different. So, um I would say the Stormtrooper is the one that most resembles the production figure, the engineering pilot. Can I just ask, what advice would you give for somebody who was going to dip their toes into the first shot or the engineering pilot market? And secondly, would you class the engineering pilot as pre-production? You know, I have to tell you that I have fun with my toys. I don't get too hung up. And, you know, if somebody wants to call it pre-production, great. And I think of it as pre-production, sure. And if somebody wants to call it just production with a Sharpie on the foot, I'm like, cool, that's cool. I'll I'll make fun of myself as much as others will make fun of me, and that's cool. So I don't get too hung up in the titles, even though, obviously, I think about everything a lot. I just don't – I don't care as much. You know, they're mine. They're fun. What advice would I give on – if somebody was going to start collecting first shots or any pre-production, I guess the same advice as I would give somebody collecting anything related to star Wars is, um, uh, first of all, have, you know, a good handle on your budget so that you're not spending money that you don't have. 
make sure that you hang around for a while before you buy anything, get to know the market, get to know the players, get to know what you're looking at, what makes them different and special, and what your motivations are. Are you collecting them to keep and have as um, something that you cherish, or are you looking to have these as an investment and uh, you know keep them for the future for some reason? And um, what's the risk involved with investing in plastic toys? You know, I think just be smart as the uh, general umbrella as anything. And what do you think is the best way to display these? Because as you've said, with engineering pilots, all intents and purposes, they look just exactly the same as regular figures, but they've got, you know, some, well, most of them have got some kind of number or letter on the foot. Yeah, great question. I haven't figured out displaying yet. I'm working on figuring it out. And um, I like what Bill McBride has. He has cool looking domes that are velvety on the bottom or maybe he's put some velvet underneath or something or maybe i'm remembering it funny but it's on velvet somehow Um, but i like the way his display looks in any case and then there's tons of other displays that i like uh the best way to display them i don't know yet but i'm i I think i'm going to figure that out at some point in my life there's some great couple of answers there Brian because I think from what I know of you already I probably expected all of that your passion for these as items that you like and you want to enjoy is far more important than you know labeling these or putting a dollar value to to them or anything like that but can I just ask then moving on slightly is it just the first 12 action figures you're looking at or is it the whole first 12 I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. Um, the whole area, for example, you know, like the die cast, the die cast land speeder and, um, you know, perhaps some of the, you know, the very, very early toys. Well, I think for me and everybody collects in a different way. And actually the way that I'm collecting is constantly changing as well. But for me, what I have now is based on what I love and what's been available for a reasonable price at the time. And what's been attainable in terms of, um, oh, I happened upon two or three of these. Now the run is attainable. I should go after it. So I love everything Star Wars. You know, again, besides the droids and the Ewoks line, I think if I if something landed on my lap and I had a good opportunity to make a run of something, I might. In terms of, you know, what do I love the most and what? why do I have the first 12? That's just a deeper connection to my childhood. That's where it all started. Those toys, I don't think they just changed me. I don't think they just changed toys. I think they changed movies. I think they changed pop culture. I think they changed everything in um, you know, our consciousness in a way and um, certainly licensing. So those first 12 are just so, so special, and they're so kind of basic and elemental to Star Wars and, um, you know, again, just my life and my experience that when it came to, all right, stepping my game up on pre-production or anything like that, I had to go to those. And I, I can't even think, I won't even think about going real high end on any other line until I've tracked down um, all of those first 12 first shots and engineering pilots because it's just, I guess, <laughs> part of my uh, sickness. I have to do it. Well, they look absolutely stunning. And um, if okay with you, I'd love to post a pit- that picture that you've shared on, on our Vintage Rebellion and release the show. 
Yeah, any picture I've ever posted, post it. You're a gent. Something else that stood out to me in your in your collection is you have quite a few cut cards displayed. Mm-hmm. And now, obviously, cut cards are quite topical. A lot of them were, were U-graded by the grading companies. Why do you collect the cut cards? Another great question. There's multiple answers here. And again, your way you collect changes constantly over time. One of the things that I collect is action display stands. At one point, I was just buying up action display stands. I, I really can't explain why. I just love them. And so I was trying to get every different kind and sealed ones and you know just everything you can get action display stand, um, even though I never bought the Empire Strikes Back one, which I wish I did. But anyway, how does that relate to cut cards, you ask? Well, I, for some reason in my psychosis or my sickness – Whenever I bought an action display stand, I had to have the first 12 to go with it. And so I would buy damaged, you know, beater 12-backs. At one point, I had so many beater 12-backs, I didn't even know what to do with them. And I would buy cut cards and then baggies or basically anything where there was this perfect, pristine figure that could go with these action display stands. And then at one point, that turned into, through the consciousness of eBay, and through seeing what U grades were, that kind of turned into, ooh, I was, and I want to give Ross Barr a lot of credit for his advocacy right now and how it changed me. And at some point, I was going to take some of my cut cards and baggies and beaters, and I was going to make a full run of the 96 U graded. And my idea was to make one acrylic poster, so to speak. So it's like one big AFA case, custom made with all the figures in, in just one like wall hanging. So it kind of looked like a painting. Um, and, and that's what I was going to do. And then, you know, right at the time when I was close to completing a U-gradable set, I guess, I became aware of the Facebook groups and started learning about why it's bad to U-grade and why you shouldn't, you know, do these kind of practices. Um, so I actually never U-graded anything. I've never, I, I've never, I really haven't graded anything loose. Matter of fact, I've never graded anything loose. Yeah, that was the evolution of it. And so I had all these cut cards. And so I guess having read, um, and I don't know who wrote the article, but Ross used to post an article from time to time about you know why U-grading is bad. And just through reading that, it made me appreciate what those cut cards were. And then I learned they were some of them for sale in the Kenner employee store. And some of them were just cut down to put a so- stocking stuffers for you know, kids' Christmas gifts, and I, I, get, I, get, I, I just had a better appreciation for what they were, and um, so I said, you know, I'm going to put together a cool run of these for the first 21, and I actually was having, I, I had a good progress going on the whole entire run, but then at some point you have to make decisions on what you really want and what you don't, and so I've kept some of the ones that are, you know, from lines past Star Wars, and some I've just either given away or sold or whatever, but um, I have the that first 21 run. Oh, and there's a couple missing pieces, because somewhere out there is a double telescoping Luke cut card, and somewhere out there is a vinyl Cape Jawa cut card, and they're probably never coming to me, but if they ever did, they'd be cool in my run. So I say that that was a great honest answer. Actually, you saying that you were collecting two U grade, and then no, no. Oh, you weren't I collecting was, two U grade. I thought you sorry. I, I thought you were collecting them and then going to get them all U graded. It was a. It was a. Pro, I was collecting because I wanted to have a set of first twelve with every action display stand that I bought, 
and I had amassed so many beater cards and cut cards and baggies that U grading became a thing on eBay. And then I had this, you know, pile of stuff and said, Ooh, that might be a cool to take one of each. And then it came to no display these. They're cool. So it, it was an evolution. It wasn't just, Ooh, let me buy these to U grade. By the time U grading came about, I already had them. Well, I think they're, I think they're great. You, you just display these, these are laid out in a display cabinet just alongside each other. I think they look cool because there's not really any other way in cased in the blister to get the figures so close to each other with that colored backer behind them, unless you buy one of those awesome display shelves that people make. Um, but to get the authentic look and feel of the blister and the colored um, piece of paper behind it, um, there's no other way to get that unless you just line up cut cards. So they look cool and unique in that way. When I um, was looking looking up card cards, it's, it's quite interesting to see how many debates there have been on the forums about people saying, I'm collecting card cards to open to make a mint loose set, as if there's not enough <laughs> loose figures out there. But yeah, so it's nice to see them being preserved. I think it's just as interesting that, as Brian said there, some were cut and sent back to Kenner. I believe that was to stop employees from selling them on, if, if I've got that right. But I also think it's just as interesting that parents have also cut these to shove in stockings. I think both ways are great little bits of history. Yeah, I could not agree more. And, uh, you know, I really do think that uh, whether it was, you know, the forums before I got involved in shared knowledge, let's call it, besides, you know, the books that have been written, but um, I think whether it was the forums or now Facebook, the fact that collectors and enthusiasts and historians whatever you want to call them get together and um you know create this idea of curation and this bubble of protection around the hobby and the items involved with it uh i think it's super cool to our community uh it says something great about the people involved in it and um i'm blessed and fortunate to have learned so many great things from so many great people now you are massive r5d4 focus collector and just just before we came we came on rich was saying well he's nearly got as good as r5 focus collection as me he said um i think rich you said after yourself he's probably got the second best in the world (laughs) i don't remember seeing that but uh, if if that's true (laughs) i'd be a bit disappointed (laughs) so i'm I'm just gonna let uh, rich run with a couple of your r5 are you happy with that rich i'm always happy Stu. you know me yeah, just to um, quiz him on a few of his R5-D4 things, because you'll probably have that better connection. Sure. So, Brian, um, first of all, um, so why R5-D4? Well, this is a story that I used to have a very hard time not even telling, thinking about, because it was weird. And it is weird. So when I was five or six, somewhere around there, the second wave of Star Wars action figures came out. And I desperately wanted an R5-D4. He was just cool. And I've always loved the color red. And uh, I wanted the red droid, the bad motivator. And um, so I had told my parents, but I remember vividly one night that we had a babysitter, Heidi. And I remember Heidi put me in my bed and tucked me in to go to sleep. And I had a dream that night. And I could see my parents and they were on a cobblestone walkway in a shopping center was like an outdoor shopping center and they walked into one of the old school type of toy shops like an fao schwartz type of toy shop and uh they went to the cashier and bought an r5d4 she put it in a bag a brown paper bag and folded the top and uh you know that's kind of where 
my consciousness of that dream ends, but I vividly can still see in my mind the mental pictures from that dream of them on their date and uh, buying that R5-D4. So in the morning when I woke up, I glanced over to my desk in my bedroom and there was a brown paper bag there with the top folded. And so I, I walked up to it and opened it and and it was an R5-D4 action figure. And as a matter of fact, that very action figure sits in my display case today and is the inspiration for that run. So I don't know if it was a premonition. I've never had premonitions before or after that. I don't consider myself to be clairvoyant. And, um, you know, some have suggested, well, maybe in your subconscious, you saw your parents sneak into your bedroom and put that on your desk. And then the dream was concocted because of something subconscious that you saw. And so maybe that's true. But in my childhood mind, that's how it happened is I had the dream, the action figure appeared. And uh, like I said, I, I never even told my mom that story until about three years ago because it freaked me out. And um, so, yeah, that's that's why R5-D4. Can you subconsciously pick six numbers for me between one and 49 so I can just put me lottery on on, the, on next weekend? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, uh, I'll see what I can do. I'll, I'll, shoot, I'll shoot you a PM. Now, Brian, whenever I talk to somebody about R5-D4, I get a, a massive mixed reaction, but I get a lot of people saying, well, why that figure? In fact, even Jez says quite often it shouldn't even be considered an action figure because you can't do anything with it, which I disagree, disagree a lot with. But whenever I say but the card back is awesome, it always shuts everybody. You know, nobody comes back and says, oh, no, actually. Um, the, the artwork on R5-D4 in the, in the photograph is absolutely fantastic. They really got that right. Yeah, and first of all, let me address anybody that says it's not even an action figure, you can't do anything with it. Um, I could correct them by shoving an R5-D4 where the sun don't shine, but I won't. So um, the <laughs> the card back is fantastic. Um, it's one of the only card backs that has a main character on it, Luke Skywalker, of course. Um, it's got two because R2-D2 is peeking in there. And then, uh, you know, obviously you have R5, you have the Sandcrawler, you've got the dirty little Jawas. Um, it's just, it's it's spectacular in every way that a card back can be. Yep, I certainly agree with that, Brian. Now, um, obviously I'm a fellow R5-D4 focus collector myself, and I'm starting to plow through the run. Um, it's actually a pretty good run to choose because most of the cards I've found so far are not that pricey. Um, and th- there are some trickier than others, but they are available. How have you found your way of putting the- your run together going? The way that I've put my R5-D4 focus collection together is a-, a lot of it has to do with other R5-D4 focus collectors, which you would think the opposite. You would think there would be this adversarial thing where we're kind of competing with each other to you know, try to outdo each other or whatnot, but um, not the case. So focus collecting was never on my radar until Facebook. I just didn't think to collect one of you know, each card back or one of each variant of a certain action figure. I was always brainwashed by the Kenner collect them all philosophy. And so Jeff Walters um, was an R5-D4 focus collector um, that was prominent in my mind when um, I joined Facebook. And my mind opened up to this idea of collect one of each figure. And this guy's collecting one of each of the one that's the most near and dear to my heart. And so um, 
I started talking to him about focus collecting and whatnot. And, you know, he had extras and was like, do you want this? Do you want that? And then started really kind of divesting that focus entirely. And so at some point we had the conversation and he said, why don't I just sell you this whole run over the next, you know, X amount of time. And uh, so I have inherited, purchased, not inherited for free, but uh, I have inherited most of Jeff Walter's collection at this point in in terms of R5D4. And then Oliver Sudweeks, who has the insane proof run and Cromelin run of R5D4 stuff, he and I kind of had a conversation because uh, he was selling me his engineering pilot and... uh, which which just shocked a lot of people. They said, I can't believe he would let that go because he's such a diehard R5-D4 guy. But we kind of had the conversation that he um, was going to focus more on the 2D um, and just you know divest his 3D to me. So I got his engineering pilot and I got his photo sample, which is the R5 that's on the back of the 65 and 77 and 92 and 70. Anyway... So I got some pretty cool, you know, top shelf pieces from Oliver, a bunch of stuff from Jeff, and then, you know, plucked things from anywhere and everywhere else that you can think of and still continue to do so. So that's how I've built my collection. And and Oliver to this day, because he's thought of as an R5 guy, still gets opportunities that come his way and then he passes my way. So he's always thinking of me. I can't thank Oliver and Jeff Walters and actually Mark Walsh um, has helped me a lot. And um, there's just been a lot of people that have helped along the way. And now, you know, uh, Scott Cullen, for example, sent me his childhood R5 and said, you know, and, and it doesn't even have a sticker anymore. It's just the, you know, the torso is completely white. And he just said, Hey, you know, um, you should have this. And I'm like, I, I mean, that's just like more valuable than any of the priceless action figures. It, it is priceless. And so that's in my display case. So I've come about them a lot of different ways, mainly through R5 focus collectors. And then now, you know, trying to track down um, just anything and everything that I don't have. Wow, fantastic. That's that's really generous, that uh, childhood R5. Um, doesn't matter, it's not got a stick. That's brilliant. Um can I just move on to the Red Bar R5 for a second? Because you were one of the first guys I was aware of who was actually tracking down a Red Bar R5-D4 on a carded item. Now, do I have this correct? Do you have that now on the Star Wars Empire Strikes Back and Jedi card backs? Um, you are incorrect. Uh, the, the Red Bar R5, matter of fact, variants as a whole throughout the course of um, my journey as a Star Wars collector were always on my radar. Variants as a whole were always something, and I think even back to childhood, just knowing that there was this red and blue snaggletooth, you know, that there was mistakes and that there was, you know, variations and differences. You know, I had in my childhood collection different color hair, Luke's, and blah, blah, blah. So um, variants were always on my radar. I always knew about the red bar R5. Nobody ever cared about it. You know, it just it just exploded in popularity at one point. And I think I definitely had something to do with the explosion of the um, carded one when we did the public search to try to find, you know, all those different card backs. And um, I don't I don't have an Empire Strikes Back. Um, there's a picture out there of a 47 back, which is the free four LOM R5 um, red bar. I don't have it. I'd love to have it. If anybody hears this and they have it, I'd love it. Um, but no, I have um, 
two different variations of Star Wars. Matt Brookins was kind enough to let me have the um, 21 back that was offerless. And then um, Joe Kiskis was nice enough to sell me the secret offer, you know, 21 back. And then um, I have Jeff Walters, 77 back, Return of the Jedi that he sold me. Paul Macklin found me a 65 back, I believe. You know, I have a ton of loose. So four different variations carded, a bunch of loose, still looking for an Empire Strikes Back. And, you know, I I would think that at some point, um, you know, other card back variations will show up. But who knows? It's, I actually haven't checked my uh, corded uh, R5D4s. I think I should go through them at one time and actually have a look and see if any of them are red. Um, it's not something that I was really that keen on until probably about the last six months, and I think it probably is down to you and your, um, you know, your fantastic focuses and your and your runs. Um, how how are your runs going on card backs, um, particularly the the twenty backs, the twenty one backs, because there's a lot of them available. I am not a guy that's going to obsess over having every card back to the point of i guess i'm going to not um do that in spite of you know if the first shot became available and i wanted to dedicate funds to that you know they they all look the same on the front so um you know the back is is i mean look if it has a different offer on the front that's interesting and different and cool but if it's just a slight difference on the back that's not as interesting and cool to me but i still when they become available and they're reasonably priced i still pick them up um i do have the debut card um which jeff walter sold me and uh i do have um you know matt george's old um boba fett offer that doesn't have the black sticker on it where you can see the rocket firing fett and I have a bunch of different variations of those 20 and 21s, but I don't even know if I aspire to own every single one of them. I guess ultimately I do, but it's not going to be something that uh, I lose sleep over if I don't. Now, Brian, you also collect, let me get this right, first 12 secret offer? Yep. Ed, educate me. <laughs> sure. Um, well, I think that just stems from the fact that I was a kid that mailed away for action figures. I, like all of us, I think, cut proof of purchases out and bought extra figures and did anything and everything to get those figures delivered to my home. I mean, it wasn't just getting an action figure. First of all, it was being that young and getting any mail was cool. You know, I think when I was a kid, the only two pieces of mail I ever got was a mail away action figure or my um, subscription to Bantha Tracks. So, I got Star Wars mail. That's cool. So any kind of offer to me is cool because I got them. So the secret offer, um, I think it was particularly cool because you didn't know what you were getting. And um, the colors, the red and yellow, they're very, very traditional advertising burst type of colors. In my wireless business, we we used those red and yellow bursts all over the place and um, – and my subconscious from my childhood, but uh, I don't know. They just they look cool. Jeff Walters also had that run, and um, you know I admire Jeff's tastes, and we have a good friendship, and so um, I think it just in that sense rubbed off on me also. And um, as we know, the secret action figure was Bosk, uh, which is a follow up to Boba Fett. You know, going along this line of bounty hunters showing up at my doorstep. What I mean, what could be better? It was Bosk. He was like a kind of like a Star Wars sleestack bounty hunter weirdo. So he was cool. 
Did you have the um, early bird certificate originally to send away for the first four action figures? That I did not. My first action figures were 12 backs, and then I mailed away and had the action display stand. And so I think that's why I love the action display stand rather than the early bird. I know some people focus on early bird, and you know I have some bits and pieces of early bird stuff, but I certainly don't have any um, you know emotional tie because I I never I never had it. Uh, my like I said, my dad brought home 12 backs. So. Do you think then with this connection that you've just mentioned there of getting stuff through the post and things that you'll get a mailer run put together at some point? Um, I have some. I, I have some of every run <laughs> that I've picked up over the years. So will I like focus on a mailer run ever? I don't know. Um, I don't think so. But uh, I don't know. I also think that I'm emotionally scarred as it relates to, you know, baggies and and catalog boxes and mailer types of things um because the jc penny and sears that was in my neighborhood for just a couple years blew out all of their stuff and there was like just tables and tables full of um you know the cantina mailer the every kind of mailer and catalog thing that you can think of which is sitting there on tables and i could have bought them on the cheap i have these mental images of them just sitting there in my mind and it hurts to think about not grabbing all of those and saying mom just get them all um and so that just kills me that i didn't do that so probably won't do a mailer run because of that just association even though those aren't exactly mailers mailers are are different but they're still they look too similar it bugs me well Brian, obviously the time's getting on. I just, I just want to say, every little piece of your collection, you have you have great stories. So uh, we've only scratched the surface today. I had more stuff down, and perhaps uh, we can return to it one day and have a, a kind of follow-up. I would love that. I would love that. Last couple of questions. What something we always ask everybody: if if we were being um, we were being moved to another planet, the Earth was uh, going to be no more, and there's limited space on the shuttle. Uh, monetary value is out the window. Uh, there's only room for one piece of your collection. What would you be grabbing? So it it would have to be a childhood piece, and it, 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 I can't say my set of first twelve, my childhood first twelve. Um, if it was only one, I'd probably just have to grab the childhood R five, right? I mean, I don't know. It was it would either be the R five or the first twelve, but probably the R five if it was only one. Okie dokie. And Brian, probably the the question that most of our listeners would probably like to hear, Brian. Are you an angel? Uh, don't believe everything you hear and read. <laughs> uh, Brian, it's been an absolute blast. Some fascinating stuff and a, a wonderful collection. And um, we really do appreciate all you do in the community and taking your time to speak with us on the Vintage Rebellion this month. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate you guys having me. I appreciate what you do, all of the entertainment and education that you put out there for all of us um everything that you guys do you know through the vintage rebellion for advocacy in the community um and just being great guys and great collectors um thank you so much for what you do thank you
made Padme Amidala had an attempt made on her life They were gonna kill the young senator We were to keep her safe I would stay by her side Obi-Wan would investigate Went away to Naboo Padme was beautiful Not the Jedi way Tempted me to break the rules Had disturbing dreams Of my mother's me on Tatooine Knew she wasn't safe Had to leave and Padme came with me Obi-Wan Kenobi on Kamino Was now knowing that an army was now growing Due to rabbit cloning He was going honing in a slice of jiggle fat I went home to Tatooine And it's my dream Showed my mother she was dead I had revenge But Obi-Wan was attacked Traced him back to Geniosis There was a massive battle to be had
Okay, let's go over to the newest acquisitions with our little Jezebel. Goodness, we've got so much to squeeze in. We're going to squeeze it in. We're going to have a couple of shout outs. We're going to talk about some fantastic stuff. Some of the things on the Facebook pages, but the forums in particular. Oh, man, let's just get straight on. Star Wars Forum UK. Quick shout out to Rob P. Marsh. He had a 30 back resale Ugnor. And straight away, you wouldn't be able to tell that this was a resale. On page 2066, it looked the absolute bomb. I asked him about it and just said, mate, just a 30 back. Come on. And uh, he's recently got it for £80. It looks brilliant, but there's one obvious telltale. What's that? It's been opened? Yeah, how can you tell? <laughs> What's the obvious thing, Grant? It's got no footer. Um, the actual bubble itself looks brilliant, but it's just lacking the footer. Uh, but it does look top-notch. At a glance, you can, you can hardly notice it. Um, but he, he's absolutely delighted. It looks great in a uh, in an acrylic case. And when we've seen some of the prices recently, thirty back. What what are you talking? Do you know what this is? This isn't a very easy thing to research actually, because um, I couldn't find a price on a thirty back or not. But I could find a lot of threads that were saying that uh, don't just jump on the back that it's a thirty back, because there are plenty of forty one backs and forty five backs that are rarer than thirty backs. I'm sure. Of the same figure. I, I am Jack sure that's the case for certain figures. Sorry, Pete, what were you saying? Yeah, I mean, because it's a resale, to put in context, um, I sold some 30 backs of varying figures uh, about a year ago, and they went for ridiculous prices, just just the card backs. Isn't the Boba Fett card back on EB at the moment? That's over 200 quid. Blimey. But this, for an Agnot, I just thought, yeah, good on you, Rob. It's nice to see him getting that, and... Uh, people's opinions changed at all resales i mean your opinion may have been fully open before and open to the idea of having a resale in your collection but what are your thoughts on these grant do you have any resales yeah i got a um a 12 back paddy toy chewbacca this was back in the day yeah i remember that when yeah, everyone was saying that they were they were mega rare, and one had just sold on either eBay or Vectors for five thousand five hundred pounds. And I was told, oh, there's like only under ten that exist. Obviously, have a lot more surface since then. Um, I also liked. Can you, can you remember Ryan? I'm not sure if he still posts on Souls from UK. Uh, Blue Dog. He had a uh, twelve back Paddy toy resale collection. Which, when I first saw it, this is going back about five, six, seven years, I was like, ah, I'm not really interested in reseals, but man, that's a hell of a collection. I would love to have that these days. Wasn't it Ryan who you bought it for at a good price? Because I think I remember seeing yeah, it. Yeah, I paid 70, 70 pounds for the reseal uh, Chewbacca. Yeah. But I think it depends, you know, I think we've done, we've been down this road before. I think it really depends on the, uh, the carded figure and the rarity of it. But. <clears throat> I think as long as it looks uh, in in good condition, then uh, why not? I wouldn't want a resealed sixty-five back Morning Guard, can I? You know? <laughs> no, yeah. yeah, I'll get you. But but you know, like uh, oh, I've actually got a Lily Leddy Tie Fighter pilot as well. That's a reseal. Uh, it certainly, I think, that cost us about one hundred and seventy pounds, which is a, a lot less than what you'd be looking for for a mint sealed one. Anyone else? 
I had one which was a Palatoy 20 back or 5D4. I think I paid 120 for it. Um, but I was, it was only ever going to be a placeholder until I got one. Yeah. And, and when I got a Palatoy 20 back, I then sold me reseal for not much more than the price that I paid for it originally. And I do have another one, which I think is a Kenner, I want to say it's a 48D, possibly. But I think I only paid maybe about £30 for it, which is, you know, the price of the loose figure, plus a bubble, plus a card back together. You know, it was, it was quite cheap. And again, it's only going to be a placeholder until I can find a 48D, and then I'll be selling that one on for, you know, the £30 I paid for. Cracking. I'm well, strongly against it, yeah, strongly. Strongly against it, vehemently strongly against, against it. it. I, I really I really don't like resales because if you've added something to the card like glue, then for me, it's dead to me. So but, Pete, I just, but, I just buy it. No, no, it's right. Okay, no. so say you had a focus, okay, say for me, for example. No, so like a, I don't have a focus. A harbour comes up for Greedo, no. which you're talking four figures, and uh-huh. someone's selling it for four or five hundred quid as a resale. I, could look I can't them. afford to go and drop three grand on a harbour. You can. But well, it's I, up. you can't have it. I'm with you, Stu. Mm, I, it's just, you I, know, I, I think Grant just, just said it. I think, I think mega rare or rare items that are desirable or expensive, and I totally agree with him, if it's a 60, 70 quid card, don't bother. But if it's something that's desirable and valuable, then to have that something in your collection like that which you can't afford then so be it all the parts are original apart from the glue that's been added to seal it reseal it that's not original is it so to me that it is in the the realm of the repro argument of well i can't afford it so i'm just going to have a reproduction i, I i'm not it's not it's for me. not reproduction that is a ridiculous that is a ridiculous no 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 argument. i didn't no Stu, listen i did not you just call it a reproduction it, no i did not i said it, it's in the same lines of that because you're adding something so the argument that people use for reproductions, that's the same argument they use. Oh, it's okay, I can't afford it, so I'm not going to, to have it. I did not say it's a reproduction, that's ridiculous. But I'm saying that's the same argument people use, I can't afford it, so I'm just going to settle for it. I just, I just don't, I'm not having it. For me personally, I'm not having it. I don't care how rare it is. The card, the bubble, the figure are original. You've got it on display in a cupboard. I'm not going to look at it and think, oh, my God, I can see some Gorilla Glue. Oh, I, I think your that's, that's adding that's adding something that's not vintage to the car back. So you have to with pen touch ups and stuff. That's that's a different argument. That's well, not because it's you're adding something that's not original to the card, aren't you? But what he's well, adding, he's doing is adding up. something still really really cool into his collection. It is, but like I said, it's not for me. I would not touch. I don't care how rare it is. To me, it would be. That is something that has been added later to the card. Don't care if it's glue. You, you can make an argument for, oh, it's only a bit of pen. It's only a bit of glue. It's only a bit of cardboard. You know, it's just, it's, I'm, not, I'm not having it. So well, you, know what? You, can, you can sit there with your happy in your collection. This is what makes the podcast team so wonderful because we all have different opinions. We're all from different sort of backgrounds and ethos with regards to how things are. We're united on some of things, but the fact that, we disagree over reseals. You know, we can all stand together, lads, and say we're right. And, and one day, eventually, Pete might see uh, the error of his ways. <laughs> and the young man is no error. I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. You can. That's, that's fine. Okay, thank you, Peter. Good on you. <laughs> Rob, looks awesome. 
We all think it looks awesome, even Pete. So, uh, yeah, nice one, mate. Piece 2,066, 30-pack resale, bargain. Let's move on, please. Went to page 2,068, and I saw Chris Caswell had posted up his Empire Strikes Back Series 2, but this one was kind of special. It was a trademark sample set. Now, I'm pretty sure this is what he was hinting at in our Christmas special when he said that he had something in his pipeline. Oh, when he had something in the pipeline, but he didn't want to jinx it just yet. So on page 2068, he's written his post. I was fortunate enough to meet up with Alex Bixmore, who came over from the States to hand deliver the latest addition to the run I've been putting together. It's an Empire Strikes Back Series 2 Best Bin Set trademark sample set. And the set was used internally at Kenner to identify some potential packaging changes for future reference. It has handwritten details on the package which denote character names which may require trademarking. He goes on to say that on the reverse of the set, some of the characters have been crossed out. This is to clarify that those particular figures would not be carried on to the next wave of three packs. The figures that are not crossed out appear again on the third wave. The employee has written several times, see notes. But sadly, the notes attached to the box have long since disappeared as they were most likely a small piece of paper lightly glued to the back. He states that there are still some adhesive there. He said he was amazed to see this set turn up. He knew of his existence for many years after seeing it in Chris G's scrapbook pages dated 1999. More on that in a minute. It was then sold to Tom Darby at Cloud City and ended up in a collection in Japan, not to be seen for 18 years. So first of all, lads, what are your thoughts on this? So a triple pack in itself is a rare beast, but with all this trademark and writing and C notes, what are your thoughts? It's it's insane. The whole story is absolutely fantastic. I know that you're not aware of this, Jez, but I've actually done one of my Jedi News articles on this three-pack, and I'm just waiting for some extra information from Jesse Cedar Soberman on it. But the whole, the whole, I've been, you know... Looking up, looking for this item, you know, he hasn't been looking for eighteen years, but he's aware it's been missing for eighteen years, and for it to turn up, it's it's just unbelievable. You're talking a, a one of a kind holy grail item here. I know the word holy grail gets overused, but this, I think, you know, absolutely nails on the definition. Putting it on its head slightly, you could just say, "So what? It's a three pack with some writing on it. Where's the provenance? Tell me about this. What does it mean to me? How do, how do we know?" So I did ask him, I said, look, you know, what's going on? You, you've just got this, you've seen it out there, but surely it, can you date this back like a family tree? Where's the provenance? And he said, yeah, in terms of provenance, the best person to ask would be Tom Darby. He sold this set back in 1999 to the Japanese collector who's had it ever since. Alan Bickmore turned it up on one of his trips to Japan where he visited the collector's house. He's known about his existence, as we said, since seeing Tom Darby's advert in the magazine. The fact that Tom Darby sourced and sold it is provenance enough for me, really. It also appeared at a time in the late 90s when faking this kind of thing was not really profitable and it was sold, believe it or not, for the same price that a standard production set would have sold for, so the incentive wasn't there like it is now. He said it's a weird, geeky item that not many would know about, to be fair, and he thought it would fit well into his focus. And Given the fact that it hadn't surfaced in the past 20 years, he thought it was a good opportunity to go for it. Really is, really is kind of cool. I wish, really wish that the notes had stayed with it, though. That would have been awesome. 
Yeah, I, I really don't think, and it's incredibly unlikely for them to ever turn up. I know different pieces have been reunited, you know, many years later. But from each description of the notes, it literally was a little tatty piece of paper that has, you know, fallen off and clearly been thrown away. Guys, go and check it out on page 2068. This three-pack is something a little bit different, but also on the post. Now, I haven't clicked on this link before. You guys may have spoken about it before, which was uh, Chris G's scrapbook. Now, is this something which you've discussed in the past? Is this something which you guys are aware of? Yeah, I did a lot of research on that. It's it's um, it's clippings, isn't it, from magazines and newspapers and various other periodicals, you know, going way back to mid-80s, I believe. But I, I did a lot of research on the Rocket Firing Fett by using Chris G's scrapbook. He's got, he's got a lot of information on it and, you know, old price guides and things. Yeah, it's exactly that. It's an online scrapbook for period of collecting in the day prior to the existence or the, the real significant use of the internet for Star Wars collecting. And it's just, he, he's catalogued it beautifully and uh, chronologically with, with things in there. And that's where Chris had seen it before. Chris Caswell, that is, not Chris G. Um, he goes on to say, the toy shop magazine was once the backbone of the Star Wars collecting hobby. As a strictly buy and sell publication, collectors all over the world eagerly awaited for the arrival of each issue. One could always count on spending at least a couple hours salivating over the items that had been purchased by people who had their issues delivered by UPS Next Day Air. However, it was still a fun exercise because the pages would be filled with treasures, oddities and practically everything a collector could want or need. And this is all Chris G's writing. He just goes on explaining exactly why he's done it. But he's got all these photographs, all these clippings on there. I actually, when I was looking at it earlier on, um, gave out an audible oh, when I looked at a cutting from December 1990 with a French Yan Solo miscarded Luke Jedi for £17. A couple of the terminology which they were using back in the day was mispackaged instead of uh, miscarded and trilingual instead of trilogo. I quite like that trilingual cards but it was a great post really really good post by chrissy with some really really good images of of what he's just bought and what is probably one of the uh, pride of places within his collection so um check it out and also check out the link to chris g's scrapbook it really is an eye-opener guys i went on to page 2072 and there was a post which mr palatoy put on but it wasn't something which he was showing it was something which he would he had looked at, which a chap called Scarface One had previously put on. Now this is I love it because I love how the forum works and I love how people get together. Mister Palatoy, as you know, puts together matrix of various different card backs. Joe does as well with his tri logos, and Scarface One had shown off some tri logos. One of which was a Princess Leia Organa, and it was Ed, the owner of Star Wars Forum UK pointed out to Jason that, ah, this could be an unverified Leah 70C Organa. Great, I'm going to add it to the Matrix. So this is Mr. Palatoy saying, yeah, up until now, we haven't seen this. So Scarface 1 wasn't aware it was a 70C. Mr. Palatoy had had it pointed out by Ed. Obviously, Jason was made up because he added it to his uh, Matrix. I thought it was really interesting. Then a couple of posts later, Joe Trilogo Joe had a couple of doubts over it being a C, maybe more likely a B, or even maybe it was a Luke X Wing. Fascinating. 
And there's me scratching my head thinking, no, I'm looking at Aaliyah Organa. What do you want about Luke X-Wing? And then it goes quiet. No one else is talking about this. And, and then the plethora of pages goes on. So I got the guys together. I, I started a little Facebook chat thing with Joe, Ed and Jason saying, what are you guys going on about? And it was great actually watching the three of them working together, talking, sharing images, talking and discussing about the various differences between the cards. And to cut an incredibly long story short, it looks like potentially this is a transplant job of a C bubble with a full paper backing onto a B card. Um, and the reason they've come up to this is because they're saying that the factory punch is completely different. But the main thing which they've seen is a slight color variation between the nameplate and the color behind the bubble. They say, even though cards fade in this and the other, the colors always match. And on this case, it looks like the bubble is from a Luke X-Wing. But then you could say, well, hang on a second. If they've sliced off the bubble and the card back, how on earth have they got the Leo Organa in there and taken the Luke out? So this is almost one of those Scooby-Doo type mysteries where they just still don't know what's going on. They think it's incredibly suspicious. Uh, the glue is looking a bit dodgy around the bubble. It was already declared as a partial reseal. But it's just a really, really peculiar thing, which has got these guys flummoxed. But it was really interesting watching them work. What are your thoughts on that? That makes no sense to me at all. I mean, I'm not a Palatoy uh, trilogo expert. I'm never, ever going to claim to be. But the the two, as, as far as I've got this, the two key differences between the 70B and the 70C, what we're always taught to look for, is that the bottom of the bubble is flush with the nameplate. Now, I, I can accept that if the... If the bubble is resealed or is not legit or is a Luke X-Wing bubble, I can accept that that bubble could be positioned flush with the nameplate. Okay, so, so I'll, I'll happily have that one. But the second one is that the trademark information is in a different font and is, in, is, is inside the racetrack, whereas on the 70B, it's in the white font and on the outside of the racetrack. How could that possibly have been transplanted? Yeah. It, it, it's, <laughs> they've seen uh, and I've seen some really good images some really good photographs which have been shared which they've put on and Scarface one is kind of shared because he's not really sure what's going on um, I'm really really not sure one thing Joe has just put on and saying is this is a difficult one though it's like a doctor trying to diagnose a patient using Skype you know they they can look at it they can have their guesses, but unless they actually pull it away from the card to see how it's repaired, I don't think they'll ever know. But the fact that you've got these experts on there, Jason with his matrix and, and Joe uh, with his massive Trilogo knowledge and, and his website Trilogo Info, and the fact that Ed just saw this uh, and then contacted Jason and said, I think this is an unverified C. You've got some really knowledgeable guys all trying to put their collective heads together and... Uh, and doing some good things for the community. In this case, it doesn't look like they've got to the end of it, but I'm sure this isn't the end of this tale. There you go, guys. I said it was a bit of a weird one. I find the whole thing a bit hard to follow, not what we're saying, the actual investigation itself. Yeah. Was like, something but what now? Well, I have no idea. Yeah. It's very, very out of the blue. Yeah, it really is. It's a really, really strange tale which starts off on page 2072 with Jason saying, brilliant, I've added it to my matrix. 
And then you'll notice that a day or so ago, Jason then comes back on saying, I've just taken it off my Matrix. <laughs> Page 2076. Wow, this is just a quick one. An unpainted yak. Mike Strange, we've mentioned before with his yak face focus. I've not seen one of these before. Unpainted yak. It's got no boots. It's got no hands. It's got no eyes painted. Uh, so it's just two-tone. Uh, and indeed, it's muff or a scarf. What would you call that around his neck? Uh, that's unpainted. It just looks just looks pretty cool. And next to his regular yak, um, he's delighted with it. I uh, just well worthy of a shout out. It's a nice one. Page two thousand seventy-six. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't call it a muff. I want that obvious. It's a muff. I don't know. I think you could call it a muff or a rough or something. You know what a you know what a muff is, Jez, Yeah, I've uh, chafing. <laughs> I would call it. A muff. I think what? you can call it a muff. I'm going to Google muff right now on my phone. No, no, you think <laughs> you better not. Yeah. Are you sure, internet jazz. Are you, are you sure you're not thinking of buff? Maybe, maybe. Um, muff. Buff, you sure yeah. I think the scarf. Buff, buff is like a head scarf, isn't it? Yeah, could be buff. Yeah, <laughs> this is the outlaw. Let's have a little look. Muff. Here we go. Yeah, no, seriously, I knew it. That was very brave of me. Muff, a tube made of fur or other uh, warm material into which the hands are placed for warmth. Yeah, that's a muff. Seriously, yeah, still a muff. You're using still. Google South, aren't you? No, no. There, there are other versions <laughs> on this Google search as well, which I won't mention on a family he's got, show. He's um, got parental controls on, so he's safe. No, definitely. A tube made of fur or other warm material into which the hands are placed for warmth. Muff. Noun. <laughs> yeah, but that, mate, that's a muff as in you put like a glove. That's something you put around your neck. Yeah, he could have it, right? Seriously. Guys, if you haven't been in a desert... Right, they're out there. There's no cloud cover, so at night time, it's it chuffing cold, right? Oh, Yak Face is going to be there on top of the sail barge. Maybe it's his time, you know, to, to cover off and make sure that everything's all right. He's going to want to get his muff out and get his mittens. Oh, are you telling me he's went to Princess Leah? Can I borrow your muff for your chalk jabber? No, no, he's got his own. It's a noun. It's a tube made of fur or other warm material into which one's hands are placed for warmth. Muff. Yak face and his muff. Seriously, that'd be badges at celebration. Yak face and his muff. <laughs> right, should we move on? I've, I've had a muff. Grant. Well, can I, can I just say, uh, I don't want to be uh, uh, too cynical on this, but if you had a beat a yak face that was worthless, if you stripped all, stripped all the paint off it, wouldn't that just make it much more of an attractive sale? Indeed, there's, there's ways of testing. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. You can't. can't. No, oh. that's that's how they've detected all of those paint stripped C three POs and things. I think it's, it's the backlight test or whatever they do, the UV lights. It shows up any kind of chemical, any kind of scrapings. You know, it, it's it's incredibly difficult to take the paint off, keep it all uniform, and even then, whatever you use to take it off, leave some kind of residue, um, whether it's in a crevice or in a you know in a deep point. I, I don't think there's any way at all that you can you can fake one of those. Well, okay, certainly fair. not fake one and pass it off to somebody who knows what they're looking for. Okay. Crevice, muff, deep point. As soon as I said crevice, I knew somebody was going to come back with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, we'll move on. 
Grant, you've been hanging out with your Beyond the Toys chums. You've been seeing some stuff on the Facebook page, mate. Tell us all about it. Yeah, this is a really interesting uh, post. I'm not even sure if it's a new acquisition, but it was something that I wanted to investigate anyway. Um, this is posted by a gentleman called Takio Yuda, I believe his name is. Um, it's for Japanese 1978 Miji, spelled M-E-I-J-I, candy boxes. So there's uh, four different images. There's the Hildebrandt image. Um, there's a, a sort of painted version of a production photo of like a C-3PO and R2-D2 like you see on the Homestead. That's another one of the covers. Uh, you have the Darth Vader TIE fighter chasing the X-Wing, which is a, it's a painted version that they've done, which is it's used on a lot of the very early sort of uh, Star Wars collecting memorabilia. I think it's in the uh, the novelization and stuff like that. So they've done like a painted version of that and unique artwork, which I've never seen before, which is of two stormtroopers in the in the dis, uh, detention center corridor. It's absolutely fantastic, totally unique art to this uh, piece. Now, I didn't actually uh, know anything about these items. Really, it's a long; these are long, thin candy boxes. Uh, so I was really enthusiastic about investigating it, and then realized that I could actually read Japanese, which has proved really difficult in actually investigating any further on the uh, on these items but I did actually manage to find a battered box on eBay that went for sale back in about 2014 for $164 that's quite a lot for a battered box and that was the Vader TIE fighter chasing the X-Wing uh, but apparently the, the person who sold it, uh, it was sold in uh, Minnesota, he actually understood what the item was or could read Japanese so he had a bit more detail about what these items actually are they actually contain uh, chocolate covered peanuts uh, it originally came in cellophane and the box is usually about five inches by about two inches and on the back of each one of these boxes so you've got four front covers you have up to 20 different back covers so if you imagine that's quite a lot i mean that's four four different front covers to collect with 20 different back covers so you've got 80 different boxes there to actually collect if you wanted to put the full set together they're actually really difficult to uh, come across and find absolutely fantastic item so yeah i was just uh, really interested by it it's kind of made me think of you know trying to inspire new uh, ways of collecting or new things to collect make it a bit more exciting rather than buying carded figures and stuff or maybe we're putting together like a japanese focus and just collecting japanese items but these these candy uh candy uh, candy uh, boxes really difficult to find but uh, unique and fantastic yeah, th- thanks for that, mate. I had a look, look on Star Wars Collectors Archives, and, and that you can see that they list loads of the different backs, as you said, they're all the different variations of the boxes, but they didn't actually have any photographs. Um, they were just saying, yeah, this is in so-and-so's collection. But what else was coming in the boxes? So did you say it was chocolate? Just chocolate, but um, I believe there are toys as well, like a C-3PO, a Stormtrooper, a Landspeeder, a Darth Vader... But I'm unsure if these toys, there, there are toys made by this company, Miji, yeah. M-E-I-J-I, Miji probably. They actually did make a range of toys, uh, small toys in Japan. So, But unfortunately, I can't understand what it says on the box. So I can't understand if there's an actual toy inside. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I checked the SWCA and I thought, well, I'll tell you what would be a good place to look would be the Tomart Guide, which I couldn't really see them in there. I checked Gus and Duncan's uh, collectible book. 
uh, what's what's it called? So, you know, the book that they've got that's got basically everything in it. Yeah, Seven thousand really items, I think it is. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a look in there, and they just had it listed the same as they had it on the SWCA. Um, done a lot of Google searches and, and and just it was quite surprising how little there was to find any information of these out there. So that kind of made me think that these are actually pretty difficult to come across. But once again, it's the language barrier. It's hard to go on, you know, uh, Asian websites to sort of look for these things. Yeah. No. But um, they all, they all, you know, they did quite a range there. And they also made uh, another package as well, which was like a one-off. I think that's like a tube. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would love to love to just get a set of four because the four front covers are, are absolutely wonderful. Really early, uh, vibrant colors, very early uh, Star Wars uh first generation sort of stuff really good well they go perfectly with the poppy wouldn't they it's just they're very similar uh, i was looking at these things and i thought is this their equivalent but far far cooler of the kinder egg because my understanding when i was looking at it was yeah it came with chocolate and in some cases came with a toy because it's the toys which appear to be on ebay a little bit um still not readily available but there are some toys which are currently buy it now um, on ebay and and sometimes on eBay you can see when it shows you how many people are watching the items. And each one of these items had at least one or, or two people watching. I thought, I wonder if that's Grant. Um, because yeah, the um, C-3PO. Sorry, go on, Jess. I was going to say there's a, a C-3PO. Um, there's, I think, an R2, X-Wing, and a Land Speeder um, all there. But, um, yeah, all standing about one inch tall. And uh, came with the candy offered by this um, Miji. Now, when you were looking at this, I'm, sh- I'm sure you realised that Miji was actually a period, is a Japanese era, which was from 1868 to 1912, according to the internet. So, so there's a lot more to this, a lot more to this company that immediately meets the eye. Huh. What really caught my eye? I mean, these things were going for like about sixty pounds each. They're, like you said, about, about an inch, if that. Yeah. They look super easy to reproduce. Real basic yeah. sort of Kinder Egg toy. It looks really simple to, to reproduce. But um, but you know, I wanted to find out if these toys weren't actually a part of these small uh, candy containers. Where did they come from? Because I couldn't actually find any other Miji uh, stuff that had been sold. So I'm, I'm going to keep an eye on. I think this is why I wanted to highlight it is because it's something I wanted to, to carry on investigating. And I certainly haven't seen all the back of the boxes uh, I thought they might be make up make up a sort of like a, a collage or something like that, but they're not. They're actually just the ones I've seen so far are photograph stills from the film. I've seen a sort of like a Darth Vader and a, uh, a Princess Leia in the ceremonial outfit, stuff like that. I think photos that we've we've regularly seen before, but uh, it would be amazing to see some more of this stuff. Yeah, really like the stormtroopers in the corridor. That one's awesome. So yeah. If it's yeah. anyone out there knows any more about these potential Japanese Kinder Eggs, then please let us know. That would be really, really cool. The um, It's really weird that the other, the Hildebrand is obviously straight from the Hildebrand poster. That was one of the covers. And the other two, you can see, have been used from, you know, they've copied uh, uh, production-used marketing material. Hmm. But the Stormtroopers in the detention corridor, that's completely unique. Yeah. You know, that, that's all them. I've never seen that before. Well, I must ask you, and I think what we'll do is we'll just stop here for a second, because when I did a Google search earlier on for this 1978 Japanese Star Wars Miji, 
Did you come across the Star Wars tuna commercial? No. Right. Genuinely. What is that? It's the most random thing I've seen on the internet, I think, this week. Uh, what I'd like you to do now, uh, all of you, um, is don't worry about it. Just go into Google now and look at 1978 Japan Star Wars Meiji, M-E-I-J-I. No, hang on. I think I'll I found it. it. Yeah, I'm just going to put it in. So should we all watch it at the same time? Come I'm going to put it in there. So everyone watch it now. Yeah, I, I, I've just been watching it. What the What on earth has that got to do? <laughs> Seriously? That's... What the hell are the two things at the back when they're around the table? No it's the thing in the black. No, I've seen it's... that before. That's, um... <laughs> yeah, but that just came up when I was looking. That's how much information there is about these things on the internet. Because when you actually type in exactly what they are, you get an advert for tuna. <laughs> It all comes back to your chasing, doesn't it? <laughs> right. Let's move on. So, uh, go on. I wonder what the link is uh, there between Miji Japanese Star Wars license and tuna. Because it's Fish not fears. like... It's not like the... Uh, yeah, it's foreshadowing Admiral Akbar. Um, it's not like it's even related to Star Wars. It's just a fucking tin of tuna. I know, and the craziest thing ever. Yeah, yeah, but we, we can't we can't be arguing about licensing when Christ, they're doing grapes with Yodas. I mean, no, but there's no different. fucking there's no Star Wars on the on the tins of tuna. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's, it's not licensed so at all, it. is it? It's just absolutely crazy. <laughs> we'll move on. Last month, I was raving about Tanto Eleven. Uh, Grant, you said you were going to go and check it out. Have you all been over there? Have you all had a little look? Yeah, yeah, I did, mate. But I, the, the Miji stuff was a priority. But I did actually go and have a look. And I, um, do you know if you can, we can actually take part in that uh, something for Ula thread, or is it just placeholders for the uh, admins to? No, to anyone, stuff? anyone can post in there. Really? That, that I mean, that that is that's pretty incredible. That something for Ula. There's something for Ula threads. The fact that they've got all the different types as well. Yeah. There's there's a contribution thread, I think, and it says if you want to add to it, um, let us know here. So I, I do think they've got an element of control. I, I stand by to be corrected. Um, but no, I, I am sure that they will welcome open arms uh, contributions to that Ula a- area. Giggly. Yeah, I could really go to town with that. That's, that's a pretty awesome... Uh... Uh, thread. What's what's the point of something for Ula? I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. I have no idea. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I think rather than go with the standard latest acquisitions, we've got this, we've got that, they've just tried to add a little bit of a play with words and a little bit of thinking outside the box. Um, So some of their threads aren't necessarily so obvious. I think it just encourages you to click and have a little look. 
Um, so that's why their new acquisitions is R2's projector beam, which is uh, where we're going to go right now. And it was on page 39, uh, a chap called... Why is it we just pick the most unpronounced, the unpronounceables? You know, um, I've had a think about this, Jez, right? Yeah. I'm going to put it out there right now. If anybody, anybody at all who's a Star Wars collector who's called Bob Smith, right, you are on the next podcast, yeah. and we're going to do a Bob Smith episode. Yeah, that's a fair point. So I'm going to go back to a, 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 a Kyle... Kyle, uh, with his <laughs> Letty Chewbacca with a green pouch. What he's done is he's put a comparison shot of Chewbacca's all lined up together. And I had no idea about the various different types of pouches. He's got a Hong Kong brown pouch, green, iridescent pouch, PBP, I can say it's Chew, dark brown pouch, Lily Letty green pouch, Lily Letty grey pouch, all lined up, all with their different man bags, all looking pretty cool. Um, but TXI continue to show some amazing examples of sharing and compiling. Their library is getting populated with better examples each and every time. Um, you guys remember when we covered it last time, uh, the massive purchase from the chat, our chicken shack. And, the, and I explained about how they were putting on the various links, going to a variety of various different libraries. Well, on March the 1st, he's come back with even more stuff. He's been looking at various newspaper clippings and he's updated or put on an entirely new thread, advertisements, comics, and magazines. And again, this is all separate threads coming out of their one um, new acquisitions or R2's projected beam. So really, really rate it really highly, and uh, it's definitely worth checking out. TXI, Tantive 11. So Pete, you were yes, well that. excited about something which you had seen on a Facebook group, which I'm not a member of, but it was also on the 12 back and oh. Vintage Collectors group. What was it you've seen, dude? Um, it was a thing I've never heard of before. Um, it's not in my kind of um, area of collecting, but it was more the story than the actual piece. But obviously the piece is, you know, as I found out later, it was like, oh my goodness, this is ridiculous. But it was an R2-D2 lunch pail prototype. Um, and it's, I mean, if you look at the pictures, it's just like, kind of like a, a soft shell R2-D2 with a kind of strap on it, um, where... Now, I don't know how old the guys are or remember these things, but uh, we'd call them a lunchbox. Um, in America, they can be referred to as lunch pail. Your dad might have had one. You know, our dads who in the war, Jazz, uh, might have had these little, little metal little pails they might have carried around with their lunch in. Um, but obviously, the, the lunchbox that we know and love uh, from the same company obviously re- replaced these. But anyway, the story goes... There was a uh, an estate sale with loads and loads of Star Wars stuff in it. And this guy called Steve Dembo, he um, he got a sort of heads up. There's going to be some rare Star Wars items. Uh, he does in Chicago, and he drove an, a ridiculous distance. And he actually slept in his car overnight to get there first thing in the morning, and to you know try and get first in line. Now, when he got there and woke up in his car, he realised that there was actually a lot of other people who'd, who'd, who'd got the heads up. So he thought, you know what? I might get lucky, so I'm going to go in. So there's about 40 people ahead of him in the queue. So he got in, and of course, people were going through the, the car backs. So there was some like, kind of Luke Skywalker and Boba Fett, I think, and a few others. And they obviously got snapped up straight away, and he's thinking, oh, you know, I'll, I'll still try and find something. And uh, they all these so-called wonderful collectors <laughs> missed this lunch pail. Now, he, he picked it up for $6. Now, these things approach us. Now, it seems from comments... That there's that all the ones that are known to exist are supposedly in 
you know, collections and are well known. And Todd Chamberlain said to point out that this was another finds. So it wasn't in the best condition. It's okay. But um, you got for $6. These normally uh, will sell for, for anything from about $2,000 to $4,000. So, I mean, that is an enormous steal. I mean, these things, they were never released. They were just literally were a prototype. Uh, they look fantastic. I mean, I mean, look at the picture. I mean, that's, I, I mean it's, it's amazing they didn't make these things because they just look so cool. But, um, I mean, it's a company called King Sealy Thermos who made a lot of the lunch boxes and thermos flasks. So it was a, it was a well-renowned company who, who obviously just went, no, nah, that's not for us. And, and no one really knows why it wasn't uh, produced and knocked it on the head. But what a fine, though, seriously. Um, but uh, <laughs> non-props to the guys who, who must have walked past it in this estate sale and just went, nah, that didn't look like anything worth any money. Yes, they got their mocks, but Mr. Dembo got himself, you know, uh, one or two or three of a kind. Yeah, Pete, it was brilliant. I love the link which you shared with me. And the fact that on a, on his Facebook post on the 12 Bag group, he wrote, that moment when you realise that a mob of people in front of you at an estate sale have no idea what a real bargain of the sale is. Um, but it was just the comments <laughs> and the excitement from everyone else seeing it. One of the first guys came on saying, yep, yeah, one sold in mint condition on eBay about three years ago for 3800 He was outbidded on numerous occasions. <laughs> Michael Ritter was extremely excited about it. Wow, these pictures put some lead in my pencil this morning. Uh, seriously, <laughs> awesome score. Do my eyes deceive me? $6, really? I've seen these sell as high as $4,400 a few years ago. Though the last one I saw was about 2700 there aren't many around. I would love to hear any backstory you have on the piece and the previous collector. And it goes back on. He said it was a mob scene, an absolute mob scene. And he bought it and basically hightailed it out of there. He said he counted 40 cars 10 minutes before opening. And he had no idea how he, how he came upon it. And it's a stickerless dome. Uh, the only sticker on it, in fact, was a small sticker saying $6, wasn't it? It's just so, so cool. People have been putting comments on saying, yeah, I've seen this before. I think I've seen one ages ago, but I can't find, I can't find the threads. I can't find any information on it. And again, this reiterates why the use of forums is just so important because it's so much easier to search. But then Steve comes back on saying, I owe that post a debt of thanks. Otherwise, I wouldn't have known what it was. So Steve had actually seen this one previous post a few years ago and then was like, oh, right, yeah, that's what it is. Because it is quite big. One of the photographs shows it on the um, car seat, doesn't it, on his uh, on a passenger seat in the car. Um, but Todd Yeah, Chen- big lunch, big lunch. Yeah, yeah. Well, as you say, King Seeley, according to Star Wars Collector's Archives, they were the people who had the license for the Star Wars metal lunch boxes in the late 70s. So for them, it was just an additional part of it. But for reasons unknown, the item was never released to the public, but a handful of the prototypes were featured in retailer literature and have surfaced on the secondary market. Um, The head unzips to expose a a food storage area and a clever application of a Star Wars character into a product design. And they agree. Surprising, it was never released. Todd Chamberlain had an interesting point, though, because he said it's... Congratulations. This seems to add more support for the potential that these were actually test marketed and not just internal samples. He knows of several examples turned up in North Carolina in the past few years 
This one, turning up in what seems to be just an old vintage collection, might suggest it actually originated from a retail purchase. It can still have a King Sealy internal connection, I suppose. Still, overall, it's a super hard to find. And someone else then has put on saying it took Steve Sansweet years to track one down. Um, there's a piece that it took me 10 years to track down. It's a simple R2D2 lunch pail. I had seen it in an ad slick for Thermos. I had seen the other lunch boxes. They were all produced. But this one, because I never saw it, became my holy grail for years. And I talked to a lot of lunchbox dealers, and a few of them said, we think those were made as salesman samples. And I left my card all over the place. Ten years after I started looking for it, I got a call from a dealer saying, I found one, it won't be inexpensive. And I said, tell me. And I finally bought it, and then realized why it was never produced, because the vinyl, the hinge was so small, it would have snapped off after two or three times. So there you go, six bucks. <laughs> but it's called it's called the Holy Grail, the Holy Grail of Star Wars lunchbox items. What Crazy. a great spot! Um, really, really great piece. And I'm so yeah, Steve Dembo, mate. I'm so chuffed for you. That that's just brilliant, and it and it just shows that there are some Star Wars collectors out there, like all of us. You know, just there are some people who are just fixated on. I want this. I want that. I want this, and have just walked past the bargain the deal of the decade i think it's amazing though that 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 we always say you know things keep appearing now yes this this has already been seen but the fact that that todd chamberlain has has suggested that maybe the information we did know is is wrong you know maybe it was there was a kind of a a a brief you know it might just been a point of sale promotion or something you know you just don't know what might have happened Uh, there might have been a few actually out there so I think it's, a, you know, it's a, an amazing find. It takes on even more context. It's just, you know, I love those sort of things. Yeah. Right. Changes what we know. Squad leaders, we've picked up a new group of signals. Enemy fighters coming your way. Richard, you pointed this out on the 1221 back group. Tell us all about it, mate. Well, it was a post from Tan Ziing, and I hope I haven't butchered his name. And it was a picture of a white TIE fighter. And I've, I've always got a soft spot for the white TIE fighter. I wanted one as a kid. A friend of mine had one. Um, and it was a shame that, you know, I, I did I did want one, but never managed to acquire one. And it was one of the first things I bought when I got back into the hobby. And it was a Kenner first issue TIE fighter. It was boxed. It, it was graded. And it looked really fantastic. And I was about to scroll on and go right past it. But I noticed he had a little bit of a write-up. So I thought, well, I'll just have a read of it and see see what he's written about it. And it's the write-up of this item, which is absolutely fantastic. And I learned so much just from that little paragraph. Now, in there, he's mentioned that there were three versions of the TIE Fighter box, um, which was released for the first Star Wars movie, even though there was no change in the artwork, which I thought, well, you know, that's, that's quite unusual. You know, um... You know what you're talking two or three years, and you've got three different boxes released, and he details the differences in the boxes. So you've got version one, which was called the Tie Fighter, and that featured the LP logo on it, and it had some text that was in, you know, not too prominent position. It was re-released as version two, which was actually in the same year, and it had the text, um, which was action figures, not included, in a far more prominent position. Now, that probably suggests to me that um, there may have been, you know, some complaints to Ken out to say, 
look at your box has got you know figures advertised on the side of it but there's nothing inside and the initial text was perhaps you know too small to read so they made that a bit more prominent there was then a version 2b which has a special offer sticker applied to it which featured a 1978 Darth Vader and Stormtrooper as um, the special offer inside. And then you had version 3, which was the 1979 version, and the, the TIE Fighter was renamed the Imperial TIE Fighter, and that was when the LP logo was removed. And I thought, well, that's, that's interesting. I've learned you know, something about the three different boxes that are available. But it was something else on the version 1 box that I've never seen before that's really caught my eye. Does anybody know what it is? Is it the, um, I came across this on StarWars.com, is it that the very first initial release, the, they had labelled the ship as an X-Wing Starfighter? They did. On one side of the box, it was labelled an X-Wing Fighter, and I've never seen that before. It's the first time I've actually read it, and I, you know, probably loads of people rolling their eyes right now, going, oh, God, I can't believe you didn't know that. That's as, that's as common as known as the 1984 Imperial Shuttle is from the modern line, still uses the same uh, date. But I've, I've just never seen that before, and I thought that was that was absolutely, you know, jaw-dropping to me. Uh, and that's what I like to say. Not only has he purchased a great item, but he's also done a little bit of research. He's took some photographs, and he's actually put some information out there. So, nice one, Tan. I was absolutely delighted to see that pic- uh, picture, and the information was fantastic. Absolutely awesome. You, you say three versions. There's actually four, isn't it, then, in that case? So you've got your original one with the X-Wing Starfighter with the subtle action figures... That's one. Two mm-hmm. is they've corrected the X-Wing Starfighter and they've got more obvious action figures not included. Yep. The third one is with the special offer sticker. So this is a third one still within 1978. So on the initial okay. launch of one of the first three main spaceships to come out, they, they've changed the box three times in that first year. Fighters coming in. And then they go and change it to Imperial TIE Fighter. It's an Imperial Fighter. That's correct, but for some reason they refer to the stickhead one as version 2B instead of version 3, which I think there's enough on there to suggest that it is actually, you know, its own version, its own right, but apparently not. So I'm going to put it out there then. Why did they change it to the Imperial TIE Fighter? I have absolutely no idea. What else came out in 1979 with regards to TIE Fighters and stuff? Darth Vader's TIE Fighter? Yeah, I reckon that's exactly it. Several fighters have broken off from the main group. Come with me. So they've gone from TIE Fighter and they need to distinguish between the two. So you're absolutely right, Stu. Because when you look at the French uh, books, and I had um, Stefan's book earlier on, um, the French initially had the... Uh, coming out in their own boxes and then they started importing Kenner ones through Germany and they were putting stickers on to cover up the various different bits and pieces and they didn't call it an Imperial TIE Fighter they called it TIE Fighter Standard which I thought was cool it's an Imperial Fighter but I think it's to differentiate between the, the regular TIE Fighter the Standard one if you will or as we called it the Imperial and the Darth Vader's one so I think that that's when they started to expand the range. Do you see the um, the box art on the side? Do you know it's got Kenobi battling Vader? Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Now in the cockpit is is a stormtrooper. Have you seen what the stormtrooper's holding? No, I haven't got. 
he's holding Chewbacca's bowcaster rather than his own rifle, which I would never have noticed either. And I've got three or four of these boxed. Good spot. Do you reckon that was because it was so fiddly that if he dropped it into the cockpit, the photographer would be like, oh, for crying out loud, let me get something which just holds on to his arm so he doesn't drop it into the cockpit. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> maybe just because it's, it's bigger and more prominent. Yeah. Going on from that post which you were looking at, Rich, um, at the bottom, he said, uh, he talks all about it, he says, yeah, quick, check your TIE Fighters. Uh, credits to Gary Wine's video and the article, The Vintage Vault, Let's Study Kenner's TIE Fighter. So I put that into the search and, and had a good look, and it actually takes you to StarWars.com, where they give a load more information, including the information which you guys, um, which you've already gone through, Rich. And it then goes on to talk more, not just about the white Tie Fighter, uh, but then it goes on to talk about the battle damage and, and exchange it extends the range. Now, why a white Tie Fighter, guys? What? Why wasn't it more screen accurate? What's, what's going on there? Any thoughts or suggestions on why it's a white TIE fighter? As a pure guess here, would it be to do with just whatever plastic was available back then? Mate, I do not know the answer to that question. <laughs> Certainly StarWars.com didn't explain it. They just said it was it was odd. Uh, and when you mm-hmm. look at the different... Co- I mean, let's go through it now. How many different colour variations have there been of the TIE fighter? And talk me through them. Blue. Blue. When did the blue one come out, Pete? Oh, goodness knows. That was for the Jedi. That was for the battle damage, wasn't it? Yeah. So you had the battle damage. Didn't the, didn't the blue battle damage one come out in like 1982 with the Jedi logo? Because it's got like the Empire artwork on it. 1983. Uh, I thought it was released in 83, but I might be wrong on that, yeah. Well, what yeah, got... Um, you got the Glass Leap one as well? Yep. We'll come on to the glass seat in a minute because someone's actually posted one of those on, on Stores Forum UK. So from looking at my timeline, trying to put together all these different things, yeah, you've already said you the ones which were covered off in 1978. In 1979, we had the Imperial TIE Fighter, which I think the reason they've added the Imperial is because they added Darth Vader's TIE Fighter to the range. I'll take them myself. Cover me. Yes, sir was obviously um it wasn't the white it wasn't blue it was i would say probably a more screen accurate color which is the same body just uh with a different color plastic but its own particular wings molded and for a very short time there you had a special offer Darth Vader's tie fighter which came with a cardboard backdrop in 1980 you had the empire strikes back really weird that you're still two years away from getting a tie fighter pilot We'll have to destroy them ship to ship. Get the crews to their fighters. And then, yeah, 1983, Battle Damage, Return of a Jedi TIE Fighter. And then in 84, Darth Vader's TIE Fighter Collector Series and the TIE Interceptor. So TIE is a huge range. As we said, we haven't even started on the glass leak yet. I went to put, um, I went to Tig's project outside the box to have a look and see what they had on the, on the TIE Fighter. And they had some information on the German one about how that one was packaged slightly different. Did you pick up on that in the thread? Is that different as in instead of the instructions? No, as in it was, was it wrapped in some kind of plastic? Whether it was, I can't remember if it was a shrink wrap plastic around it or whether it was just some kind of taped plastic. But it was something different with the German boxes than, than what's found on the normal boxes. Mm-hmm. I think it was so much of a difference that... I think Tan may have even said that they could possibly refer to that as a version four of the, you know, of the Star Wars box. 
Really? Yeah. So, questions. One, why was it white initially? We don't know. Just guessed that's the only plastic they had available. Why was it that the TIE fighter pilot didn't come out until 1982? What we need is a TIE fighter pilot focus collector to tell us that answer. Oh, that's easy. They didn't have any uh, Blackberries uh, <laughs> at the time. Uh, it took them, well, from 1978 to 1982 to gather as many Blackberries as they could in which to make the action figure. <laughs> okay. Brilliant. The only thing I can find on the colour white, Jez, is yeah. it says here, and I don't even know what book this is, um, Kenner wished to utilise a body colour that would provide a nicer contrast in body to the wing's solar panels rather than a dark grey. All oh, right, yeah, that's good, like that. But you've got but, no uh, idea what book you're reading. You know, I can look at the front cover. It's um, <laughs> one of the... Difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it's just called um, Star Wars Figures. Okay. But I haven't That's got many good. of my books out, so it's a bit is of a... That a... Is that a title for a book? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's, a good... That's a good title, that. <laughs> that, that. That is to the point, like, to be fair. Yeah. I've, I've got a theory, Jess. I've got a theory. Yeah. Well, I always thought that maybe, maybe it's because of the way the light appears in some of the films that, that they had a, a few shots of it. And if you look at some shots of, of uh, Star Wars, you it does look a little on the lighter side, but... I, I kind of go for, I think, Stu's Star Wars figure book. I reckon, <laughs> I reckon that might be right, you know. That's, I mean, it's crazy, but it makes more sense. It's crazy, but it's true. Yeah. It, you know what the worst thing about I'm... making it in white, though, was that Yellows. I have quite a few of these, yeah, and a lot of them are yellow, and it's sadly uh, wouldn't happen if it was like that. I don't think they that had that in mind though, back in the day. That's why I got rid of the LP, wasn't it? So, like, yeah, these aren't yeah, so it, long. They should have made them out of ivory. It would have been better. <laughs> <laughs> that would have gone down well. <laughs> so you've got a few of these of the old, Stuart? Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm quite fond of the old tie as a ship. They are pretty good, aren't they? Yeah. Went on to the Star Wars Collector's Archive, like we do. We have a little look and see what it said in the catalogue. Authentically detailed TIE Fighter has a large solar panel on either side of a spherical cockpit. Special buttons release panels to simulate battle damage action. Hand-operated lever raises the seat and escape hatch to allow child to seat most of the Star Wars action figures. For added play excitement, a dramatic red laser cannon lights up and emits a whining laser sound when rear deck button is pushed. Let me say that again. For added play excitement, a dramatic red laser cannon lights up and emits a whining laser sound. We were easily pleased back then, weren't we? We were easily pleased. I love it. Exclusive news <laughs> by Googling. On StarWars.com, apparently, it was down to the fact that the um, uh, it was similar to the, to the blue screen models that they had. They were white, apparently. And they copied it from there. There you go. StarWars.com, allegedly. I mean, who would believe StarWars.com? Why well, should love them? Love them, gotta love them, yeah. Love them, gotta love them. Got who, wrote that? who wrote that article? But what about the whole range, though, lads? What would you say is your best? TIE Fighter? Darth Vader's TIE Fighter? TIE Interceptor? Battle Damaged? The oh, white awesome. tie for me. White tie? Yeah, I, just, I like the whole thing about the ship. I like the white tie, but... Um, <laughs> The battle damage one's truer to its form, isn't it, on screen? So 
Right, okay. One for white tie, one for battle damage. For an extra point, apart from the obvious collar and the battle damage stuff, what is the other primary difference between the white tie fighter and the battle damage one? The um, the cockpit hatch um, had slots on it. Yeah. Why have they done that? They said just so you can peer in it. Is that right? Um, That seems like an odd reason, so you can peer in the cockpit, but... There we go. They've added the slats in the top. So one for white, one for battle damaged. Grant? Oh, Interceptor all oh. the way. Yeah, Interceptor's nice, isn't it? Yeah, come on. It's like the Lamborghini of TIE Fighters. <laughs> what about you, Pete? I never actually owned a TIE Fighter when I was a kid. In fact, the first TIE Fighter I owned, Richard gave me. <sighs> I know. That's crazy. I don't know what it was. I loved them, but I, you know, I think it was because there was always another ship I wanted more and a tie fight and then never got round to it but yeah. I think I think it's got a bit I've got to go with I've got to go with the white one I think it looks amazing hold on a second I'll give you a tie fighter what the hell are you talking about yeah you can Where? give me a blue tie fighter yeah it is possible Rich very possible I've got it here it's, it's, it's looking at me and it's beautiful and yeah you gave it to me yeah Stinks so much. Che- you know what yeah, I better check on these graphs I'm just having a look now to see if my blue tie fighter's <laughs> up there it is you, yeah, gave me that, you gave me that and a rebel transporter I remember the, so um, nice. I remember the rubber transporter because I think, who wants this piece of crap? Hey, hey, <laughs> steady. <laughs> yeah. I might have paid for it, actually, I can't remember, but yeah, I definitely got it from you. Should we have a quick round sweep of um, who prefers the TIE fighter or the rebel transport? <laughs> no. <laughs> Get off my show. <laughs> this is my bit. Jez, Jez, do you not want some interesting market facts? Oh, yeah, like I like... Like I really, really want a treadmill. Go on, tell me. Yes, you're going to. This is staggering information, and I think everyone needs to be sat down and ready. Okay. The white Imperial Tie Fighter, over the last two and a half years, has not gone up in price. Loose. Not gone up in price. Loose. What? In fact, you could argue it's come down in price. Can everyone try and find one for me? I really want one, and I want one now. Keep your eyes open for those fighters. The average at thirty-seven pounds. Yeah. Average, average. But you can get them. You can get them. They have been sold recently for as less as eight pounds, right, and they are it. definitely going down in price. They're going down in price. I think it's something we I picked up on before when like, when we look at auctions. Is some of the the box figures and or box ships and stuff that they're, they're not going massively increasing price unless it's like a sealed version and it's all pristine and all graded or whatever but the loose stuff yeah bargains wow. i think we want, I'm, I want, I'm gonna buy one. Oh, i am gonna buy one well i only had the darth vader's tie fighter and that fit beautifully in my detolf and unfortunately or regrettably it was the only thing which didn't survive the move um and they do say that the wing mechanisms or the solar panel um, ejection mechanisms can get fragile of age. And yeah, one of mine's caved in. So I'm sure there's a way I can potentially repair it. But my battle damaged, uh, sorry, my Darth Vader's TIE fighter wings won't stay on <laughs> anymore. I have you not. What? But looking now, I'm looking at a picture of the white TIE fighter. And as you say, Stu, as well, the, the colour really, really makes the solar panels stand out. Looks fantastic, looks iconic. Oh, I really like that. I 
I like that a lot. I, I like that almost the same as the Rebel Transport. <laughs> That's why I gave Pete that blue one now. I remember there was something faulty with the wings and I wasn't happy. Yeah. No, this I, was trying nice to, to me. I was trying to find the original price of this. You can find it in dollars. It was fourteen ninety nine. Joe, it took me about half an hour of Googling Argos pages to find a UK price. £8.39 in Argos in Christmas 78, I think it was. It might have been 79. Not bad price. Same May price payments. now, Pete. Yeah, May yeah well, £8.34. Eight, eight oh, wow. Yeah, man. And, uh, Last month, someone paid £8.34. Should we just give Pete a quick test? Pete, what does tie stand for? Uh, I can't remember. Oh, this is easy. I can't remember. Just go, go for it. Twin ion engine. Yeah. Oh, that was it. Yeah. Hey, Grant. <laughs> Don't ask I, me questions. Like I know. Block. I know what you mean, mate, about the tie interceptor. It is the Ferrari or the Lamborghini because I'm looking at it now and it does look a business. But I think your tie, your classic white, rich. I'm going with you. It does look. Just looks iconic. Looks ace. I love it. I can. Oh yeah, there, there are people out there that prefer Morris Minor to a Lamborghini. There's no doubt about that. It's just few and far between. You just happen to have two in the same place. That's what is happening right now. I think I'm just looking at the terms class over compensation. They haven't even got shields. <laughs> <laughs> okay. At least they've got a pilot, though. They're not a tie interceptor pilot, is it? Yeah. In fact, it's almost like Grant's being disrespectful to his own love. Yeah, this is almost ancestral. <laughs> I like the tie interceptor, but out of the four, I would put it fourth. Wow, harsh! That is harsh. Split, we? I think I would agree. The, the, the interceptor is—it's it, very cool. Um, the imperial tie fight—I just don't like imperialism. Yeah, but we're looking at the French one, so it's the standard fighter. It's an imperial fighter. Ah. The chasseur. Yeah. Or as Rich would call it, chasseau toy. <laughs> <laughs> so harsh, but true. There's still two more of them out there. So we've spoken about the best one, the best one, the white, the original tie fire. You know, we've try to entertain Grant talking about the worst one which he said was his favourite um, but then on Star Wars from UK on page 2071 and Tig page 4 of the latest purchases volume 12 you got walkies put on his glass light TIE fighter now these are stunning they are very cool came out in 1985 it's a package of the Brazilian Power of the Force TIE fighter it, it is awesome. What, what do you guys think of when you see these? I'm going to be honest with you, and it may surprise you this. I always think of the Robo Skull from G, not G.I. Joe, from Action Force. Yeah, I'm not with you on that. You know what I mean? The um, <laughs> It's the Action Force toy, the red one that was adapted from the TIE Fighter that Dave Tree talked about a couple of times on his Palatoy yeah, panel. Yeah, the, the, the red one. Yeah, it I, it always reminds. Whenever I see that glass lead, um Tie Fighter, I always, it always reminds me of the Robo Skull. Go and do a quick Google of Robo Skull. Type in type in Robo Skull Muff Jazz. Yes. Oh, so actually on the Imperial Gunnery Forum, I can't do this. Oh yeah, yeah. I see what you mean? Wow. Apart from it being very red, oh, there's like a tie interceptor version of it. Yeah. So that yeah. 
it, it, cause, it's because it's based on it's, it uses parts out of the Star Wars. Um, bizarre. You, you're going to have to uh, you're going to have to watch one Dave Tree's Palatoy panels at some point. Yeah, that's, right. that is bizarre. Whoa, weird and freaky at the same time. But I love Just it. that box, that box art is ridiculously bizarre. I mean, it's you, you know what I'm coming from. You've got the wonderful Star Wars logo. You've got the the wonderful artwork of the planet and. It's a bit strange in the, in the word motorizado. And then you've got that weird kind of picture just stuck in the top right hand corner. Kind of ruins it all. I mean, it's, yeah, it's a Star Wars picture and it shows it, but I don't know why they, they did that on but those, those, their designs. It just seems to kind of mess it all up. Such a wonderful design. It is absolutely stunning. Page 2071 of Star Wars from UK. I mean, looking even further when you look on Star Wars Collector's Archive, as well as the TIE Fighter. What else did they have? What other one in the tie range did uh, Glassleet do? Oh, the Interceptor. Yeah, and that looks the, the Lamb- business. The Lamb- Lamborghini Ferrari of the uh, vintage collecting world. <laughs> Indeed. Is it silvered up the same, is it? Yeah. Is it silvered up the same? Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, sorry, I said, um, is it? Is it got that sort of same silvery effect on, on the uh, Interceptor as well? Yeah, which is specific to, to the Glassleet range of those two. Yeah, yeah it's very metallic-y. Um, so you've got four different colours in essence, really. So you've got the original, the best. Um, you've got the Darth Vader's one, which could you, you could say is almost second best. Um, and then you've got the Battle Damage one, the third best. And then the Tie Interceptor. Um, and then you've got this one as well. Yeah, five different colours. Crazy. I think it's worth pointing out as well that these uh, glassy ones didn't actually appear on the market till 1988. Well, it, Everything I've got, mate, says 85. You've got 88, have you? Yeah, I believe it's 1988 for these glass lights, mate. Yeah, I've got um, 88 on my notes yeah. as well. I'm sure we've talked about this before because I'm sure we've had the same 85, 88 problem. Um, but mm. eight, uh, 80... Whoa, whoa, hang on. It says on the box 1988, Duke's Film Limited. Yeah, I've got... <laughs> well, there's something else as well because in a 1988 glass light catalogue, there's an image of a Darth Vader's TIE fighter as well. I, I thought Glassley didn't get the license until '87. Yeah, that's probably right. Do you have this one, Grant? Me? No, I. Uh, I've got no interest in tie fighters. I've, I've heard this before. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure we've talked about this before. Okay. I thought it was the X one we talked about before. Do you know what, uh, what's what's really interesting as well is that they market the uh, Glassley tie fighters as TV toys. Really? Yeah, they don't like on the yeah, uh, Glassley on the Glassley boxes on the they got like a logo on there that says tv yeah, toys yeah see the reason i got my information here uh from star wars collector's archive is the <sighs> star wars tie fighter year 1985 is that yeah, down down the information at the bottom is it yeah because uh yeah that that sometimes just refers to a huge kind of like you know uh, uh, you know, it's not specific to the item as such, but maybe the the kind of like you know the information sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I get thrown by that a lot. I go ah, oh? because that's, that's surely that's a, a modern item and it's saying eighty two. <laughs> All right. I oh, know, I know, but it's, it's just it's just the way they categorise their information. I wouldn't pay too much attention to the, the things right at the bottom of the page where it says yeah, it's got like whose collection it belonged to, and then sometimes the dates don't match up with the items. So. Do you know what? You guys are absolutely right because. Uh, on each of theirs, the X-Wing, the TIE Fighter, they all say 1985, um, but then it contradicts itself on TIE Interceptor. 
whereas it says year 1985. And then it says, imagine if the power of the force line had continued in the United States beyond 1985. This is the kind of stunning artwork we would have witnessed. This Brazilian tie interceptor was issued in 1988. So you are correct. My reliance on information provided in front of me on the internet has let me down. You've let us all down, Jez. I don't think I have done. <laughs> Maybe that's why you're crap at quizzes. Hang on a second. I won, last month. I, I won last month and I came second this month. Serious question, Jez. What is the TV Toys logo about? I don't know. Well, uh, oh, yeah, here's an idea. Joyce. Grant, you, you were talking about TV Toys logo. What, what, what's it in reference to? Uh, TV shows on TV because the power of the force went on to droid stuff, didn't it? Hence the A wing and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah I just, have just, no idea, mate. It just seems strange no, to have on box. Mm. Yeah, just just wondering if it was like a a line of toys that you know had other things in, or it's just I mean, it just seems a bit random. Isn't it? I mean, it looks like a proper logo. It's been designed and put on there. It's not just like this is from a t- on on TV. It looks like it's from a range of stuff. Does it ever appear in the droids at Ewok Scotland? I don't know. I might have to ask both of the people who watched it. <laughs> oh! I, I, I'd be interested with that. That's an interesting thing. Someone out there will know. Oh, we've got loads of questions today, haven't we? I know. Why this? Why crazy that? stuff. So there we go. Love it. Five different versions. Colours. Goodness knows what, but tie. The original tie. Oh, amazing. <laughs> Talking of TIE Fighters, the last thing which we're going to look at, lads, on page 2077, I was delighted here for Spoons, who was made up with his small-winged, die-cast Darth Vader's TIE Fighter on a TIE Fighter card. There's a tongue-tie for you. Who's seen, All of you guys seen this? Anyone explain what I'm talking yeah, there's about? Yeah, actually, there's actually one, one for sale on eBay now as well. So there's a second one out there. Really? How much? Oh, oh no idea. Oh, Jez, go uh, get your um, go get yourself an acquisition this month. Yeah, yeah. I'm uh, going to get tie fire. Genuine. Stabilize your rear deflectors. Watch for enemy fighters. If I uh, if I actually find this, uh, you have to buy it. Okay. No, that's not true. Um, so I asked Spoons about this small winged diecast. Darth Vader's tie on a tie card. I mean, what is this? Just a miss card? Spoons goes on. I genuinely can't remember when I first heard of the mythical small wing Darth Vader's tie. To me, it was like the rocket firing FET, often talked of but never seen. I wondered if I'd first read about it in Sansweet's Concept Collectibles book, but just haven't had a check. It's not there. I guess it's been on my radar since collecting in the 90s, but something I never, never thought I'd own. I do recall an ex-colleague in the mid-2000s telling me that he'd actually seen one in the flesh and me being blown away. The Darth Vader tie was first made with these smaller wings and small bubbles made and added to existing TIE Fighter cards, essentially as packaging proofs. The next stage was to mount them on bespoke 20-bag Darth Vader tie cards, but after that point, someone made the decision that the wings were too small and the tie was redesigned. The tie cards ones are definitely not miss cards, but deliberate internal Kenner packaging samples. And here you go, Grant. There was approximately 50 small wing ties are known. 
to similar to the revenge proofs, and even split on tie cards and Darth Vader tie cards, and seemingly uh-huh. fewer loose ones based on recent sales. Right, there's two for sale at the moment on eBay by uh, Collectible Investment Brokerage, one on the Darth Vader card, and one on the TIE Fighter card. <clears throat> um, the Darth Vader one is AFA80, and that's £3,280, and the TIE Fighter card is £3,280 also, but that is an AFA85. Wow. And they're both described as pre-production small yeah. wing TIE Fighter. Yeah. There was actually one at Father's From on the Vader uh, card a couple of yeah. years ago. I think fifth, I, I thought there was 500 of these made. I don't know where I thought the number 500 from, but 50 seems too few. Oh, well, there we go. I mean, old spoons and he knows his stuff. And you've only got to look at his does. website to see that. Yeah. Um, he said he's managed to pick up one a couple of years ago from Vectis on the latter or the later Vader packaging. Uh, the packaging is also unproduced, but so few people know about these are essentially prototypes. Combined with them being unpopular die cast, they go under the radar for relatively sensible money. The 20 back Vader card is also unproduced as a production one as a 21 back, although the Canadians got a 20 pack with French text. He really only wanted the tie carded one for his die cast tie focus and kind of accidentally won the Vader tie carded one with a cheeky bid. Since then, he's seen a few tie carded ones for sale, but going for increasingly higher sums and ending up on Brian's Toys or other dealers' websites. He said, When this tie carded Darth Vader tie appeared on Facebook last week, I made an offer and the seller quickly came to a deal. Thankfully, I got it for a sensible price, and it's another bit of kind of history in a collection rather than not selling on a website. Which is, I think, a pretty good way of rounding it off. And when you look at his website, um, yeah, absolutely fantastic. I had no idea about those small wing ties. As I said, you guys think that there could be more than 50? He's quite sure of his facts there, but wow, fantastic. We've had a feast of unique and very unusual items. Unpaired yak faces, the small media collection, which we really want to know more about, trademark sample set, R2-D2 lunch pail prototypes and some excellent detective work on Star Wars Forum UK with the uh, Tri-Logos. An awesome cataloging on Tantive 11. But I've really enjoyed chatting about the TIE Fighter. And do you know what, lads? I'm pretty sure come farthest from, I would have got myself an original TIE Fighter to have on my display in my new home. Split up and head back to the surface. And see if you can get a few of those TIE Fighters to follow you. Copy, go leader. Love it. Cheers, lads. Please listen, believe in. Please listen, believe in.
Okay, welcome to this month's Beyond the Toy section. I'd like to welcome science fiction illustrator Chris Moore to the Vintage Rebellion podcast. Chris has a huge portfolio of science fiction artwork that he's done over the years. This includes some concept artwork for Stanley Kubrick and artwork for musicians such as Rod Stewart, Fleetwood Mac, Magnum and Journey, as well as a host of authors, mainstream writers and publishers, from books to magazines, far too many to mention. Uh, the pre-mentioned artwork for Stanley Kubrick was finally realised in Steven Spielberg's film AI. Uh, Chris has also released a illustrated book of his life, art and techniques in 2000 called Journeyman, The Art of Chris Moore. But for our listeners of the podcast today, our favourite work of Chris might be our topic of conversation, which is the, the Miru 1980 Empire Strikes Back wallpaper, which obviously covered many of our bedrooms back when we were children. Chris, it's an honour to have you on the Vintage Rebellion podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I hope I got uh, the introduction right there from my research. Um, yeah, pretty much. I can't think of anything... Uh, well, there wasn't anything wrong with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, think... Perhaps a little overblown <laughs> for my taste, but uh, there you go. Well, I think maybe the, the best thing to do for our listeners is just to sort of contextualise... Um, uh, where you've come from. Um, how did your uh, journey into becoming an illustrator start? I was always pretty keen on drawing and painting when I was at school. Then I did, um, they call it a pre-diploma course, which is before you go to art school, really, in Doncaster, South Yorkshire. Um, I did that for a year. Then I went on to do a diploma course at Maidstone College of Arts, Specialising in illustration all along, really. I mean, I, I kind of figured that I would be able to make a living, but I never, uh, I, I mean, book covers and record covers and things like that were not within the frame at the time. I just wanted to do, uh, draw and paint. And at Maidstone, I was under the tutelage of a chap called Gerald Rose, who was a children's book illustrator of uh, some repute. He was very good, actually. He was very encouraging. From there, I went on to the Royal College for a further three years, which was a master's course in illustration. Whilst I was there, I was quite a sociable chap. Um, I used to organise um, all the dancers and all the discotheques and stuff like that. Um, social secretary was the title I had. Um, so I got to know pretty much everybody. And at the time, there were a lot of people working from home. They preferred to create a little environment at home where they could sit sit, sit and draw, you know, and paint and do what they wanted to do. Um, I preferred to attend the college, and so I got to know a lot of the guys in the graphics department, as well as, you know, in other departments. And I became a kind of, like a surf, like a service department to the graphics department. All my friends in graphics, they would come along and say, well, you know, I want a picture of whatever it was. And I'd do it, you know. So um, I literally commandeered a room in the illustration department and took it over and had about four four drawing boards, various places in the room. And um, one of them I'd be doing one job for somebody and then on another one I'd be doing another one for somebody and, and so on. So I became this kind of man to go to, really, you know, um, producing all sorts of things. A friend of mine asked me to do a, a picture of a gold-plated Cadillac for his thesis. Um, that, that's quite a nice little job to do. And then um, when I left the Royal College, um, 
one of my friends from the graphics department and I just set up a partnership. We started, we, we rented a, a small studio in Covent Garden in London, which was an absolute hive of industry as far as the creative industries go. There were lots of designers, artists, photographers, musicians, all sorts of people were all kicking out, kicking around together because rents were very cheap. The market, um, the fruit and vegetable market that used to be there, it, uh, it moved um, in 1972 to Nine Elms in London. So all this warehouse space suddenly became available very, very cheaply. You know, so it was perfect. You could find places to park your car, and uh, you got a big studio to work in. And um, Mick, my, my partner, Michael Morris. Um, he and I set about doing book covers where we went to record cover companies with our um, our portfolio and uh, we just got loads and loads of work because we were we were actually offering a complete service. It wasn't just painting pictures. We were actually coming up with ideas as well. We got a lot of work um, and it became quite successful. I mean, we were we were amongst a whole bunch of groups that were successful at that time you know it was a great time to be around <laughs> i don't think it'll ever be repeated to be to be honest it's all changed now yeah i'm sure uh, um, london prices won't be uh, uh cheap rent will be uh, repeated anytime soon that's for sure well within a few years advertising agencies started to move into covent garden you know and then sort of boutique shops and things like that and uh Pretty soon it became very, it became quite expensive. You know, we were lucky. We, we stuck it out for about eight years or so, eight or nine years. And then Michael went to uh, work with another ex-RCA graduate, uh, Penny Jones. Um, and she'd been with someone called Gordon Thompson, who was, uh, you know, pretty, a pretty clever chap as well. They were all very, very uh, clever people. It was, it was a good time. And then Michael uh, carried on doing, um, I think he did a lot of stuff for the museums and for insurance companies and things like that. But uh, um, and I, I, worked, I started work from home then, you know, when it became expensive. A lot so, of your work that I've actually seen uh, is uh, uh, science fiction based. Is that all, I mean, what, where did the interest in science fiction start? And have you always been working with science fiction? No, not at all. It's, it's quite an interesting story, actually, because... Uh, Michael and I, from uh, the word go, we went to a, a book publisher, which was called Associated Book Publishers in Fetter Lane in, in London. They had an imprint called Magnum Paperbacks. And the art director there, who um, was, became, and still is, a really good friend of mine. In fact, we're going to his 50th wedding anniversary down in St. Ives in a couple of weeks' time. Peter Bennett, his name was. We were doing stuff for him, and... Um, a lot. Of, he seemed to have a lot of faith in us, and but a lot of the stuff kept getting turned down by the uh, design department, not the design department, the uh, edi editorial and uh, marketing departments. They didn't seem to want to work with us, so we took him on one side one day and said, "Look, you know, you're the art director. You've got to put your foot down." And it was like magic. Everything went through very, very quickly and without any problems at all. But one day he said to me. Um, I'd like to try you on uh, doing science fictions. I said, really? All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Let's go for it. You know. 
I think I'd seen 2001 at the time, and that was the limit of my knowledge of science fiction. In fact, there's a funny story with that, because the first cover I did was for an Alfred Bester book called Extro. The cover was, it was like something out of 2001. So I wasn't very pleased with it, I mean, it was a pretty terrible thing, really. But it was used, you know, it went out and it became quite a famous book, actually. And then many years later, um, I was at a convention and some chap came up to me and asked me to sign a copy of this book, you know. Because you, you get people wandering around with suitcases full of books and they ask you to sign all the ones that you've done the covers for, you know. Anyway, this uh, this fella shoved this book under my nose and said, would I sign it, please? So I said, well, yeah, okay. You know. And uh, I opened up the book, and Alfred Bester had signed it, and he'd written, if there was ever a book I didn't want to sign, it was this one. And <laughs> signed his name. And so I just wrote ditto. <laughs> <laughs> Was there much of a uh, sort of market for science fiction artwork in the 70s? Yeah, there was quite a lot. There were guys around like Rodney Matthews and Peter Jones and Chris Foss and guys like that. And they were, you know, exceedingly clever guys, very, very good. And there were agents who specialised in, in science fiction stuff. The young artists did a lot. But I, I didn't have an agent. I just uh, paddled my own canoe for for a long time. And then eventually um, I got taken up by a company called Artist Partners, who uh, I think they are the longest-running artist agents in London. They, they've been going since about ooh, 1910, something like that, or maybe later than that. But they were the um, company that IPC magazines used to go to for all the uh, women's own and what was the other thing? Women's Realm, the Lady Magazine, all those kind of... IPC magazines that they used to have in the 60s. Artist partners had all these figurative artists who were churning stuff out. Uh, I joined them, and I'm still with them, actually, you know, even now. Wow, fantastic. 40-odd 40, 40 years later. Um, yeah, it was good, it was good. I've been very, very lucky, you know. I've been lucky with the people I've worked with, I've been lucky with the people I've I've met, I've been lucky with the work that I've been offered. You know, there are a lot of very talented people out there that don't get the breaks anymore. You know, it's all, it's a different world now. Yeah, anyway, Pete Bennett wanted to try me on the science fiction stuff. And they, it coincided with publishers producing wraparound covers, which is where the image stretches over on, on the spine and onto the back of the book as well. This was really to facilitate the salesmen going round the bookshops. They'd go around with proofs of the covers to actually sell them to bookshops and they found that if they had a wraparound cover it was easier to sell them because people couldn't see a bigger picture you know and uh, that suited me really well because I developed this sort of uh, idea I suppose of having the main idea on the right hand side of the picture which is the, the front cover of the book it running onto the back so all the pictures from that period all have this sort of you know, the interesting bit on the right-hand side, but still st stuff, relevant stuff on the left, you know. It just seemed to work very well for my technique, you know. But gradually, they got better and better and better as I got more into it. I did hundreds, literally, throughout that period, worked very, very hard. You know, so it's all thanks to Peter Bennett, really, because he was the one who, uh, he saw the, if you like, the way that 
by word could be incorporated into producing works of uh, science fiction. Well, our, our listeners to the podcast will probably know your work the best from the uh, 1980 Empire Strikes Back uh, Vermeera uh, wallpaper design. For the listeners, right, if, yeah. if, they can, if they can picture it, it's the one with uh, Cloud City and Darth Vader, uh, Boba Fett and Lando in the Carbon Freeze Chamber, Luke on Dagobah, uh, a Probot, and Atta, and our heroes in the Millennium Falcon uh, cockpit. Yeah. Uh, Chris, I'd be grateful if you could sort of explain the journey of how you uh, started on this project and, and sort of like the technical aspects of putting this project together. Well, um, yes, it's... I mean, I'd had a little bit of experience at doing wallpaper designs because a friend of mine um, approached me... Well, he was... Uh, I mean, he wasn't a friend of mine, but he, he became a friend of mine. Uh, approached me from stories of Lancaster who were wallpaper manufacturers and he produced, he asked me to produce um, designs for racing cars and speedboats and uh, various other things you know like that and um, I did and again they were quite successful they're based on 21 inch half drop which means that the pattern is repeated every 11 and a half inches down, sorry, ten and a half inches down one side, and and the opposite side, it's um, ten and a half inches higher up. It's it's difficult to describe it really, but um, you end up with a piece of artwork that's kind of roughly diamond shaped. It's twenty one inches from top to bottom, and whatever the width of a, a roll of wallpaper, and it's got to match up on opposite sides. It's a bit like a jigsaw, you know. And you have to find a way through the design where the engravers can create a line where the things are going to join up. Anyway, I'd done these things. And then one day, uh, a client of ours who was a chap called Eddie Pond, who we used to have um, lots of fun with, actually, because he was quite diminutive and um, had quite a wide face and a wide mouth. <laughs> and he looked a bit like a frog. So whenever he came in our studio, we put Clarence Frogman Henry on singing Ain't Got No Home <laughs> on the record player. And he'd get quite upset with us. <laughs> but anyway, he was also chairman of the wallpaper manufacturers, which were, uh, you know, a, a, um, a, a, a professional body representing wallpaper manufacturers. And he also started up Paper Chase as well. Um, so he was a pretty good guy, actually. He's very, um, very good man to have on your side. And then one day he came around and said, "Oh, it's Joe. Are you interested? It's for this, um, the Empire Strikes Back wallpaper for. It was for Crown, actually. So I don't know. Did you say Mira? Did it? The Mira. Uh, um, Vimira. Yeah. Is it? Oh, Vi- yeah, that which is Crown. Yeah, Vimira wallpaper. Somebody told me that he sold six million rolls in the first week. Wow, that's um, a, that I, is a lot. I don't, I can't verify that, but somebody told me that. But I didn't, I didn't get a royalty on it. <laughs> a flat fee, you know. Was it was it quite obviously the obviously Star Wars has already come out then and been a massive well, success? Was yeah, Star Wars. Story? Star Wars had come out. There was a lady called Carol Titleman who uh, subsequently did the um, the book, The Art of Star Wars. I think it was. And she worked for Lucasfilm. Uh, she provided me. I met her at um, 
Warner Brothers, or I think it was, in um, Leicester Square. And uh, she gave me some bits and pieces, you know, um, reference and what have you. And then um, once I'd actually created the, the, the artwork for this thing, they flew me over to, to Lucasfilm in Los Angeles. At that time, it was... I don't think he had Sky Skywalker. Was it called Skywalker Ranch? That's correct. I don't, yeah. I, I don't think he had that uh, at the time. Um, they had a, a big place on Lancashire Boulevard, I remember, and they stuck me up in the uh, the Hilton Universal. Hilton Universal. I'm trying to remember the name of the hotel. It's not really that relevant, but it was opposite Uni- Univer- Universal Studios. Was just across the road. So I wandered in there and had a, you know, did the Universal Studios tour and all that kind of stuff. But it was very interesting. Um, the Star Wars Lucasfilm setup was in this huge wooden building. It was fantastic, actually. Um, on two floors, I think. It was like a gigantic barn. And um, I got a bit of a guided tour around that. Um, they showed me some of the models that they of the, um, you know, the walkers that they, uh, I mean, what were they called, those? The uh, Atat walkers. Yeah. And uh, some of the some of the spaceships. Oh, and I met Yoda as well. Uh, there were three of them on a shelf, sort of uh, latex puppets, you know. That's quite wow. Interesting. And I was over there for about three or four days, and, and they were very pleased with, with the artwork and um you know i think i think they'd seen uh, they'd had one before for the first star wars film which they weren't very happy with i don't think so you know they did a very good job on it but there was a bit of a funny story when i um i came through customs at the uh at the airport in los angeles they asked me what i got in this uh big case you see this big flat case i said oh it's um, a painting you know and they said oh why what is it what, is it valuable? I said, well, potentially, very, you know. <laughs> they said, well, well, you know. And they, they got all these, uh, all these customs officials sort of gathered around me and they had made me unpack it. Of course, there were, some of them had seen Star Wars and all that sort of stuff. So they were, oh, wow, wow, this is great, you know. And anyway, there was no problem. They let me through. But it was just the, the thought of it being valuable, you know. I think they thought it was a Picasso or something. <laughs> I was smuggling through. Anyway, um, it came out and um, that that was pretty much it, really. You know, I was back on doing other stuff, you know. Judging by the, the pieces that you've used, I'm quite interested in the stills that you were given. That seems to be quite far into the production of the film, then. This artwork must have been created quite close to the release. Yeah, I think so, because I actually got taken, along with Nick as well, we both went to the premiere in Leicester Square, which was, you know, just a short walk away from our studio, actually. And that was, it was pretty good. I mean, we were blown away with it, really. But uh, it was a a pre, it was a kind of mid-production version that they showed. It wasn't completely finished. A lot of the matting on the... You know, where, where you map one area out to, uh, obscure something, um, you could, you could actually see through where they'd matted it out, and so it wasn't completed. Right. But it didn't, didn't detract from, uh, 
the quality of it, you know, that's amazing, really. That's fantastic. I still think it's my favourite Star Wars film, actually. It's the, yeah, I think it's uh, the most popular with the fans as well, so... Is it? Yeah, mm. which, which isn't bad, because there's, you know, there's eight of them now. But the other thing about it was that, at the time, you know, you were just, you were just doing it, doing the best you could, which you did on everything, really, you know, within the time that was available. No idea how it was going to develop into this sort of, you know, multi-million dollar industry, you know, all the marketing and merchandising and stuff like that. Right. No idea about that. So, <laughs> in fact, if I'd known about that, I'd probably demanded more money, but, um, <laughs> I think I'm, I might have got three thousand pounds for it for okay. the design. And would that have been quite, that would have been quite a lot of money back then? I would have imagined. Uh, no, not really. No. Um, well, yeah. I mean, but considering that it probably took three weeks, two to three weeks to actually. I mean, I did all the drawings and all the preliminary drawings and all that kind of stuff, and then to do the artwork was probably. I don't know, 10 days work, something like that. So it was quite well paid for the amount of time I'd spent on it. But, it, you know, it, it was no better paid than other stuff that I was doing. You know, not really. I'd like to ask you a few, just a few questions about the sort of technical aspect of, of putting the sort of composition together. When you were handed the stills from the film, uh, were, you, were you given any direction or was it up to you to create a sort of collage yourself and... Was there any sort of, you know, pictures that you didn't use or, you know, was there any influence by Lucasfilm or 20th Century Fox at the time? No. No, No, I mean, Lucasfilm didn't have anything to do with it. Carl Teitelman gave me a bunch of stills and and stuff. I mean, not a colossal amount of it, you know. Um, And uh, I just worked with what I've got, you know, with what they gave me. Um, I didn't use all that much of it. The pictures of the Millennium Falcon, you know, and uh, the kind of flames coming out of the back of it. I'm, I made all that up. The stuff on the ice planet, um, I got some good stills for that. And uh, the characters, you know, the the crew and Chewbacca and all that. I mean, I had to work from photographs with that. But there was just one picture of them all on the flight deck of the Millennium Falcon. And that was the one I used, you know. Wow. Um, so not a huge amount, and th- and that's why they sent me over to Los Angeles with it because it was cheaper to take me over there than for them to come to London to check out the artwork. You know, so th- at that time, I suppose because of the success of Star Wars, and you know, in George Lucas's mind, I'm sure he had all, you know, all three of the first films all planned out and everything. And so I think didn't he arrange with 20th Century Fox? That he could have the merchandising. Yeah, that's correct. That's right. I think that's yeah. right. So the the figures must have been sort of totting up already um, after Star Wars, you know, with sort of figures, um, you know, the little models and things like that. And the merchandising um, roller coaster must have already started. So I'm sure they were, you know, they were aware of that. But uh, you know, from my point of view, I. Um, I just worked with what I got and produced produced that, you know. A lot of it's di- dictated by the actual medium, you know. You know, you've got just this sort of small, 
space of uh, 20, 21 inches or whatever the width of the wallpaper is. It's all got to fit in with that. And it's all got to... So you, you, you kind of... You're governed quite a lot by how the thing's going to fit together. What's so interesting about that now is, you know, for collectors to see, you know, like the artwork that you produced is quite unique, whereas today we've got so much... We've got style guides and branding, and it's very sort of like, you know repetition of the same sort of photography and artwork across all the merchandise they release, whereas, you know, back in those days, there's such a wide variety of different types. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like, I, you know, I haven't got really very much to say about it, because, I mean, it just came in, I did the job, and it was very interesting at the time, and then then it, it all disappeared, you know. Um, I never saw the artwork again, that disappeared. I never got any royalties for coming up with any of the concepts, but I don't really think I should have done because all the characters and the, you know, the Ralph McQuarrie stuff that, um, that I, I worked from, that was all their copyright. I mean, the only thing I did was literally cobble it together in some sort of presentable form, you know. But it was a nice job. It was a nice job. I, I don't know if you've actually I've seen on um, eBay, but there's a a section of that wallpaper that you produced where you can it just covers so you can see everything that was drawn in in, in on one piece. So it's actually quite small. Really? And uh, at the moment, it's going for fifteen pounds just for that small section. Really? Yeah. Really? <laughs> mm. uh, I, I don't have any. I don't have a copy of it at all. All I've got is a. Um, a large format transparency that somebody did of a kid's room mocked up with the wallpaper on the wall. That's that's the only thing I've got. Have you um, ever actually um, considered that you know many uh, young children who would have been you know really into Star Wars back in the early eighties who would have had your artwork all across you know their bedroom walls would have been been inspired to become artists themselves because of it? No, that's never really occurred to me. Um, I would have assumed always that when people look at things like that, then they're not really interested in how it's produced. They're just interested in what it says, you know, in um, how it makes them feel, the technicalities of it. I mean, I'm not sure I would have been that interested in how things were produced from a technical point of view. Yeah, I think I'm, I'm thinking in regards of, you know, uh, kids tracing and copying the artwork that they see on their wallpaper and that planting the seed that, you know, would uh, influence them later on to become, you know, artists and illustrators. Yeah, well, hopefully it did, but, I mean, it wasn't what motivated me, really, um, because there wasn't much around when I was a kid, you know. I think the movies were um, much more interesting from my point of view. Yeah, but uh, Chris, you're, you're still producing uh, artwork today and illustrations. I thought it'd be a good yeah. idea as well for yeah, for right. our listeners to come and check out, you know, your your website and the kind of work that you produce. Um, what kind of work are you doing at the moment, and where can our listeners uh, have a look at it? I've done a, a series of four covers for. I'm just trying to remember the name of the publisher, but that involved doing four images for four different books. But the uh, it was all one picture, you know. I produced one painting for all four books. Yeah, the the company's called Newcon Press, N E W C O N Press, and they're a, a, a small scale publisher. 
Speed of Light, The Memoirist, and, uh, and two other covers as well. Um, I've been doing some stuff for Rebellion, which is another publisher. There's a, a new author on the scene called Yoon Ha Lee, who uh, I think he must be Chinese or something. Uh, I've done a bunch of covers for him. And in fact, I'm doing one at the moment, uh, something called a XR Chait series. And I'm doing some personal work as well, just stuff I want to do, you know. No, that's fantastic. Where, where can our listeners actually uh, sort of look at your portfolio? The only thing, there's on Artist Partners' um, website, which is um, www.artistpartners.co.uk, I think, um, there's my website, but that hasn't been updated for about 10 years. <laughs> and that's my fault. I haven't updated it. I do have the facilities to do so, but uh, I just don't find the time, to be honest. I'm sort of doing other things. Is that I could do with a secretary, actually. <laughs> Somebody to take all the crap out of my life and let me just do what I want. But unfortunately, Is that, yeah. that www.chrismoreillustration.co.uk? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Excellent. Well, hopefully some of our listeners will be able to uh, check some of your other artwork out. Uh, Chris, I'd like to say uh, thank you for coming on to the Vintage Rebellion podcast and sharing your stories from uh, you know back in back in the day. Well, it's it's, it's been a pleasure. Um, I'm very flattered that you're interested. Really, it's it's you know it's it's nice really. Well, the um the, just just to show uh, on page uh, two thousand and eighty of our. Uh, Star Wars forum, which is like an internet forum. Someone has even just pur- purchased the press release for the wallpaper that you created. So there's definitely really? a, there's definitely a lot of interest out there for for this kind of uh, you know unique items. Uh, Didn't your chap Mark Mark um, your Mark friend Huckley. yeah yeah? Didn't he have that? So uh, no, he was he's got the poster that was advertising it. Oh, so right, with some awful lettering on it. You know, there's a lot of there's still a lot of interest for this kind of thing, and I think it's because um, you know Star Wars is so you know, massive and global and a massive franchise now. But this stuff is the very sort of the very beginning of it all, and I think that's where a lot of the interest is to see where it all started. Well, that's right, that's right. It's a, I mean, it's in it's in line with you know the fact that I do feel I've been very very lucky. You know, I've been in the right place at the right time and had the right breaks, met the right people, you know, being good enough at the time to warrant giving me more work and so on, you know. There's a, there's a, a saying in our business that you're only as good as your last job. There's always the pressure to, and I mean, I'm not, not necessarily pressure from outside, but you're always pressurizing yourself to get better and better and better, you know. Um, it's good. That's how it should be. Yeah. Well, it's been fantastic having you on, and hopefully, um, this interview will will draw some attention to both the artwork that you're doing now and and some of that uh, vintage Star Wars culture from back in 1980. Well, thank you very much, and um, you know, good luck with your your venture. You know, it sounds very noble. It's really good. Thank you, Chris.
This month's Market Watch is going to be a bit like Stu. Short, stumpy, but full of goodness. This is mostly down to me preparing those lovely giveaways for Star Wars Celebration in Orlando coming up very soon, so I kind of ran out of time. I did have a few requests to look at how 12 packs were sold during 2016. Now, a disclaimer before I start, as we know, to go over every 12 pack sold would be an enormous bore for everybody and would have me sitting here listing variation and conditions and foreign variants. Yes, I'm talking to you people with the outrageous accents. I'm going to focus on Kenner 12A prices, mostly because I looked at the top 5 price 12 packs graded and ungraded in 2016 on Star Wars Tracker and found something that deserved closer attention. Three of the higher priced Kenner 12As were R2D2s during 2016 selling for over £3,000, £4,000 and £5,000. For comparisons, I had a quick look at 2015, and there were several highly graded R2-12As that sold for over 1000 and some into the 2000s, and even that's still extremely high in comparison to their ungraded price. For ungraded prices in 2015, it was around the mid-300s. In 2016, it's in the early 400s. So why are R2s making such an impact in prices and have a huge disparity between graded and ungraded? For the higher priced R2, which had a selling price of over 5200 it appeared to have the white figure stand or footer, which, according to its listing, is very rare and there are known to be only three graded examples. The figure stand or footer, which I will refer to them from now on, is that piece of card the figure stands upon to keep the figure upright and balanced in the bubble. You can no doubt visualise this small piece of card that would normally be the same blue as the backdrop, but this variation is white. This variation in the footer is one of four. The other variations are the SKU or SKU footer, the inverted V footer and the high and low inverted V footer, where the fold in the card goes upwards as high as between the figure's knees, or on the low it folds upwards between the ankles. This footer information comes from an excellent summary on Rebel Scum from Mark Yeo, who also reckons that the R2-D2 white footer is the fifth rarest behind DT Darth Vader, Imperial Stormtrooper, Luke and Chewbacca. The other two higher priced R2s were of the SKU or SKU on the footer variety, which is essentially a printed number code that can be seen on the blue footer card. If you have an R2-D2 Kenner 12A, check its variant just in case. It could be a lot more valuable than you first thought and it's worth knowing for insurance purposes. I then pulled down the frequency of the Kenner 12As and compared. The disparity between graded prices and ungraded prices varies between figures, and will obviously vary because of condition, grading awards, etc. But it does appear that despite the small numbers of carded sold, your grading of a decent carded figure can add anything from £200 upwards. Darth Vader graded samples go for well over double the ungraded price, as does Luke Farmboy, Imperial Stormtrooper, C-3PO, Sam People and R2-D2. For graded 12As, you'll be looking to spend an average of just over £1,000 per carded figure, but for ungraded samples, less than half, an average of £498. Admittedly, those figures could be questioned due to the lack of frequency. My sample size across 2016 is 110 carded samples, with 66 graded and 44 ungraded. Leo Garner having 18 samples, down to loot with just 3, so a couple of huge R2 prices can add an unrealistic edge sometimes. Leo Organa was the most frequent in 2016 with 18 recorded sales, but 7th highest price graded and 4th highest ungraded. 
her grading value works out at just over £200. So, for those looking to add an opinion sticker in an acrylic box, those Darth, Luke, Stormins, 3PO, Sam People and R2s will be the better investment opportunities, if you're into that sort of thing. But what about the ones I haven't mentioned? For the Jawa, there were no graded cloth cape samples, but there was a graded vinyl cape sale for over £3,000. Smallhead Han was the highest ungraded example, but only one sold, of over £1,000, followed by Luke Farmboy, with a three frequency averaging at just under a grand. The Death Squad Commander and Ben Kenobi have sales of less than one a month, but the grading adds a value of about £300 each. So, to conclude, if putting together an ungraded set of Kenner 12As, it will set you back at just under £6,000. For a graded set, 12000 I did try to compare with Palatoy figures, but you'd be comparing contrasting with 12As and 12Bs, and there just isn't the frequency. But a rough rule of thumb we've used across the podcast episodes with Palatoy graded car packs will be to double up and ungraded, not too dissimilar. And now the top 5 price TIE Fighter related items on StarWarsTracker.com. At five, it's a classy-looking vessel for some, but others say it looks like a pair of maths kids set squares inside a golf ball. It's a time to send to Return the Jedi A for 491 US dollars. You don't need a flight to Bangkok to buy this beauty. It's an Imperial TIE fighter for 561 North American green notes of value. At three, you won't need an RSVP at this black tie event. Just a ship faster than light speed, a roaring Wookiee, and a farm boy in an X-Wing ready for action. It's a Darth Vader TIE SWA, minted seal box for $610. Knew it too! Some people say Canada isn't the most interesting of places, full of moose and mountains, but this Kenner Canada Darth Vader TIE SWA, which sold for 710 buckaroonas, certainly was. Make sure you have tiny hands when you hold this, as I'm told it will appear far bigger than it actually is. It's a Minton Seal Box ESBD TIE Bomber for 1,427 American bucks. Don't forget to join us next time on the StarWarsTracker.com Top 5. Now I want to welcome back Brian Angel for this month's Rapid Fire. Are you ready to go, Brian? I have never been more ready. <laughs> Your favourite Star Wars movie? Empire Strikes Back, even though I love uh, Star Wars, but Empire Strikes Back is the best, most well-made Star Wars movie. Your favourite Star Wars scene? Favorite Star Wars scene is when Darth Vader is waiting for Luke in the carbon freeze chamber and when he says um, his famous line, um, the force is with you, young Skywalker, but you are not a Jedi yet. Your favorite on-screen character? A Han Solo. Gotta go Han Solo. Which actor or crew member would you most like to meet? I've met several. Who would I love to meet? I, I guess I'll go with Harrison Ford. <laughs> And who is your favorite Sith? Tough questions here. Darth Vader. Gotta go. Gotta go OG. Gotta stay original trilogy. Darth Vader. What is your favorite lightsaber duel? Yeah, I mean, I gotta go back to the scene in Empire Strikes Back uh, when Vader and Luke first fight. Favorite figure as a child? Ooh, as a child, probably R2-D2. And you can tell from my childhood R2's playwear. Yeah, and what's your favorite figure now? 
I I love the first twelve uh, dearly, near and dear to my heart. But I think I have to say R five D four is my favorite figure now. And which character do you wish they'd made a figure of? The original Star Wars that uh, just killed me, killed me, was uh, Governor Tarkin. How can you not make Governor Tarkin? That killed me. And and also they made the Luke Stormtrooper, but. They really needed to make Luke and Han's Stormtrooper way earlier in the line. What is your favorite toy, vehicle, or playset? I think that I have to go, ooh, Cap 2. I, I just think I, as a child, I used to love to just stick those suction cups all over everything. And uh, yeah, Cap 2. You could have given me 50 guesses. I wouldn't have got that right. I, um, I know. It's, it, it's very obscure, but still. <laughs> uh, a vehicle or playset you wish they'd made? I'm going to go modern on this one, and I'm going to say that I would love to see them make a Raptor from uh, The Force Awakens. A Raptor. Raptor. I, I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but I want one. There's a Lego one, isn't there? Or have they not done that? Am I making that up? Scrap that. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't collect uh, Legos. Don't know. No, me neither. <laughs> um, what is your favorite card back image? Favorite card back image? I think I'm going to have to go... I don't think you'll guess this one either, but I think I'll go um, FX7. There's something about it. I can't explain why. It just, it's cool. What is your favorite foreign toy license? Uh, Pac. Because of the 3741 backs, those are just insanely cool. They just look cool. What is your favorite Star Wars book? This is bad. It's so bad that I have to answer this, but uh, I think it's the Wookiee storybook. What is your favorite convention you've ever attended? I think they keep getting better every time. I think the most classic has to be Celebration 1 um, because of the pouring rain and my poor tiny little girlfriend at the time, wife now, uh, was freezing to death. And I was just pushing my way through people to get into buildings. I wasn't even waiting in line. We were just rushing to the front. It was, it was mayhem. What was the last vintage Star Wars toy you purchased? The last vintage Star Wars toy that I purchased was a R2-D2 engineering pilot. And what is your Holy Grail item? And this probably connects with the Wookiee storybook. I was just having this conversation with somebody today. I would say come and take all of my toys in trade for the four prototype unproduced Chewbacca and his family action figures that were made, um, I think based on the holiday special, believe it or not, which, again, super cheese factor, but those figures are just amazing. (laughs) Well, Brian, some great answers there, a few different ones from what I've had before, but uh, thank you ever so much, mate. Uh, My pleasure, and uh, hopefully there's a lot of editing, because I did a lot of ums and uhs and thinking and those, but listen, guys, those are tough questions. Rapid fire. Good job. Right, our rapid fire question for this month is What, in your opinion, was the worst figure released in the Return of the Jedi wave that does not include the last 17? So just on the Jedi card back. And let's start with Ricardo this month. Come to me last because I'm going to blow the other three away. Okay. Oh, I'm looking forward to that. Jez. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I've got three. 
No, God. That's not a three. Just one, Jez. Just one. Right. Clatu Skiff. Oh, bugger. That's what I was going to have. Well, he looks like a ropey version of Annika Rice in his big old jumpsuit thing, which just... You see it in a box of beaters. It always looks grubby. Why do you want two Klatus? All right, I get it. He's got his own weapons, a nice one. Um, but, yeah, Klatus gift is not needed. Row him out. Fair enough. Uh, Grant? Oh, I've got I've got three. You can't have three. Top of three. Okay, so I can't have three, so I'll go with Medine Rees and Chief Turba. Rees is great. <laughs> oh, yeah, with his what? His anorexic saxophone. That's such a great weapon. Yeah, but that's a great, great sculpt on his head. Yeah, oh, yeah, he did. So much play value, he can stand behind Jabba. <laughs> Amazing, I can't wait. The Klatu, at least you can get him chopped up by Luke Skywalker, you know what I mean? Not Reeves really. don't do nothing. He's like the yak face of the Jedi line. He's got massive hands. He's got hands like they've been dipped in toxic oh, waste that's... in Robocop. Amazing! I can't wait for him to use those hands to push a push a rebel transporter up a hill. Yeah, but the huge hands. Now this is going to really annoy someone on the forum, but I absolutely detest. I don't really detest him. I just don't like him. He looks a glorified clothes horse. It's eight d eight. I just don't get it. This yeah. big white framed thing that kind of stands there and looks a bit weird. I do I know mean, what and is. and he tortured one of my favourite droids. So that's good reason for not liking him. If you put Luke Jedi's cloak on him, he looks like Skeletor. <laughs> That's no a way good show. Skeletor. He's not. <laughs> that. Rich, blow us away. Wait, you ready yeah, for this? On, hang, hang on, guys. Let me get comfortable I, for this. I think he's going to go blown away. something shockingly like Emperor's Royal Guard. Yeah, he's going to say, no, he's gonna say to, the Emperor. To make himself look Emperor. cool, yeah. He is, yeah, yeah. Go on, go on Rich, come on. Prune fierce. And the reason why I went for Prune Face is, is that when we all got him as a kid, we all thought he was a Jabba goon. Nobody had a clue what he was. No. The rifle is utter crap. The cloak is the cheapest of all of the cloaks and all of the figures. It's just such a naff crap figure. Rich, you're forgetting the eye patch. Any eye patch makes a figure automatically cool. No, that's not an eye patch. It's a mispaint, and somebody just went, oh, we can't fix these. We'll just put a line around it. Stew, Grant. Do you want to take him, or do you want me to have him? You're basing your whole attack on the fact that we didn't know our stuff. You know, Ken and we're like, right, here it is. This is a prune face, he's a man. What we're going to do is we're going to give him a rifle, a rifle which is so accurate that he can take someone out from a good mile and a half away, whereas what a blaster... Yeah, you, you shot one eye. He's when so you... cool, he doesn't need two eyes. He just when needs you one. fire a rifle... You, you have your dominant eye, and you shoot, and you have one eye shut. Is this uh, top-secret information you're revealing now? No, I, I guess pretty much anyone in the UK military and every American would know that. His species-favoured weapon was the Dracillian projectile rifle. Issued with his oh. distinctive sling, this firearm, although considered primitive uh, when compared to the blasters used by rebel and imperial soldiers, still packs a wallop able to pierce the tough plastoid armour of an Imperial Scout trooper with relative ease. Absolutely. The whole point of a sling is what you do is you push your arm through it, wrap it round under it, and then with that resting arm, you pull the sling in, and that gives you extra support, which keeps the weapon nice and still in the shoulder. You've then got your one eye shut, all covered in a patch. You're there. Breathe. Breathe. Breathe and hold. 
Fire. Jez. And Jez, then... Jez, 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 Jez. Were you, were, you, were you one of the kids, right? You know when you, you, you all had mates, right? And you fell out with each other. And you would all go to the one kid's house that nobody liked, but you had nothing else to do. Right? Were you that kid? What, who went to your house? <laughs> hey, what about the texture of his cape? It's what? cape. It's crap. It's cheap. It's rubbish. It's lovely. It's tanned colour, which is beautiful. It's nice. Yeah. And, and what I like about it is I like seeing it when it's on a carded figure, or when it, when it is carded, rather, and sometimes the cloak's over him, sometimes the cloak's not. You know, it just keeps you guessing. It's a good one. Mine's the one I have is just completely covered. He's just just his little head on top of a cape. It looks mysterious. Almost like a hoodie. Yeah. It looks like your head, Jez. It looks like Titanian in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Brilliant. Well, well used to um, well to be honest, I'm just gonna go with Clatter's Skiff to start with because I love the Clatter oh, figure, but the Skiff never did it for me. So then no. Jez chose it. So then I was gonna choose eight D eight, but then you chose it. Um <laughs> Medine so, Grant bought it up. Do you know what? I've got the hand solo trench coat. I love him without his coat on, but I hated that trench coat. So it it, it does look a bit tacky, doesn't it? Yeah, I quite like him without it. Did it fit you, Stu? Did you wear it as a kid? Yeah, yeah, I still wear it now, Rich. <laughs> <laughs> a bit tight around the midriff, but <laughs> right, uh, Rich. Do we have much feedback from episode thirty-three? Yeah, quite a lot of feedback. All fan stores from UK, our thread got hijacked by Jason Smith. But it, it was absolutely great when you actually read the information out there because uh, you know what Jason's like. He's very, very dedicated about his Palatoy Matrix. And he started talking about his um, Palatoy sticker variations that Grant discussed in the last podcast. And there's some absolutely fantastic information that Jason's put on there. It's pleasing to see that they've started a brand new thread on Stores Forum UK, so it doesn't get lost. And I'm sure we're going to have Jason at some point in the future to talk about, and this has been requested, I think, by Chipsteak, segments for the future on Palatoy, Stickard, Kennard Goods, especially boxed items. So we'll put that out to Jason at some point, and I'm sure he'll be happy to record that. Chipsteak remembered the Palatoy Akbar sticker cards being very common and doesn't recall any kind of flyers or press adverts. So that was a good piece of information there from Chipsteak. He said the Empire Strikes Back display arena ones um, are quite tricky to acquire and he hasn't seen many of them as in down to the low single digits of those available as card backs. So, so that's quite interesting. No, it was really nice to see that. I think the inspiration behind... Uh, highlighting that piece was to get some dialogue going because I don't know much about these uh, sticker pieces and I think it was really nice to see people posting pictures of card backs and uh, and you know linking to these things and putting together a, a good matrix of, of what's out there I think that's quite exciting and I think that's something that we don't see enough of on the forum I guess we have you know we've recently seen uh, the the baggy gate thing that w- that was quite similar but I, I, I like seeing stuff like this where things are catalogued yeah definitely um, moving on we had quite a few people talk about the filmumentaries interview um, from Jamie Benning or Jambi Davdor, however that's pronounced. Now, what I particularly liked about it was that we had a few people contact us, but not always looking for the Star Wars ones. I had a, I had a couple of guys asking for links to the Jaws filmumentary and to the Raiders one. So for anybody who's never checked out one of those interviews before, I believe that on Vimeo... Uh, very easy to find, so if you just look for Jamie Benning Filmentary or check out our Facebook page where we'll have links to all those filmentaries. Andy Preston over on Stores Forum UK posted a couple of photographs of these bootleg ceramic money boxes and he has um, Darth, two Darth Vader's 
and I didn't realise at all that there was a, a variant. And one of his Darth Vader's has got a white lightsaber, and that's pretty cool looking. Now, he mentioned that the possibly UK made is a, is a clearly modelled on the HC4 pencil tops. So, I mean, that's a plausible theory. But he's also posted a photograph of two mugs that he would like to have more information on. One is an R2-D2, and the other one's a C-3PO, and they've both got the number 267 uh, it looks like they've engraved on the bottoms of them, so he just wants to find out a bit more information about them and what they are. Rich, they, those two mugs are actually on the SWCA. When I was researching for Amy's interview, she was into bootleg items. I think she owns a couple of them. If he goes on to the SWCA and types in bootleg ceramics, they will come up. I'll, I'll find a link if I remember, if you can remind me. Right, Okay. Over on Tantiv, um, Clint and the boys, as usual, did their fantastic, great roundup of our podcast where they provide lots of links to different Tantiv threads and there's some great discussion on, on there. What was really pleasing for me, and I'm sure Jez commented on as well, is that it's good to see that Tantiv has had an influx of new members recently. So, you know, as Grant mentioned before, by all means, go on, Chant- uh, go on Tantiv if you've never been on before and check out some of the great stuff that they've got over on there. Uh, we've got some feedback on Rebel Scum, the first one we've had for quite a while. Um, a member called Jonathan, who goes by Raven7DP. And he said he's up to the fall of 2015. I'm trying to think of the fall of 2015. Was that something to do with Grant and Fathers from? Probably. The, he loves the banter on the show, which is great because we're always worry about whether the Americans get our banter. Um, because we haven't met many Americans who've got a good sense of humour. And he says that, you know... <laughs> he, 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 think, he thinks I take a lot of flack on the show, which is fine. I've got broad shoulders and bigger fists when I see them. He said that Jez's dull tones are great to send people to sleep, which I, I totally agree with. But he mentioned that, you know, it's, and, and we've said this from day one now, it's the guests that make the show. We just pull it all together. He also mentioned a bit of feedback for Pete, because it was mainly you, that he loved the commercials. So it's sad to say that we did actually get rid of the commercials. due to even more feedback to say that uh, people didn't like them. But never mind, you can't win them all. Over on Facebook, we had some feedback from David Radar and several others who wish to show their appreciation for the film entries. It was really good to see people actually linking to that and uh, Jamie himself had commented on it and said that he'd found that he'd had uh, a great time on our show. So, lots of feedback. Keep them all coming, guys. So, Stu, how can somebody get in contact with us if they want to leave us some feedback? Yeah, they can email us on show at vintagerebellion.co.uk Search for Vintage Rebellion on Facebook or on Twitter at SWTVR Podcast. If you missed a show or want to go back and re-listen to anything, you can find all our shows right back to episode one, and including the three Christmas specials on iTunes, or directly at swtvrpodcast.podbean.com. Also, if you've got two minutes, you can even support the show even more by leaving us a review on iTunes. Now, massive thank yous to all our guests this month, Brian Angel, Chris Moore, Ian Sanderson, and John Paul Ragusa. As always, we truly appreciate everyone who takes time to speak with us on the show. Be sure to come and chat with us at Celebration. Sadly, I can't be there, but Grant, Pete, Rich and Jez will all be in attendance with some wonderful swag to exchange, so hunt down those mutants. They'll all be happy to talk to any of you. Now, the plan is to have another show out before Celebration. This will be an early release, so don't hold your breath if it doesn't materialise. But That is the plan at the moment. But for this month, it is goodbye from Rich... Later, guys. Goodbye from Grant. Happy Women's Day, Rich. Goodbye from Jez. <laughs> Cheers, lads. Off to get a TIE fighter. Uh, goodbye from Pete. Uh, bye. And it is goodnight from me. And remember... Only you can decide with Star Wars toys. Star Wars toys.
This podcast is not endorsed by Disney, Lucasfilm Limited, 20th Century Fox, or anybody who cares about the Star Wars franchise. It is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The official Star Wars website can be found at www.starwars.com. All names and sounds of Star Wars are registered trademarks of Lucasfilm Limited and other associated copyright holders. All of the original content of this podcast are the intellectual copyrights of the Vintage Rebellion. If you enjoyed this podcast, then feel free to email swtvrpodcast at gmail.com. If you don't enjoy this podcast, tough. Are Star Wars products going to have the durability of, say, that old favourite, the teddy bear? Looks like he should have a Sean-off shotgun. Uh, Sean-off shotgun. Sean-off? Sean of the dead. Sean-off. Looks like he should have a...